This is the final show in a four-part series on the great Carthaginian general and giga-chad Hannibal Barker. If you've not yet listened to the first three shows, I recommend doing that before you hit this one. There is some crucial context in there and you might appreciate the journey. But if you're a goddamn maverick, I don't like you because you're dangerous. Then do whatever the hell you feel is correct. Maybe you're really pro-Roman and listening to these shows in reverse makes you feel like Rome is winning. So if that's your jam, you do you. Who am I to tell you how to enjoy your podcasts? But I'm just giving you a recommended listening order, and that is chronologically. And to be perfectly honest, we don't even get around to talking about Hannibal himself until the last five minutes of the second show. So actually, you know what? Listen in whatever order you see fit. It all mixes and matches pretty well. Choose your own adventure. You do you, boo. But as for this show, if I'm being perfectly honest, I really should have split this show into two parts. Because I don't know if you've checked the timestamp on this episode, but, well, you know, pop the kettle on now. We're here for the long haul. The thing is, I just couldn't find a good place to cut the show. There's no clear line of demarcation. So we're going to be doing everything in one marathon that damn near killed me to put out. If you've been wondering where I've been lately, I haven't had the online presence that I usually do. The fun little things we do on Patreon haven't been quite as frequent. Look at the size of this show. This thing damn near killed me. The word count is pretty much the same size as The Great Gatsby. Which sounds like a brag, and maybe it is, but I'm also desperately trying to validate how much work I put into this. This is the rambling of a man clawing at existential dread. Alright, enough of a pity party. Let's get on with this. Everyone buckle your seatbelts. Come hell or high water, we're going to finish this thing today. This really should have been two parts, but my stupid mouth made promises in the last show, and I feel honor bound to finish the Hannibal series in this show in one big hit. So here we go, fourth and final Hannibal Lecture. Delenda Est. History never repeats, but it does often rhyme. Vibe to the beat of History Go Time. Okay, so we've reached the halfway point of Hannibal's rampage through Italy. Remember in the first three shows, which were so, so long ago now, I said that this entire series was going to be about one little battle and then three big battles? Well, if you've been keeping score, we have had one little battle, Tychonus, and one big battle, Trebia. Now, we're going to be heading into the top card. And if you thought the Battle of Trebia was a good ambush, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is the real disco shit. If you'll recall, at the end of the last show, we dealt with the wash-up of the Battle of the Trebia, where Hannibal pulled what is, arguably, one of the greatest ambushes in the history of surprising people, by using a combination of elephants and bog monsters, and how this sent the supposedly unbeatable Roman army absolutely reeling. Throughout history, the Battle of the Trebia has been considered one of the great ambushes, and for most people, it would have been the greatest ambush ever, but Hannibal isn't most people. By Hannibal's standards, Trebia is just, you know, 3.4 Runtgen. Not great, not terrible. 
he has so, so much more left to give, and the Romans will not like any of it. Hannibal hasn't even started showing off yet. So Rome has just gotten a very stern dressing down by Hannibal Barker at the Battle of the Trebia. Rome went into that battle with a rather large army, and at the end of the day, Rome had a substantially smaller army, which is less than ideal from a Roman perspective, but Carthage are cheering. The Romans lost about 20,000 men at the Battle of Trebia. That is absolutely huge. That is a lot of dudes. For most of the peoples in history, 20,000 men is their army. That's the biggest army their nation can muster. For Rome, it was three quarters of one of their armies. If Rome is known for one thing, and Rome is known for a hell of a lot of things, but if Rome is known for one thing, it is the staggering number of crazy motherfuckers that they can convince to die in the name of the Roman Republic. 20,000 men. That's the Roman casualties from Trebia. 20,000 people killed, missing in action, or ending up leashed to Hannibal Barker's Mad Max-style spiked death elephant. That's a hell of a lot of people. And that wasn't even the entire army, that's just the people that didn't come home from that battle. There were survivors. For perspective, the Battle of Hastings, one of the most famous battles of all time, the Battle of Hastings had about 20,000 people there in total, from both sides. Everyone in and around the region of Hastings on the 14th of October, 1066, all of those people put together totaled to about 20,000 people. In total. And that is how many troops the Romans have lost in one afternoon, thanks to Hannibal. The Carthaginians, however, they did not have this problem. They'd come out of Trebia smelling like roses. They're doing just fine. Hannibal barely lost anyone at the Trebia. His casualties were about a tenth of what the Romans had lost, so roughly 2,000 men, and most of them were local Celts who were then quickly replaced by even more Celts. Celts are like a hydra. You cut one down, you get two more Celts. So Hannibal is doing pretty well for himself. Two armies met on the field that day at the River Trebia. One of them was utterly shattered, and the other was having an absolute ball. And that is where we left the last show. And if we continue to remember the last show, remember it had just hit winter in this period. That was a good place to end the story because everything stops in the winter, both of these forces included. Nobody does anything in the winter. For Hannibal's part, he took a Roman town, he captured it, and he hibernated for the winter, so he's all good. He's spending the winter months simmering and getting ready for his campaigning next season. Meanwhile, on the Roman side of things, after getting spanked at Trebia, the Romans fled in pretty much any direction they could to lick their wounds. And boy oh boy, do they have some wounds to lick. They'd lost at the Ticinus, so as a result of that they called up reinforcements and went in with a bigger army to reclaim their honour that they lost at Ticinus, and then they lost even harder at the Trebia. They compounded their failure. Rome have lost a hell of a lot of soldiers in the year 217 BCE 
and it's now starting to show. You can't lose this many people without it beginning to become a problem, even if you're Rome. However, because Rome is Rome, they do manage to keep finding troops. Rome's superpower is about to kick in once again. As I've said a lot in this series, and it always bears repeating, if Rome were a superhero, they would be Wolverine. Let's go, bub. They have an incredible healing factor. They come back from any injury. You can't kill them. Whenever Rome loses tens of thousands of people in one day, they just find more people. They just straight up find another army. If almost any other power in the ancient world loses 20,000 men in a single day, that is the end of that ancient power. They're gone. They're not even there anymore. That's the end of them. I don't care who you are. You're out. We redraw the maps. That place is called something different now. And what it used to be called before you lost 20,000 men, what it used to be called becomes a trivia question. And it doesn't matter how good the commander is here or how good the army is. If Alexander the Great had lost 20,000 men in a single battle, that's the end of Alexander the Great. He has no career. He is just Alex. But Rome, they just keep finding soldiers. They regenerate the army. Okay, we just lost a couple of armies. No big deal. We'll just make an even bigger army. What do you think about that, Hannibal? So over the winter of 217 BCE, they just keep finding more and more men to throw at Hannibal. But there's more than just that happening. Because meanwhile, back in Rome, the Romans are actually starting to debate about whether or not they should be worried about Hannibal. Believe it or not, this is actually the point where they actually started seeing him as a threat. Before then, he was a nuisance. Now, two armies later, they're thinking, mm, maybe we should deal with this Hannibal guy. As I keep saying, one defeat would have been enough to kill off most of the states in history. Rome just absorbs casualties like nobody else. Their approach to losing a large, consular army was to say, oh wow, we've lost 20,000 dudes in one afternoon. That's a bit less than ideal. We can only absorb those kind of casualties two, maybe three more times before it becomes a problem. So perhaps we should look down the line at whether or not this Hannibal clown is going to be a problem for us. You know, we, I said we can only do that a couple of times. So the Romans start calling up their reserves. They still have their standing armies, and there's a lot of them all over the Mediterranean, but just in case they lose tens of thousands of dudes again in one battle, they also start drafting random people like farmers to go and pick up a pilum and go off and fight Hannibal for the glory of the Republic. Blood for the blood god. Skulls for the skull throne. Maim, kill, burn! Maim, kill, burn! When in Rome, huh? Meanwhile, while all of this is going on, there is another crucial issue at stake, and that is, it is election season back in Rome. This is going to prove to be a decisive matter. Rome held elections for their consuls, the people in charge of Rome. The consuls got elected every year. And now, it is time for elections. This also means that the two previous consuls, Scipio and Sempronius, they're out. Their terms are over, no more consul for you. And in the case of one of those consuls, Sempronius Longus, it is a good thing that his term is up because it was his stupidity at the Trebia that cost the lives of 20,000 Romans. So he's not exactly popular back in the city. 
Just in case you're listening to this series out of order, and again, who am I to judge? Sempronius was the one in charge of the army that Hannibal baited into one of the best traps ever. Then, after being absolutely reamed by Hannibal, Sempronius ran back to Rome and then tried to lie to the Roman people about how he got utterly outplayed and his army was absolutely butchered. However, and unfortunately for Sempronius, it's kind of hard to hide the fact that you're missing an army, like you went out with an army of 40,000 men and now you're coming back with significantly less than that. That's kind of hard to sweep under the rug. So Sempronius got found out, and now he's facing a bit of blowback from Operation Clusterfuck. So even if he were eligible for re-election, and that's complicated, but just you can't have two consecutive terms, we might get around to it one day, but not today, even if Sempronius were eligible for re-election, he is not getting back in. He is persona non grata. And Scipio, since he had been stabbed in the butt, he isn't too keen to keep going either. So the Romans go to the polls, and they elect two new consuls. So it's 217 BCE, and now Rome have just elected two brand new consuls. As I just said, Scipio and Sempronius weren't voted out of office. Their terms were up. They were no longer eligible. Consuls had a term of one year, and it just happened to be that they both got their asses kicked at the very end of their terms as consul. So it's coincidental... But also, you'd like to think that they probably would have been voted out of power for losing two battles so comprehensively, misplacing tens of thousands of Roman soldiers, and losing the top half of Italy to a guy who would very much like to set Rome on fire. That's really not good for your re-election hopes. So they're actually kind of glad that they can't run again. Which means that there are two new consuls voted into the top job. And this, 217 BCE, this is not a great time to be elected to the top job in Rome. There's a hostile army rampaging through your home country. This is not a good time to be the leader. This would be like Eisenhower handing JFK the Bay of Pigs fiasco, except way, way worse. And if the Bay of Pigs happened in Miami instead of Cuba, and if it wasn't Eisenhower but G. Gordon Liddy who was president. I know I'm making some very, very niche cultural references there, and exactly two people are going to enjoy that way more than a marketable crowd, but I've made my bed, I have to lie in it. How'd it go? How'd the fucking Bay of Pigs go, Lloyd? One of the consuls who was elected was a guy named Gaius Flaminius. Remember that name, Gaius Flaminius. A lot of you have spoken to me, sometimes at length, about how you're amazed at how much of a dickhead the previous consul was, Sempronius Longus. And you're absolutely correct. Sempronius was a huge, huge dickhead. But holy shit, you haven't met Gaius Flaminius yet. Oh my god. You are going to long for the days of Sempronius Longus, because as much as Sempronius Longus was a hot-headed, arrogant, moronic fuckwit who did absolutely everything wrong, this new dude, Gaius Flaminius, he is going to make Sempronius look like Otto von Bismarck. Remember when we all made memes about how stupid George W. Bush was? I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. 
and we all thought that that was the absolute worst that politics could ever get. Too many OBGYNs aren't able to practice their their love with women all across this country. Before Donald Trump came along and said, here, hold my kefefe and the world burned. This is the same thing. Bing, bing, bong, bong, bing, bing, bing. Oh, he's talking about Trump. Oh no, he's gone woke. He's gone woke, people. Sound the woke alarm. Like I don't do this in every show. And then a bit referencing it in every show. And also, this is why I have always been so anti-Trump the entire time. There's the usual litany of reasons, sure. Grab him by the pussy. But also the historical ones. I'm historically literate. I have seen this happen. History doesn't repeat. It rhymes. And Trump, while a horrific monster, Trump is not new. He's singing to the same hymn book as the Romans. We have seen this all play out before with similarly terrible results. For instance, when exactly the same thing happened in 217 BCE with the election of Gaius Flaminius as consul of Rome. For reasons that 10 years ago used to strike me as very strange, the election of Flaminius is the Romans saying to themselves, well, you know how Sempronius was such a fuckwit and everything went horribly, predictably wrong? Well, how about we elect someone who is even dumber? That's gonna work. Which, like I say, 10 years ago I would have been puzzled about why Rome did that, But then here in Australia, we had Tony Abbott, who was objectively the worst prime minister in Australian history at that point. Tony Abbott has been caught out seemingly insulting a Queensland soldier killed in Afghanistan. And we replaced him with Scotty Scomo Morrison, who was somehow 10 times worse. Scott Morrison's office has put out uh, a statement. On numerous occasions, Mr. Morrison strenuously and repeatedly denied the assertion made by Mr. Dix whenever it was put to him in the media and in public. Can you read that first line again? (laughs) Mr. Morrison strenuously and repeatedly denied. See, I feel like strenuously and repeatedly, that's the act (laughs) of pooing yourself at the Engadine. (laughs) And here I have to tip my hat to Scotty from marketing. I am genuinely impressed. There's a part of me that is always in awe of Scott Morrison. It takes a truly impressive amount of dedication to be as staggeringly incompetent in so many areas as Scott Morrison was. All the way from running away to Hawaii during a national disaster in his own state, to illegally threatening poor people into killing themselves, to blatantly embezzling millions of dollars of public money to his corporate partners, to assaulting a pregnant woman, to illegally holding numerous portfolios in direct violation of the Constitution, to attempting a silent coup, to trying to distract you from all of this by using a radio program hosted by a shock jock to admit to shitting himself at a McDonald's. Truly an inspirational dedication to being the worst politician in the history of the nation of Australia. So, well played, Scott. We clashed lances at the Champ de Mars and you shat over everything. Well played. And it is exactly that situation in ancient Rome with the election of Flaminius. Well, except for the shitting himself at a McDonald's. Flaminius didn't shit his pants at Macca's, but pretty much the rest of it is exactly the same as Scott Morrison. On numerous occasions, Mr. Morrison strenuously and repeatedly denied the assertion made by Mr. Dix whenever it was put to him in the media and in public. Rome, in all of their wisdom, with the threat of Hannibal Barker at the gates of the Eternal City after having lost two armies 
in a row, back to back, with this dude bearing down on them to murder everyone, Rome, in their infinite wisdom, decided to elect the biggest fuckwit that they could find. And that fuckwit was Gaius Flaminius. Now, Gaius Flaminius was not an unknown quantity. People knew how much of a fuckwit he was. Gaius Flaminius had actually had a stint as a consul a few years earlier, and he was not good. It was quite bad, actually. Consuls couldn't be a consul for more than one year, but you could have multiple cracks at it. You could have Grover Cleveland-style non-consecutive terms. There's a whole bunch of rules that the Romans have, but I don't think anyone cares too much about consular law, so we'll leave it at that. So about 15 years before the whole Hannibal thing, Gaius Flaminius had already been a consul, and that term did not go well. Gaius Flaminius's term as consul was marked by a lot of controversy. And also, Flaminius had been in the political system for a long time. He had also served a very, very controversial term as Tribune of the Plebs. And as for Tribune of the Plebs, it will mean a lot if you know Roman politics, but it isn't really worth expanding on if you don't. The crucial context is that Flaminius was a long-term, multidisciplinary fuckknuckle. He has failed multiple times in multiple jobs in service of Rome, and they've decided to elect him again. It's like if Donald Trump served one term as president, and it went absolutely terribly, and then, in the face of an existential crisis and war with a foreign power, America then decided to elect Trump for a second time. Wait a second! Theophilus Thistler, the thistle sifter, is sifting a sifful of unsifted thistles. Seriously though, seeing current events in the world and having a knowledge of history is like watching a Marvel movie. The characters and places are different, but the story is exactly the same, and people get angry at you if you point it out to them. I'm not just editorializing here either, although I do that a lot, and you should probably know that by now. But when you go looking at the ancient Roman records for this period, people like Appian and Polybius and Livy and Silius Italicus, all of these Roman historians write about this period and they all say, Flaminius, oh yeah, that guy was a huge wanker. So it's not just me. Later Roman politicians like Cicero, which would have actually been pronounced Cicero, but... That probably makes a lot of you feel uncomfortable, so I won't do it anymore. Cicero would write a lot about how much of a dickhead Gaius Flaminius was. Cicero would write about how Flaminius had a natural talent for inflaming crowds and getting them to hate the same things that he hated. Flaminius was a great demagogue. The wall just got 10 feet taller. But there wasn't much between his ears. Donald Trump's very, very large brain. So if you're looking for an analogue for Gaius Flaminius, imagine if you mixed equal parts Donald Trump and Andrew Tate to make the worst possible human being you could think of. That's Gaius Flaminius. So the Roman people, with Rome facing an existential threat from the Carthaginian army in their backyard, they decided to elect someone who had proven to be a complete dickhead multiple times. When you elect a guy who runs on a platform of being a complete fuckwit, you can't be surprised when you get a complete fuckwit. 
China. Like I say, Gaius Flaminius has been in and around Roman politics for a few decades. He was tribune of the plebs for a while, which if you know what that means, great. If you don't, it's way too complicated to throw in here. So just know that it's an important political position, but not quite as important as consul, which he also was. So Flaminius had a stint as tribune of the plebs, and it went terribly. Without going into too much detail, his term as tribune was basically him proposing a stupid fucking law, and then the Senate would say, no, we're not doing that because it's really fucking stupid, and then Flaminius would either get voted down in shame or would find some loophole in the law that would let him have his way anyway. His idea then gets implemented, and then it turns out to be catastrophically bad, at which point everyone says, I told you so. Rinse and repeat for his entire term as Tribune of the Plebs. He was really not good at this. I need to be crystal clear, and you can check this on your own. I strongly urge everyone to do this. Absolutely every ancient source from this period, all of the ancient historians, all of them agree that Gaius Flaminius was a uniquely, an incredibly stupid person. There's one account by Cicero that tells the story of how Flaminius was at the rostrum in the Senate proposing a new law that he had, and this new law was so fucking stupid, and everyone's having their minds blown, and they're getting so angry at Flaminius for even proposing this law, that Flaminius' own father, his father, comes out of the crowd and drags Flaminius away by his ear which is a great story in and of itself. That's fucking awesome. Imagine a politician today being dragged away from a press conference by his ear by his own father. That's how bad Flaminius was. And it gets even better, this story. Because at this point, Flaminius was tribune of the plebs, and Rome had this rule. It was one of their cardinal laws that you could not touch a tribune of the plebs. You're not allowed to even touch them. Again, majorly complicated, and we'll go into it in great detail when I finally do the Gracchus Brothers show, but one of Rome's most important laws was that you were in no way allowed to touch a tribune of the plebs. You can't harm them in any way, you can't even touch them. So when Flaminius' father gets out of the crowd and drags Flaminius off by his ear for how stupid his ideas are, that is technically a capital offense. Gaius Flaminius Sr. has manhandled a tribune of the plebs. By Roman law, he should be put to death for this crime. But all of the Roman elites got together in a huddle, they had a chat, and they said, well, okay, this is kind of a complicated situation. It's Flaminius's father, and patriarchy is basically the whole crux of all of our laws, so that's in his favor, and also Gaius Flaminius is an absolute fucking dick nugget, and none of us wanted to continue talking to him, so he did do the state of Rome a huge favor. You know what? We're going to let it slide this time, and Flaminius's father got off scot-free for manhandling a tribune of the plebs because this guy was a fucking moron. So essentially, Gaius Flaminius was such a moron that Rome temporarily suspended most Maiorum laws protecting him. Now, I've painted this picture of Gaius Flaminius as the worst Roman who ever roamed, and he was, but here's the but. Flaminius had exactly one talent. He had one talent, and one talent only, but he made it count. 
He was a fantastic demagogue. Gaius Flaminius had a knack for making other people hate the people that he hated. He was great at whipping up a mob. Which, if that reminds you of anyone, well, this is why we study history. So in 223 BCE, about six years before Hannibal comes into play, Gaius Flaminius manages to convince enough of the voting Roman Republic that he isn't a complete moron, all evidence to the contrary, or at least he's the right kind of moron, and he gets elected to the top job, consul. And you're not going to believe this, it goes terribly. Ancient historians even go to great lengths to point out that there were bad omens from the gods saying, do not elect this guy. Like when Gaius Flaminius got elected, birds dropped out of the sky, rivers ran red, that kind of thing. That's what the ancient historians write. Which probably didn't happen, but I can't rule it out either. But if the gods are telling you not to vote for this guy, maybe don't vote for him. One of Flaminius's major policies as consul was that he brought in a law that allowed Romans to settle the lands of neighboring Gallic tribes. The Gauls got no say in this whatsoever. It was all totally up to the Romans. If you like the look of some Gallic land, well, that's your land now. What are the Gauls going to do about it, right? And there's a religious war being fought for the Gaza Strip as I record this show, so again, maybe we should study history. So this law, essentially, if you were an ally of Rome, but then a Roman decided that he would rather have your land for himself, then Rome could annex that land and tell you to go and fuck yourself. And then what were you going to do about it? Were you and your little Gallic buddies going to get together and fight the mighty Roman Republic and all of its thousands of legions? No. So eat a dick, your land is my land now. This land is your land. So the Romans were settling into ancient tribal Gallic land in a sort of manifest destiny, not caring what anyone in Gaul actually thought about it. And, if you can imagine such a thing, the Gauls were pretty pissed off about this. As all of you would be, I think, if a Roman came into your house and said it was his house now. So the Gauls began to fight back, and they rebel, and they go to war with Rome, and there are a whole bunch of small wars, little brush fire wars, all across the border between Rome and Gaul. So to paint the picture, there was no war, and then Flaminius, the crazy guy, he gets elected, institutes his trademark crazy plans, and now Rome is in a bunch of wars. And Flaminius is utterly incapable of understanding that this is entirely his fault. Oh, they're such warlike people, these Gauls. Why, all we did was annex their tribal land, and now they want to fight us? Wow, such savages. They're barbarians, these Gauls. They're so quick to anger. So the Gauls and the Romans did not get along. And largely, mostly, it's because of Gaius Flaminius. As I've said a lot in this series, the Gauls were angry people who hated everyone all the time, but it absolutely did not help that Gaius Flaminius went so far out of his way so many times to poke them with a stick. And it is going to come back to bite Rome later. Also, if you'll recall from the last show, and it's going to come up a lot here too, Hannibal is relying a lot on Gauls for reinforcements during this period. He needs Gauls to join him to bolster his forces, because he's not getting reinforcements. He's counting on the Gauls hating Rome enough to join him and fight Rome. 
So there's a not 0% chance that this entire war would never have happened if Gaius Flaminius wasn't a complete bellend for the previous 20 years. But he was, and that's the history we have. So that's Flaminius's first term as consul. The guy who was absolutely awful at everything was awful at everything and made everything a whole lot worse, and people seem somehow surprised by this. Flaminius got elected, started a whole bunch of wars, pissed off a bunch of Celts, and then went back to mouth-breathing in a villa somewhere. That was six years ago. Now, six years later, Hannibal Barker has a hostile army rampaging around the Italian countryside unchecked. He's just comprehensively beaten the Romans twice in open battle. And Rome are having elections to elect someone to deal with the Hannibal situation, and the Roman people decide, hey, you know who would be a great consul during this period of existential threat? The guy who always fucks up everything all the time. Yeah, let's elect him. Who's that fellow who always screws up and creates havoc? Gaius Flaminius. Yes, the way I figure it, he's due for a good performance. Gaius Flaminius was a demagogue. Some historians call him a rabble-rouser, others call him an orator, but he absolutely was a demagogue. He had one real talent in life, and that was a profound ability to stoke anger and hatred in the population and convince them that he was the only one who could lead them back to glory, even though he had demonstrated no competencies in any field ever. See, kids, this is why it's important to study history, because then you might be able to see fuckwits coming and deal with them, because the playbook isn't original. But it worked back then just as well as it works today. Flaminius was your stock-standard demagogue proto-fascist. Pin all the blame on an external people, get everyone angry, tell the voters that you're the only one that can bring the nation back to its former glory that may or may not have ever existed, and he's the only one that can deal with it. It's your Tony Abbott, it's your Peter Dutton, it's your Rishi Sunak, it's your Nigel Farage. Whenever someone says nobody saw Donald Trump coming, that's all bullshit because we all saw it coming. Plenty of us saw Donald Trump coming because he wasn't doing anything new, far from it. Rome was dealing with fuckwits like Trump 2,000 years ago, and they haven't updated the playbook since. The word fascist comes from Rome. Fascist comes from the fasces, which was a ceremonial stick carried by a consul's lictors, their bodyguards, which was kind of like the Roman secret service. Romans literally invented fascism. They did it with Gaius Flaminius, and fascists today are still singing from the exact same hymn book. But sure, go ahead and email me to tell me that I've gone woke. We're not doing well. Uh, let me call the Russians to help. So Rome has just elected as consul the biggest crumpet that they could find in the entire Roman Republic. However, this is why you have two consuls. Because one of them always turns out to be awful. There's a lot of downsides to the Roman two-consul system, but this is one of the benefits. You have two in case one of them is too good and decides to become a king, or, far more commonly, you have two because the people elected an absolute nimrod, as is the case here. And the other consul that gets elected in 217 BCE is a dude by the name of Gnaeus Servilius Geminus. 
who was the son of a guy who was a consul in the first Punic War? And you can guess what his name was, so most of the people in this story are Nepo babies. This Gnaeus Servilius Geminus guy doesn't really do much. He doesn't appear in the history all that much, so we're not really going to be hearing from him, but it is important to mention that there was another consul elected. This isn't all Flaminius-based. The story is going to go all in on Gaius Flaminius, because he's the guy that's going to do everything, and everything he does is wrong. But I don't want anyone thinking that Rome has just elected a king here on his own. They haven't. There are still two consuls. It's just that one of them doesn't do much, and that's Geminus. And I guess it does bring about an interesting philosophical argument about whether a consul that does nothing at all is better than a consul who does really dumb shit, and you can answer that question yourselves as we explore further into the story. So the two new consuls are elected, and the old consuls hand over power. Now Scipio, he still has his butt injury, so he's happy to give someone else a go, and Sempronius, if you'll recall, he lied about the whole Trebia disaster and then got found out, so nobody cares what he thinks anymore, he has to hand over the keys and walk away in shame. And Gaius Flaminius gets elected, and immediately, without pause or hesitation, gets the army together and marches off to confront Hannibal. It was that quick. He didn't pause at all. Congratulations, you're the new consul. Hey, wait, where are you going? You need to sign the forms before you go off to war. That's how it went down. I, Gaius Flaminius, do solemnly swear, and then as soon as he finishes his oath, he jumps on a horse and races off to fight Hannibal. We've had a lot of real gung-ho fuckwits in this story so far, and I know I've been building up this Flaminius guy as the gung-fuckiest of all of them, but there's the proof right there. He immediately runs off to fight Hannibal. Come on, you apes, who wants to live forever? The Roman historians are all very critical about this, because they're looking for reasons why this ends up going so badly, and the answer is, obviously, because Hannibal is very good and Flaminius is very bad, but the historians need excuses to make themselves feel better about being Roman. So all of the ancient historians mention how Flaminius didn't go through any of the usual traditions and rituals and ceremonies that come with being elected as a consul. He just jumped on a horse and went off to fight the god of war. He may or may not have actually bothered to check if any of the army was actually following him. He just ran off. The guy was that impulsive. We know nothing about their language, their history, or what they look like. But we can assume this. They stand for everything we don't stand for. Also, they told me you guys look like dorks. He is quite willing to fight Hannibal on his own. Which, if you're listening to this and thinking that that's a very stupid thing to do, you're not the only one. Pretty much every person in history who is not Gaius Flaminius thought that this was an incredibly stupid thing to do. And it is, and if you think that, you're correct, but you're not Gaius Flaminius. Shall I fire on them now, sir? Not yet, Kif. In the game of chess, you can never let your adversary see your pieces. So the ancients tell us that there was a bunch of bad omens when Flaminius was elected such as horses rearing up and throwing off their riders, birds flying in weird formations or flying backwards, and when Flaminius went to pick up the battle standard of the Roman army, their big flag that they carry into battle, he couldn't remove it from the ground. It's like some sword in the stone kind of shit. 
he goes to move the flag and it won't budge out of the ground. He can't pick it up. So that's some serious bad juju going on there. And the ancients all tell us about all of the bad juju. And this is all probably untrue. But it is worth noting that this is the second time, the second time that the gods themselves have said, do not put Gaius Flaminius in charge of anything. He's a dickhead. That's coming down from the gods. But the Romans know better, and they've put Gaius Flaminius in charge. I'm anticipating an all-out tactical dogfight, followed by a light dinner. Ravioli, ham, Sunday bar. The other consul, Gnaeus Servilius Geminus, he was less of a fuckwit, but he had no choice but to get his own army together and follow after Flaminius, because Flaminius has just charged off to fight Hannibal. Geminus is in a bit of a pickle here. Flaminius has run off to get himself killed and his army with him, so Geminus has to try and follow him and protect him from himself. So these two armies, headed by two brand new consuls, they take off outside the gates of Rome and head off to Trebia to engage Hannibal. A well-calculated move, straight out of Sun Tzu's classic text, The Art of War, or my own masterwork, Zap Brannigan's Big Book of War. But here's the thing. Hannibal is not in Trebia anymore. You see, the first two battles in the Second Punic War, the two from the last show, they took place right at the foot of the Alps when Hannibal had just exited the mountain pass. And then, after those two battles, everyone bunkered down for the winter. And while Rome spent the winter busy having elections, for his part, Hannibal had not been idle. Hannibal, because his entire life was spent being an absolute baller, he decided to go on another crazy suicide march. Because apparently that's his thing now, crazy impossible suicide marches. The march through the Alps is the most famous march that Hannibal does, but it's not the only one, and a lot of people don't know about the second one. So here, in 217 BC, he's going to do another suicide march, which is almost as ambitious and audacious as the first march, and it has pretty much the same effect. It is just as devastating. Because if there's one thing that's better than completely outflanking the Romans the first time, it's doing it again. So during the period where Rome were having their elections, Hannibal has spent that time force-marching his entire army through the Arno. And the Arno is an inhospitable swampland halfway between the Alps and Rome. Which, again, nobody thought to check if Hannibal was moving through the Arno because there's no way you can get an army through an inhospitable swampland. Nobody's going to cross that. Nobody's that crazy. Right? The Romans never bothered to check the Arno because nobody expects an army to march for four days and three nights non-stop through a bog to catch the Romans unaware. And they didn't stop that entire time. That is four days and three nights non-stop. Because they couldn't stop. They're wading through hostile marshlands. The water is always at least ankle deep at all times, so there's no way they can lie down and go to sleep because they drown, so they just have to keep pushing on the entire time. Four days and three nights without sleep through a swamp. Carrying all of your armor, your weapons, your provisions, everything you need to wage a war. That's insanity, right? But that's your boy Hannibal. Insanity is his bread and butter. 
At this point, the Romans should be assuming that whenever something is too crazy to do, Hannibal is already in the process of doing it, but they're yet to learn that lesson. It's still reasonably early on in the war. And this march is so crazy and so brutal that at some point during this excursion, Hannibal himself picks up a case of ophthalmia, which is a severe infection of the eyeball. He's got the worst case of pink eye ever. And this has been a cause of major conjecture for a lot of historians all throughout history. They've all had their theories about why Hannibal got an eye infection. But since germ theory wasn't going to be invented for another couple of thousand years, they were all completely wrong. It turns out that fucking around in swamps opens you up to all sorts of painful infections, and that's how he got it. Who'd have thought, right? So Hannibal now has agonizing pain in his eye. The histories don't agree on exactly what happened. All of them agree that he lost the use of that eye. He was effectively a cyclops from that point on. And most historians will tell you that he had one of those, one of those freaky milky eye deals like a Bond villain, and that's most likely the correct version. But you know how we roll here on this show. Most awesome version, however unlikely, is the correct one. So here we go. Here's the completely unbiased and totally factually accurate Polybius to tell us exactly how Hannibal lost his eye. Hannibal is on the warpath. He's kicking ass and taking names, just handing it to the Romans when he picks up an eye infection. Nothing too drastic, but not ideal. But he's just kicked the shit out of the Romans at the Trebia, so we need to press the advantage. Don't let that advantage go to waste, so Hannibal doesn't have time for an eye injury. I ain't got time to bleed. He just keeps going. He'll sort it out next time he has a chance to sit down. We're on a suicide death march here that's going to win us an amazing military advantage. Now normally what you'd do with a case of ophthalmia, what you would do would be convalesce and wait for things to clear up. You know, just take a bit of time off work, which could take months. Hannibal doesn't have months though. He's on the warpath. And not only is he on the warpath, he has decided to go on a crazy flanking maneuver through a massive bog for the better part of a week. So naturally, this eye infection, which was already bad, that gets a hell of a lot worse because who'd have thought spending time in a bog is bad for infections. So he says, I ain't got no time for an eye infection, and he just rips out his eye. Like Odin at the Well of Knowledge, but if Odin was played by Jesse the Body Ventura. Just rips out his eye, moves on like it's nothing. And while that is most likely very untrue, that is how I like to think of Hannibal Barker. Just an absolute boss. Ripping his eye out because he doesn't have time for an eye infection. Most likely he just lost the sight in that eye and he actually kept the eye in his head instead of tearing it out like an absolute gigachad. But I know how I like my stories. Dramatic. So that's the Polybius version. Which may or may not be true, but Polybius also says that Hannibal got the eye infection because an elephant pissed on him, so once again, it's up to you if you want to believe Polybius or not. And also, based on what I just said, I guess from this point on, Hannibal is canonically Jesse the Body Ventura, so whenever I say Hannibal from this point on, I need you to imagine that he's wearing a black beret and no shirt like Jesse the Body Ventura. A nitrogen infusion creates a mesmerizing cascade of microscopic bubbles. 
Also, I don't know how this show is going to turn out over the next couple of hours, but I know how my brain operates, and there is a not 0% chance that I will confuse Jesse the Body Ventura with Rick the Nature Boy Flair. So if Hannibal goes, woo, at some point, you know what my thought process was. And you'll notice that I said over the next couple of hours, so here's a good time to take a quick aside for some meta-analysis of the art of making history podcasts. The benchmark for this art form is, of course, Uncle Dan Carlin. He's the best. He's the GOAT. I do not dispute that. And I wouldn't be doing this show if it weren't for Uncle Dan paving the way, being the shoulders of giants that we stand on. And Uncle Dan Carlin is probably the most long-form of the long-form podcasters in this era of TikTok rotting people's attention spans. It's great to see somebody holding the banner for the long-form of the art. Dan Carlin puts out less than two episodes a year because of how much content he crams into each of those episodes. And don't get me wrong, nobody loves Dan Carlin more than me. But, let it just be said that everything I have spoken about in this show up until this point, everything up until this timestamp on the show, in Dan Carlin's series, he spent three minutes talking about this entire thing. The wash-up from the Trebia, the elections, the march through the Arno, Dan Carlin, the longest of the long form, spent three minutes on it in Punic Nightmares. He just says, oh yeah, the Romans elect a guy called Flaminius, and he rushes off and gets ambushed by Hannibal. That's it. That's all you get from Dan. Dan did three episodes on the Punic Wars. I am now well into a fourth. And on the very, very slim chance that Dan Carlin himself is actually listening to this show, I just want to say, Dan, I love you. I respect you. You are the reason that I do this. You are the wind beneath my wings. But look at me. Look at me. I am Dikalin now. Hey gang, it's future Demo here. Well, present Demo for me, slightly less past Demo for you. Not that you'd notice. Anyway, I've just been editing this show, which, god damn, that takes forever. Anyway, this whole section was kind of ripping on Dan Carlin for how many shows he puts out a year as a way to make myself feel better about my own lack of productivity. And uh, yeah, as I was editing the show, he puts out his Once in a Blue Moon next episode of Hardcore History. I presume he did that specifically to spite me. So anyway, full transparency there, I guess. Uh, This new episode of Hardcore History, though, is the first time that I have ever beaten Carlin to a topic. He's finally getting around to Olga of Kiev, which is something that I did over a year ago. So that's a first. Mark that one in your calendars. Take that, Dan. I got to mark it before you for once. The future is now, old man! Alright, where were we? Okay, so while Hannibal's doing this, Rome have elected their two new consoles, and one of them was a run-of-the-mill kind of guy, and one of them was a massive fucking dipshit, even more dipshitty than the last dipshit. And these two guys have raced off to fight Hannibal in open combat. But, they're expecting to meet Hannibal near the Alps close to the last place where they fought Hannibal, the River Trebia. Because if there's anything I've learned from studying Romans in this period, they do not have a strong theory of mind. They do not have object permanence. Once they stop looking at something, that object ceases to exist for them. So they expect Hannibal to be in some sort of stasis where he was the last time that they saw him. Like he's just going to do nothing while they fuck around with elections. The Romans really do not expect Hannibal to be so close to Rome at this point. 
This death march through the Arno has taken Hannibal very, very close to Rome, and Rome do not expect it. Once again, Hannibal has completely outplayed the Romans. To get a sense of the gravitas of what Hannibal's done here, this epic flanking maneuver, this is the ancient warfare equivalent of that scene from Aliens, where they realize that the aliens are in the walls. That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Hannibal is on the phone and the call is coming from inside the house. He is that close to the city of Rome. And that's the benefit of doing the crazy impossible suicide death march. Hannibal loses a lot of his army on this march through the marsh. It's hell, I can only imagine how bad it was. It's one of the most unpleasant experiences that I can think of. A lot of his army die, and a lot more of them pick up lifelong illnesses because of it. Even Hannibal Barker himself, he loses an eye. But it was worth it, because he has completely outmaneuvered the Romans. If you thought what he did at Ticinus or Trebia was special, that was kindergarten compared to this. In ancient times, when everything happens so slowly, suddenly being 300 kilometers closer to the enemy than he thought you were, that is essentially teleporting your army back then. If you're a Warhammer 40k kind of person, and there's a huge overlap between history podcasts and Warhammer 40k, I mean, go and ask Robert Evans, if you're one of those people, and I am, and I guess a lot of you are, what Hannibal has just done is basically the same thing as when the Space Marines explode onto the battlefield from dropships. It's the steel rain. This is incredibly hard to defend. For the Emperor! He has just appeared where he should not be. Hannibal's army actually outflanks both Roman armies and gets in behind them. They are further away from Rome than he is. This is huge. Massive. Not for the first time in this war, the battle is lost before anyone even draws their swords, before anyone is even aware that there is going to be a battle. The armies haven't even met yet, no lines have been drawn, no spears thrown, nobody has even made camp, and Hannibal has already won. Now it's just a matter of by how much. The Romans, of course, they don't see it this way, but they're about to get another very costly lesson in just how good Hannibal Barker was at conducting a war. Not only are the Romans completely outflanked and surprised, Hannibal is between them and Rome. Hannibal's army is further south, so he's cut off their supply lines and their reinforcements. Both of these Roman armies are going to be fighting with exactly what they already have. They're going to get no support from Rome. No supplies, no reinforcements, no more food, no more weapons, no more troops, just whatever you already have. And again, this is textbook art of war stuff. Seriously, Sun Tzu talks about supply lines before he talks about actually fighting. Logistics is the second chapter of the art of war. That's how important it is. He talks about that before he talks about battle. And here, the Roman logistics are shredded before they even take the field. The Romans have lost, they have lost big, and they just don't realize it yet. They are, to quote the movie Snatch, Who's proper fuck nerding? So because both consuls have headed north to take on Hannibal, there are actually two Roman armies camped here, at a place called Trasimene. 
occasionally called Trisemenus. They're both the same place. I read it first as Trisemony, so I'll call it Trisemony. So when you're thinking of Romans here, it's not one huge Roman army. It's two separate, equally sized consular armies. Half of it went to one consul and half of it went to the other. It's one of their checks and balances things. These armies are actually very big as far as armies go in the ancient world, but there are definitely two of them. It's not one big blob of men, it is two separate consular armies. It's going to be important later on. And these two armies aren't exactly far apart, insofar as two large armies can actually be close together without becoming one really big army, but they aren't consolidated. They are still two separate armies. They haven't Voltroned into one massive army yet. They're still sticking to that, maybe this guy's going to be a king and we should stab him in the back mentality that Romans are so famous for. And again, we come back to our old mate and friend of the pod, Sun Tzu. And I mean, he did write the book on war, so he's a good source for this. Well, actually, Karl von Clauschwitz wrote the book on war, which is also full of stuff that the Romans wish they'd read before this battle. But right now, we're going to be talking about The Art of War by Sun Tzu. Or my own masterwork, Zap Brannigan's Big Book of War. One of the big lessons in The Art of War is divide and conquer. You treat war like a mathematics problem. Instead of solving one big problem, you break it down into smaller problems that you can solve. Or, in this case, you break an army down into smaller armies and you crush two little armies instead of one big army. And a lot of the art of war is spent telling you how to get one big army into smaller armies that you can take on individually. And luckily for Hannibal here, instead of having to devise a way to split up this massive Roman death ball of an army, the Romans had done this to themselves. They had split their own army in half. They divided and conquered themselves because a few hundred years ago, there was a king they didn't like. So now they're at a massive strategic disadvantage because a couple of hundred years ago, Tarquin Superbus was a bit of a dick. Yeah, I said Superbus instead of Superbus. You're obviously not subscribed to the Patreon where I make that joke and it's very funny. So the Roman army has divided itself. Sometimes it is genuinely surprising that Rome ends up conquering most of the world and becoming the vaunted Roman Empire because at the start they were really, really bad at war. So Hannibal looks at all of this and he says, oh, well, that, that's good. That's easy. I don't have to divide. I just need to conquer now. I've They've done half my job for me. And then he calls in his spies. Remember, Hannibal has really good spies. He has spies in the Roman camps who can report everything back to him. Rome has no secrets from Hannibal at this point. And for their part, the Romans, they have zero spies anywhere because there's a lot of things they're really bad at, and intelligence is one of them. And again, I don't know how they end up becoming the mighty Roman Empire. So Hannibal says to his spies, Alright, talk to me, Goose. What are we facing here? I know Rome has just had an election, and there's two new consuls in charge. What do I need to know about them? Give me a quick dossier on their consuls. Who are they? What are they like? Are either of these guys a complete fuckwit that I can operate like a puppet? just like I did with Sempronius? Or did they learn from the spanking I gave them and then not elect a complete dipshit? And his spies say back to Hannibal, they say, Boss, you're not going to believe this, but they have, in fact, elected an absolute muppet 
just like Sempronius. Actually, this Flaminius guy is like Sempronius on steroids. You're going to love him. Flaminius is a hair-trigger psychopath on a good day. You can probably send this guy into a blind rage with a tweet. And Hannibal says, oh, goody gumdrops. And he starts trying to goad Flaminius into a direct battle before he can consolidate with the other consular Roman army there. And this next period in history is basically that scene from the Warriors. It's Hannibal standing outside their camp with three bottles on his fingers going, Flaminius, come out to play. And what happens is fucking awesome. This is the greatest example of baiting an imbecile for 2,000 years. Right up until Trump divulges nuclear secrets to Kid Rock on a boast, which is another of those sentences that I never thought I'd be saying when I was a kid back in school. The President of the United States of America is going to divulge nuclear secrets to a fading pseudo-rapper. So Hannibal gets to work. Alright, how am I going to goad this Flaminius cat into doing something stupid? So Hannibal gets his cavalry to start chevauchets all over the Roman countryside. I've been doing these Punic shows for a long time now, and I can't remember if I ever actually explained what a chevauchet was, so if you will indulge me, I will quickly fill people in. And if this is your first show, then you'll be glad for it. And one of the rules of doing anything artistic is to always remember that it might be someone's first show, so you're in luck. A chevauchet is a horse raid. Chevauchet itself is actually French for horse charge, and basically it just means the practice of taking a bunch of your cavalry, so soldiers on horseback, and riding around and burning and pillaging the enemy countryside. So instead of using your cavalry to fight the enemy, you use the speed of the cavalry as an asset to go around doing damage to enemy infrastructure and morale. So you'll ride into a village, maybe kill a couple of guards, burn down the barn where they keep their food supplies over winter. You do whatever damage to whatever the village does for that enemy nation. So if it's a lumber village, you might smash up their saws. If it's a fishing village, you might slash all of their nets. And then you quickly ride off before anyone can come and reinforce that position. That's a chevauchet. Burn and the countryside. Burn and the peasants. Basically, you're striking out of the blue, causing a bunch of mayhem, and you are gone before anyone even knows that you were there. It's terrifying to deal with. The idea is to sow panic and terror and rage in the enemy. It's not actually about inflicting real damage on the enemy. I mean, that's a bonus if you get it. It's about telling the enemy that nowhere is safe. It's a morale thing. You don't have anywhere in your kingdom that is safe from one of our raids. You could die at any time. And chevauchets as a tactic have existed since the time humans on horses wanted to kill humans who weren't on horses, but they were a major part of the tactics during the Hundred Years' War between the French and the English, which is where they entered the popular consciousness. So that's why the term is chevauchet, a French word, and not something Latin or Greek. So it's not something the French came up with, or the English in this case. Hannibal is doing this in 216 BCE. It is not a novel concept, but the word we have is French. Chevauchet. 
So Hannibal's idea is to bait the Romans into doing something stupid because he's sending all of these chevouches out to random points in the Italian countryside, people who are Roman or allied with Rome. And these horse raids weren't really trying to steal supplies or kill people or burn down infrastructure. They're not really trying to accomplish anything specific. All they were doing was riding into villages and setting fire to everything just to piss off Flaminius. That was the entire objective. Make Gaius Flaminius upset. Anything else is a bonus. The whole idea is to try to goad Flaminius into doing something stupid. And remember, Flaminius is a very stupid man. Get ready, everybody. He's about to do something stupid. So you're trying to get Flaminius to say, Oh, how dare this foreign devil, this Carthaginian scum, come into Rome and start burninating the Roman countryside. Why, this will not stand at all. I must do something about this for my Roman pride and honor. That's the idea. And Flaminius is feeling this. He is burning because of these chevouches. It literally hurts him to have to watch this. He very, very badly wants to ride out and strangle Hannibal Barker to death with his bare hands. The strategy of goading Flaminius is working. He is seething. But, at this point, Hannibal has a reputation as an ambusher. So Flaminius doesn't take the bait. As much as Flaminius might be seething with rage, he might be boiling with pent-up frustration, he doesn't do anything about it because this, all of this goading, is obviously Hannibal doing a Hannibal. There's a trap here somewhere. We just haven't seen it yet. So the Romans are being very cautious. They don't engage Hannibal because it's obvious that Hannibal is planning something. So Hannibal has to ramp it up a notch. Mm, he's not responding. Proceed to level two antagonism. All right, horsey raids aren't working. How about this? Let's try this to try and piss off Flaminius. Hannibal gets his army together and then he puts that army into parade formation, and he marches past the camp of Flaminius. His army is in parade formation. They are marching in a parade right past the Roman camp, like a couple of hundred meters away. You could probably throw something at him at this point and maybe hit him. And Hannibal's army, they're not arrayed for battle or anything. They're not ready for combat. They are marching in parade formation. They're just out for a stroll. They're making theatre of it. And meanwhile, they are shouting mocking taunts at the Romans as they go past, and they were actually walking past close enough for the Romans to hear them. Things like Flaminius is a weak dog, and Flaminius has a massive tumescent cock like a barbarian, not a small, civilized dick. Shit like that that will absolutely rile up Flaminius. Nobody wants to be called a big-dicked barbarian back then. So Flaminius needs to prove how small his dick is. He is enraged. He is good to go. And seeing this, he orders his army to get out there and fight. It is time to take the fight to Hannibal. But his advisors, his generals and his proconsuls, they belay that order. They tell the troops to stand down. And then they take Flaminius aside, and they sit him down, and they say, All right, look, you're the new guy, so you don't know how this plays out. But Hannibal 
is a motherfucking genius at the art of war. What he's doing here is obviously a trap, and not only are you going to die horribly, you're going to get all of us killed in the process, so do not take the bait. You sit the fuck down. However, Flaminius was, as we've established by now, and you'll see why we needed to establish it, Flaminius was a complete fuckwit. Not only that, but the core of his army were the 10,000 men who had survived the Battle of the Trebia. Rome was not an army that was used to losing at all, and these soldiers were seething with the stigma of having failed the Republic, of having lost a battle and brought shame not only to themselves or their families, but to Rome. So they are itching for payback. They were super keen to go out and fight the Carthaginians and avenge their honor. And apparently the thought that things may go exactly the same way that they did the last two times, or actually even worse, that thought never actually occurred to these guys. They seemed to be certain that this time they were going to win because, I don't know, reasons. So these 10,000 veterans are all calling for a battle and to take on Hannibal right now, and Flaminius, as consul, he pulls rank and he overrides his advisors. And he says, all right, I've got to do it for the boys. And it's all about the boys. And now it is on. Because it is all about the boys. So Flaminius gathers his army together, the boys. And they chase down the parading Carthaginians. Now, can anyone tell me why this might be a problem? That's because the Romans had chased Hannibal at Ticinus and lost. And then they chased Hannibal again at the Trebia and lost. But, hey, third time's the charm, boys. There's no way that this is an ambush. In we go. And as it would turn out, not only was this indeed an ambush, it would actually be the greatest ambush in the history of warfare. It still is. As in... More than 2,000 years later, we have still never seen anything like what happens next. It is still the best ambush in history. If you'll recall from the last show, Hannibal, he likes to do his scouting personally. He likes to get out there and get the lay of the land himself so he knows how best to exploit it. And that's exactly what he'd done before he started his little march past the army and goad Flaminius into a trap thing. And the place that Hannibal had found was the northern shore of the Lake Trasimene. And he plans to take the Roman army on a merry stroll right into this kill zone. To give you the lay of the land, there are two Roman war camps in one place near the Lake Trasimene, and a couple of kilometers away, just a bit further away from them, is the Carthaginian war camp. And between these two camps, there was a stretch of road running alongside the Lake Trasimene. It's basically just a dirt road. Back then, it would have been about the size of a four-lane highway. And on one side of this highway, there's the lake which is a shallow but very sprawling lake. It's very big but very shallow. And on the other side of this highway, there's a bunch of rather steep rolling hills. And if you remember the last show, you'll remember what Hannibal can do with hills. And if you have remembered that fact, well played to you, you are way in front of the Roman army at this point who have absolutely forgotten what happened a couple of months ago. 
So if you were to jump on Google Maps and look at Trisimony today, that's not how it looked back then. The water has actually receded quite a fair bit in the admittedly 2,000 years since that battle. It's pretty much the same situation as Thermopylae. So if you actually look at pictures of Trisimony, that's not how it looked. Back then, it was a very thin strip of land with a huge lake on one side of it and a bunch of hills on the other. And absolutely everything about this location just screams kill zone. And the Romans should have been collectively shitting themselves, but we've established by now that they are not wise in the ways of war. At least not yet. Because there is no way that the guy who is really good at ambushes is going to ambush us from that spot that is absolutely perfect for ambushes. Now, that's a bit too on the nose. That's not going to happen. So Hannibal has a bunch of people waiting in the hills. He has his elite cavalry roaming in behind these hills, and he has a bunch of his foot soldiers leading the Romans on a merry chase along this little avenue, this four-lane highway on the shore of Lake Trisimony. Like I say, everything about this screams, this is going to be a huge ambush. But the Romans, who were all a bunch of hotheads, led by their chief hothead, they didn't seem to notice that this looked exactly like prime Velociraptor territory, and they just continued chasing the Carthaginians like a bullet of red scarf. And I don't know how this happened, because... Like I say, it's a four-lane highway dirt road. On one side is this vast, sprawling lake that you can't cross, and on the other side, there's a bunch of hills with trees on it that you could very easily hide soldiers in. Why are Rome charging into this valley that is very, very obviously a death trap? But charge in they did. All because Hannibal made fun of them. So Hannibal has positioned troops in kill spots all along the hills. These troops are hidden. You can't see them from the base of the valley. Rome probably would have found them if they'd bothered to send any scouting forces up to the top of the hills and had a quick look around, but Rome aren't good at doing this. So Hannibal has this small core of troops that had just made fun of Flaminius's dick. They're running along this dirt road towards the other end of the valley. They've gone and riled up the Romans, provoked them into an attack, and now they're running back to base camp. And again, this is a standard Hannibal battle tactic. This is exactly what he did at the Trebia. You charge at the Romans, get them all riled up, and then make it look like you're running away when you're actually positioning the enemy for a butt-stabbing. But the Romans, they absolutely refuse to learn this lesson, so they're all fiercely chasing after the Carthaginians, because in the Roman mind, the Carthaginians are all cowards who are too scared to actually get in a toe-to-toe fight with a proper Roman legion. So that's why they're running away, because they're all craven dogs. And if you're thinking, hang on, haven't the Romans already been wiped out twice back-to-back in exactly the same situation? Yes... Yes, they have, dear listener. But third time's the charm, right? So like I said, this valley runs between the two war camps. At one end, you've got the Roman camp, and at the other end of the valley was the Carthaginian war camp. So this is obviously the destination for those Carthaginian troops. That's where they're running back home to. 
and the pursuing Romans, because they're clever, they deduce that that is where Hannibal's troops are running. They're going to go to the safety of their war camp, because Hannibal is a coward who doesn't know how to fight, and is very scared of Romans, and obviously not somebody who has twice demonstrated that he's really good at ambushes. Look, I am a lot further down this rabbit hole than most people who aren't actually historians, and I am just struggling to fathom just how fucking stupid Rome is in this period, and that these are the same people who will conquer the world, but here we are, they have fallen for the same thing a third time. Now, it needs to be said that there are a couple of alternate theories that exist for this, beyond that everyone commanding a Roman legion at this point was an absolute moron. Historians have come up with other theories, and one of them is by the historian who I use a lot as a source, Adrian Goldsworthy. He has a theory that Hannibal had planted rumors within the Roman camp that he was actually fleeing south. He was running away. So everything the Romans actually believed. Hannibal planted this rumor that he was trying to run south to the coast of Italy so that he could get onto a ship and go back to Carthage. And the rumor was that he was running out of supplies and his troops were ready to defect and desert. And so Hannibal, knowing that everything was about to be lost, he was trying to quickly fight his way home before the Romans could close in around him. And Goldsworthy puts this theory forth that Hannibal put the word out to encourage Flaminius to chase him and chase him into this ambush without questioning things. And that does explain the actions of Flaminius. And it is a decent theory. It certainly has merit. And it is certainly something that a military genius like Hannibal Barker would do. That's for sure. But if the simplest explanation is the correct one, then Gaius Flaminius was just a massive fucking smeghead and we're giving Hannibal way too much credit here. You should never underestimate the predictability of stupidity. I brought up Goldsworthy's theory to give you some more nuance, because history is obviously more shades of grey than black and white, but my position, in contrast to Goldsworthy, is that Gaius Flaminius was just too fucking stupid for Hannibal to bother with any of this intrigue and guile stuff. Hannibal would have just said, oh, yep, typical Roman moron, I know how to deal with this situation, let's go. So Hannibal's bait force, because they've got a head start, for a lot of this next part, the army is actually going to be out of line of sight. So the road wasn't actually a straight shot, it curved and meandered through these hills, so you couldn't always see the Carthaginians that you were chasing. So once the bait has made it out of sight, Hannibal has most of these troops run off into the hills or go and wade into the marshes and hide there. All of these troops that were baiting the Roman army into an attack, they fade off into an ambassade. And again for effect, these are very obvious ambush positions that were all over the place. There is no way that this does not scream ambush. But not all of the troops go into an ambush formation. Hannibal makes sure he keeps a small cadre of his army within sight of the Romans at all times, to give them something to chase, like a greyhound. And the job of these troops is to run all the way back to the Carthaginian war camp and make a whole bunch of noise while they're there. So they're going to run in, they're going to make noise, they're going to bash pots together, and they're going to light a whole bunch of fires, and they're going to play Despacito really loudly to make it look and sound like the entire Carthaginian army is camped there. And not that the entire Carthaginian army is not there, but hiding in the trees in an incredibly obvious ambush position. 
So these guys are going to run to the camp, make a whole lot of noise, make it look like the camp is full, but more importantly, they're going to leave a whole bunch of footprints in the mud of this dirt road leading to the Carthaginian camp. Just in case Gaius Flaminius didn't get the point, which is a legitimate question. Now, credit where due, I'm a hard man, but I'm a fair man, so credit where due, all of this proved to be a little bit too on the nose even for Gaius Flaminius. The guy was a massive dickhead, sure, but even he sees that something is not right here. Something's up. Even the impressively stupid Flaminius can see that this is a trap. But Flaminius being Flaminius, he was correct for all the wrong reasons. Flaminius has somehow managed to spot that he was being led into a trap. But, impressively, he managed to draw exactly the wrong conclusion at every single juncture along the way. It's honestly kind of impressive just how stupid this guy is. Like, you have to actually work at it to be this dumb. There is a certain charm to it, a commitment to the bit. So Flaminius saw all the smoke and heard all of the noise coming from the other side of the hill at the end of the valley where the Carthaginian war camp was. So he says, Aha! That's it. That's the Carthaginian camp they're going to. Hannibal is trying to lure us to his camp where he'll have things like ballistae and scorpions and catapults set up to bombard us. So no, no, no. There's no way we're going to be walking into that. Hannibal must have pre-sighted this valley for his catapults so that they'll be able to shoot us accurately the second we walk into line of sight. <laughs> no, we're not doing that. Haha, <laughs> you have been outplayed, Hannibal. I have seen through your ruse. I will not be walking into your kill zone. And Flaminius thought that because that's what the Romans would have done. If it were the Romans who were setting the trap instead of Hannibal... What they would have done would have been to lure the enemy back to the Roman camp, and in range of all of those impressive Roman siege weapons that they always had. Roman armies, for all of their obvious flaws in this story, they actually had a few very impressive strengths, and one of the most impressive was that they actually built a fort every time they encamped for the night. So every night, not only did they make camp, they put together a functional fort with walls and siege weapons as defense. Roman camps were impregnable. And a common tactic for the Romans was because they were so safe inside these admittedly very impressive forts that they knocked up every night, they would lure armies to the fort where they could just bombard them with scorpions and ballistae and whatnot. Hey everyone, uh, I feel like I should expand on these weapons here because maybe not everyone listening is as autistically interested in ancient warfare as I am. So a scorpion is like a big crossbow that's mounted on a tripod. You use it like you would a mounted machine gun today as an area defense weapon. And a ballista is a crossbow that's even bigger than that. It's a crossbow the size of a catapult. You would have seen him in Gladiator if you watched that movie. Okay, back to where we were. It's a proven Roman strategy, and it was a good strategy. It worked on a lot of people, but it's a Roman strategy. That's what the Romans would have done. Hannibal Barker, as I think we can all agree by now, he is the opposite of a Roman. So he's not going to do what the Romans would have done. But the Romans, being Roman, they don't have theory of mind, 
they can only see how they themselves would have set a trap. They just seem to be just incapable of being able to think like somebody else. This is how Rome would have done it. Ergo, that's how everyone does it. So Flaminius, as commander, he would have lured the enemy into range of the big guns. So obviously, that's what Hannibal's doing. And since Flaminius has no intention of playing directly into Hannibal's hands, he orders his army to halt. Hold position. Stop. Right in the middle of the valley. So instead of charging to the Carthaginian war camp and our dooms, we're going to stop and make camp right here. Because reasons. In the middle of the horribly suspicious Valley of Doom. Meanwhile, Hannibal has left a skeleton crew of skirmishers back at the war camp at the end of the valley. And like I said, their entire job is to sell the illusion that the entire Carthaginian army is there in this camp and not out in the trees ready to ambush Romans. So these guys are building heaps of fires and they're building them up really big so they give off a lot of light and smoke and look like there's a lot more people than there are actually there. They're making a bunch of noise, they're playing music, they're hammering bits of armor and sharpening swords. They're trying to sell the fiction that the entire army is in this camp and not secretly moving into the trees overlooking the place where the Romans have decided to make camp for the night. And all of this noise and sound and fury that the Carthaginians are making in their camp, it does something else too. It gives the Romans something to aim at. A goal. Just over there, over yonder, in the distance, at the end of the valley, that's where the Carthaginians are. Just a couple of kilometers away. Look, you can see it. You can see the smoke from their campfires. Those guys that beat us last time at the Trebia, that humiliated us, that shamed us, that slaughtered tens of thousands of us and pillaged our villages and burninated our countryside, those guys are just over yonder. They're just around the corner, and first thing in the morning, we're going to rise up early and take our vengeance. Soon, lads. Really soon, we will have our revenge. Now, throughout history, the Romans have a bit of a reputation for being a very good marching army. If you know your history even slightly, you'll know that the Romans were really good on the march. Hell, imperial measurements are based on Roman marching armies. A mile is literally a thousand paces of a Roman army, a milius passus, thousand steps. Roman armies are really good at marching. That is, while they're on the move from one place to another, they do it very well. They march in good order, everyone is in formation, they have people ready to fight at a moment's notice just in case they get ambushed. And they have screening forces looking for threats before they can happen. It is very hard, historically, to take a Roman army by surprise. And even if you do, they're very well drilled in how to handle that situation. So even if you were to ambush a Roman army on the march, they recover very quickly and get into formation into their maniples and they lose very little of their cohesion and they are an effective fighting force within seconds of being ambushed. Friend of the pod, Julius Caesar, will actually get ambushed a couple of times in his career and his army manages to turn them into victories. There's one case in the Gallic campaign where Caesar's army gets completely ambushed on the march and the Celts end up losing because the Romans just instantly drop into a battle formation. They don't get rattled at all, they just go from marching to fighting in a couple of seconds. So the Celts didn't really ambush them at all, they didn't have that element of surprise. 
Gaius Marius does it a couple of times. Sulla's really good at it. And that's just the Roman Republic. Imperial Roman troops are even better at it. Roman armies are hard to effectively ambush on the move, and they have a reputation for it in history. But the thing is, all of those guys that I just mentioned, they all come later. There's a reason that the Romans have a reputation for being a good army on the march. And that reason is because they get absolutely pantsed right here at the Battle of Trasimene. The Romans are about to get ambushed so hard that it creates a genetic memory that forces them to get really good at being ambushed. That is how badly they're about to get ambushed here. So the Romans are just casually wandering into this valley. There's a hardcore element up front, probably the veterans from Trebia, and these guys are loaded for bear. They are armed and ready. They're the van. They're the tip of the spear. These are the guys that are looking for a fight. They are hungry for it. They are so keen to lock swords with the Carthaginians and get the party started. So their job is they're going to charge straight in, engage the Carthaginians, and then everyone else is just sort of going to catch up as the day goes on, and together they will steamroll their way to victory, because Rome has a much bigger army at this point. And that's the plan. But ancient armies do not operate quickly. It's impossible. An ancient army is 30, 40, 50,000 men. That's a lot of dudes. So the column of troops in an army can stretch back multiple kilometers. So while the guys at the very front of the army are spoiling for a fight and they're ready to go, they are super keen, it gets more and more lax the further up the line you go. And the guys at the back... They're taking it easy because it's going to be hours before they see any combat today. Remember, these lines are several kilometers long. Think about how long it would take you to casually stroll somewhere for a couple of kilometers. It's at least half an hour, so they know they've got at least half an hour to mentally prepare for being in a battle. It's going to take them that long to get there. And the guys in the middle, they're going to get plenty of warning that a fight's going on because the guys up the front... They're going to get the party started, and fighting is noisy, so obviously that's going to alert the people that are further back in the line. So the guys in the middle, they're pretty casual. They're going to know when the fight's happening, and they'll be able to brace themselves for it. And the guys at the very back, they have no cares at all, because like I said, it's going to take them a couple of hours to actually get to the battlefield, even if the battle started right now. So the, most of the Roman army is just sort of ambling along. Nobody's expecting a fight. And besides, even if an ambush were to happen, I mean, it's not like Hannibal's going to ambush you, right? But even if it were to happen, it's not like an entire army is going to get ambushed at the same time, right? You can't ambush one entire army with another entire army. I mean, that's, that's impossible, right? But Hannibal and Impossible have never actually met. They wouldn't even know what each other looked like. Hannibal and Impossible do not get along. For about the fifth time in his military career, Hannibal Barker is indeed going to do the impossible. Now, Hannibal is going to do his usual Hannibaling here at the Battle of Trasimene, and you know what that entails, all of the awesome God of War stuff that he does, but he also gets incredibly lucky here too. And... He didn't really need luck. The guy is just brilliant when it comes to warfare. So 
adding luck on top of this just starts to feel really unfair for the Romans. But he was indeed very lucky, and that means that this battle is going to go from being a tense fight that would have heavily favoured Hannibal, but there's still a little bit of room for an upset victory. It goes from that to an absolute slaughter that is going to make the history books. As luck, Lady Fortuna would have it, good luck if you're Carthaginian and terrible luck if you're a Roman, on the day of the battle, there happened to be very heavy mists that day. This battle is taking place early in the morning on the shores of a very large, very shallow lake. Things get very misty. And an argument can be made, and has been made, that Hannibal would have been factoring that in when he chose the battleground. He knows that lakes get misty, and he would have hoped for it, prayed for it even, but he couldn't have counted on it being misty. So he got lucky. It happened to be very misty. And these mists slowly crept up from the lake, and they start to engulf the Romans who were camped in the valley, who were just getting up bright and early that morning to go and take the fight to the Carthaginians. They are now fully enveloped in the dawn mist. They couldn't see shit. Visibility was already very poor because of the whole terrain that Hannibal had chosen for this ambush. There were hills surrounding them, so the Romans can't see anything beyond those hills. But now, they can't even see that. All they can see is mist. They are blind as a bat. And with these mists creeping up off the lake and enveloping the entire Roman army, the Romans are not going to know that they're under attack until people start dying. It's like that scene in the second Jurassic Park where they're cutting through the wheat field and one by one people start dropping to velociraptors, only in this case, instead of velociraptors, it's naked Frenchmen, which is an equivalent level of horrible. The ancient historians talk about how Hannibal sounded the charge on his war horns and then the army rushed on in and they enveloped the Romans as soon as the mist had taken them, but modern historians think that this is bullshit. And I happen to agree, because this doesn't seem like a Hannibal kind of play. He's not going to announce himself. If you've got this level of ambush going on, if you have this advantage, you don't squander it by blowing a trumpet and letting everyone know you're there. You do things on the quiet right up until you need to go loud. That's how Task Force 141 would have done it. That's how Hannibal would have done it. So I'm inclined to believe that there was no loud signal to attack. This all happened relatively quietly. Hannibal's army snuck on down from the hills ever so quietly until they were within stabbing range of the Romans and then they went loud. So the first time the Romans know that they're in combat is when soldiers start to come out of the mists directly in front of them, literally about a meter away from their faces, and these soldiers start to try to bury an axe in Roman heads. That is the first time the Romans would have known that they were in a battle. And from that point on, the actual combat would have made quite a ruckus. Swords clashing on armor, people screaming, people dying, combat's very noisy. And then the Romans themselves would have sounded their own horns to try and rally their forces and let everyone know that, hey, Hannibal's pulled off yet another ambush. But they would have lost 
thousands of men across the entire length of the line in the first couple of minutes of battle because nobody knew that they were in a battle as the Carthaginians fell on them out of the mist like ghost soldiers at the end of Return of the King. The Carthaginians, and I keep saying Carthaginians, but they were mostly Spanish and Celts at this point, but they're being led by a guy who is nominally Carthaginian, so the Carthaginians, Hannibal's army, has ambushed the entire length of the Roman line. Every single part of this Roman army is currently under attack. All of it, at once. They are hitting Flaminius's army everywhere at once. There is not one single section of this entire army that is not instantly under attack on the morning of this battle. Gaius Flaminius had started his day expecting for his elite van to engage Hannibal right on daybreak at the very front of this column, with the rest of the army running in as reinforcements. Instead, what he gets is absolutely every single soldier in his entire army under attack at exactly the same time. There is nobody not currently engaged in battle. This is, to date, to right now, the only historical example of one entire army being ambushed by another entire army. Before the Romans even had any idea what was happening that morning, Hannibal was hitting them everywhere. Meanwhile, Hannibal's exceptional cavalry is looping around to the other end of the valley that the Romans are occupying, and they cut off any chance of retreat. If you feel like running, you're going to have to fight your way through the best horse soldiers in the world at the time, so that's not happening. The Roman army is trapped in this valley, between the hills and the Lake Trasimene. The meat of Flaminius's army gets hit by the Celts. And remember that I'm using Celt and Gaul interchangeably in these shows. They're the same thing. You get that by now. And these guys, these Celts, slash Gauls, they really really hated Romans. They really hate Romans at this point. And the Celts in Hannibal's army were his shock troops. So as shock troops, they're really good at closing the distance quickly and doing a massive amount of damage. That's their purpose in being in the army, and they do that on a good day, but if you can put them in an ambush position, if they can close that distance without anybody noticing, they will chew through a shattered defense like popcorn. These Celtic shock troops are running through the Roman legionaries like Drano. Think of a really buff dude who is wearing pretty much only a loincloth or trousers. And this guy has a massive sword or an axe, and he is charging at you, screaming in incoherent rage, trying to horribly murder you. I need you to imagine coming out of the hills and out of the mist, imagine tens of thousands of screaming, naked Dolph Lundgrens back in his prime. I must break you. And these 10,000 Ivan Dragos hit the guts of the Romans. And by this point, there's no use maintaining the pretense of quiet. The ambush has been ambushed at this point, so you might as well go loud. So this is when they would have kicked off with the Celtic war horns that they always took. And I think we should take a little time here to appreciate the Celtic war horns. How about we just have a little taste of a Celtic war horn? You want to listen to a Celtic war horn? 
because I need you to acknowledge that listening to this coming out of the mists and you can't see anything around you, but you can hear death. Listen to this and tell me that this is not the freakiest shit you've ever heard. Remember, it's early in the morning, it's just past dawn. The mist is so thick that you can't see your hand in front of your face. You can only hear the screams as people around you get attacked and hauled into the mists and stabbed to death. You can't see shit. And then you hear that. That is hell and they're hitting the Romans everywhere. Meanwhile, Hannibal's personal guard are tangling with the Romans at the front of the line. The rest of Hannibal's army is engaging the Roman army at every single point along the line. I need to stress that. There is nowhere that the Romans are not currently under attack. And this just does not happen in ancient warfare. Everyone forms up in lines and there's a battlefront, sure, but then there are command areas and reserve lines and staggered lines and things like that, you just, an army does not get hit everywhere all at once. It's not something that happens. It's not something that's supposed to happen. It's not something that's even possible to happen, according to most of these people in this time, but that is indeed what happened at Lake Trasimene. The Romans are ambushed so utterly that they don't even have time to form up into their usual three-part battle line of Hastati, Principate, and Triarii. They don't get to do that here. It's every man for himself. They haven't even formed up yet. Everyone's just huddled up close to the guy next to him trying not to get stabbed to death by a Celt. As Polybius puts it, and I quote, That morning, a thick mist still hung over the lakeside. Then, as soon as the greater part of the Roman army had entered the defile and was already in contact with the Carthaginians, Hannibal gave the signal for battle passed word to word to the troops who were lying in ambush and fell upon the Romans from all sides at once. This sudden appearance of the enemy took Flaminius completely by surprise. The mist blotted out all visibility, and with the attack being launched from higher ground and from so many points at once, the centurions and military tribunes were not only unable to issue any of the necessary orders, but even to grasp what was happening. They found themselves under attack simultaneously from the front, the flanks, and the rear. In consequence, most of the troops were cut down while they were still in marching order and without the least chance of defending themselves. Death took them unawares while they were still wondering what to do. End quote. And let's all press F to pay respects for poor old Polybius here, because we all know how painful that must have been for him to say something so bad about Rome. That's really got to hurt the fanboy. Livy describes the battle as being three hours of continuous hacking and slashing. This battle started at dawn. The Romans had lost by dawn 05. They never stood a chance, but it is going to take them the better part of a day to die. 
Now, Gaius Flaminius, the guy in charge of all this, for all of his bluff and bluster, he wasn't exactly the bravest of generals that Rome had. He wasn't a lead-from-the-front kind of guy. He's more of a bone-spurs kind of guy. You guys go off and do the fighting. I'll just stay back here and make sure nobody steals the wine. Don't ask me. You're the one who's going to be dying. So all of those soldiers who were keen for action, the veterans of Trebia, keen to engage with Carthage at the front of the line, the ones that Flaminius keeps saying that he's doing all of the things he does on their behalf, Flaminius was not up there with them. He'd riled them up and sent them marching, promising that he'd lead them all the way to victory, but he wasn't there. And if this reminds you of another recent fuckwit who did something very similar, then this is why we need history, to stop people like Flaminius from popping up on the reg like they do. So Flaminius was not at the tip of the spear. No, he was in the middle of the army. Flaminius's plan was to let the shock troops do the initial fighting, and then he'd decide whether he wanted to enter the fray or not. He'd make the call in running. If things were going well, then he'd ride on in and pretend that he was there the entire time and take all of the glory, but he wasn't going to get his shoes dirty a moment before he had to. Except that now, the middle of the column of the army was the absolute least safest place to be in the entire Roman Republic at this point. Because it was being overrun by naked, insane Frenchmen and Germans who wanted to tear him limb from limb. The way that Hannibal had engineered this ambush, the part of the Roman line that should have been the safest in the entire army was now the most dangerous place in the universe if you were a Roman. And Flaminius is smack bang in the center of it. Not only were these rampaging Celts tearing apart the Roman army in an orgy of violence and destruction, there's an extra element to this that makes it extra spicy. The Celts were being employed by Hannibal as shock troops to rip the Romans to shreds, that's their job description, but this time, it happens to be personal. The Celts have skin in the game. Remember from up at the top of the show when I said that this was Flaminius's second stint at being a consul, and the first time he was consul he committed a whole bunch of war crimes in Celtic ancestral lands? Remember that bit? Because the Celts sure as shit remembered that. They are very keen to take Gaius Flaminius aside and have a bit of a chat to him about his socio-economic policies and manifest destiny. And at no point in his entire life had Gaius Flaminius ever done himself any favours. Flaminius, as a consul, in this battle, he is dressed very conspicuously. Because what's the point of being a consul if nobody knows you're a consul? He had really bright, shiny armor, and he was decked out in fancy jewelry. He had a big, flowing red cape. He is the most conspicuous guy in the army. And you can see the logic here, right? I mean, what's the point of being the top dog of the Roman Republic if nobody knows you're the top dog? If you've got it, you flaunt it, right? And Gaius Flaminius is flaunting it. He wants everyone to know how awesome he is. And most of the time, that would have worked pretty well for him except on the off chance that his entire army got ambushed at once. And one of the Celts who was fighting, who was near Flaminius at the time, 
a Celtic noble by the name of Ducarius, who may or may not have actually existed because he's a little bit too narratively perfect and he has a very suspiciously Latin name, Ducarius. It's all looking a little bit too perfect, but let's assume that he's real, okay? So Ducarius is fighting at the front line here, taking on the Roman middle, and he looks over and he says, Hang on. Hang I think I know that guy. Yeah, I do. That's Gaius Flaminius. That's the cockwomble who took our lands and killed our people all those years ago. Ah, oh, yeah, that's him. I'm going to go over and say hi. And he did. Or I suppose Livy put it better with a less Cockney accent. Livy says, quote, Here is the man who slew our legions and laid waste to our city and our lands. I will offer him in sacrifice to the shades of my foully murdered countrymen. End quote. Because obviously there were people around who were writing all of this down and making sure that they took notes of this epic battle that was happening, and this Celtic warrior definitely had the poetic flair of a Mr. Sparkle commercial with, I shall banish my enemies to the land of wind and ghosts, join me or die, loafers, can you do any less? But anyway, the upshot is that this guy who has been shitting on Celtic dreams for the better part of 20 years is now staring directly at thousands of berserk Celtic warriors. And there are not a lot of Roman soldiers around to protect him. They have all died. At this point, Flaminius was already having a really bad day, but it's about to get a hell of a lot worse. So Mr. Sparkle, Ducarius, he charges into the fray and starts cutting down dozens of Romans in between him and Flaminius. Remember, he is super keen to have a chat to Flaminius. And at the very last moment, one of Flaminius's bodyguards dives in the way, Kevin Costner style, but Ducarius runs him through with a spear and doesn't even lose momentum. And then he charges in and closes the distance with a sword. And you've really got a feel for that bodyguard. I mean, he gave it a red hot crack. He is the employee of the month, but his heroic sacrifice meant absolutely nothing. And now it's just Ducarius and Flaminius, one-on-one, -on -one, a duel, a fight to the death. And it's this battle-hardened, enraged Celtic warrior up against a pampered, spoiled Roman rich kid. And Flaminius, it turns out that while he could talk the talk, he could not walk the walk. This duel goes exactly as you expect it would, and Ducarius gets to go home at the end of the day with a brand new drinking cup made out of a Roman consul's severed head. Did any of that happen? Probably not. Or at least not in the way that Livy described it, with some guy called Ducarius giving an Aragorn-level speech before charging into battle and winning in one-on-one -on -one combat. But what did definitely happen was that the consul... Gaius Flaminius died horribly that day, as did a lot of Roman soldiers. Something we can say for certain is that Gaius Flaminius did die horribly. Flaminius, grade A level jerk, his death was not pretty. The Celts were not kind to him. Our boy Hannibal Barker, he had a lot of traits most of them involving the efficient murder of people, but one of Hannibal's lesser-known traits was that he happened to be very respectful of the dead. 
And this is noteworthy because all of the ancient historians write about how Hannibal always treated the dead properly. And these historians are Romans. They are people who are trying their best to portray Hannibal as the devil himself, but they're forced to admit that he was actually a pretty nice guy in this one particular regard, looking after the dead, which lends a lot of credence to it. Hannibal might be the worst enemy that Rome has ever known, but at least he has standards, right? At least he honors the dead. And you might also recall from a couple of shows ago that this is something that he has inherited from his father. Hamilcar Barker was also particularly respectful of the dead. Hamilcar believed that even though he hated all Romans with a passion that has never been matched before or since, nobody ever hated a Roman as much as Hamilcar, his beef was always with living Romans. The dead were square with the house, they paid their debts. And Hannibal has inherited this trait from his father. Hannibal always honors the enemy dead. He takes the time to bury them properly and say a few nice words in prayer over their graves. And after the battle, Hannibal had wandered around the battlefield trying to find Flaminius. Hannibal wanted to give Flaminius a burial worthy of a Roman consul. This guy was his opponent on the battlefield, sure, but they clashed lances at the Champ du Mars and Hannibal had emerged victorious, so Hannibal thought that it was just polite and proper to bury Flaminius and then send a ham to his widow. The problem is that Hannibal never actually found Gaius Flaminius to give him that burial. He will ultimately find bits of him, but there's not enough to fill a casket. That's how pissed off the Celts were at Gaius Flaminius. And a quick note there to any wannabe fascists, you know, Six Semper Tyrannus. This has happened before, it could happen again. So to quickly recap the entire Battle of Trasimene, Hannibal has once again lured the Romans into a trap. Another huge army of Romans. Most states in history cannot put one of these forces together. This is the third one that Hannibal has taken out. Hannibal lures them into a trap, and it's the only historical example of one entire army being ambushed by another entire army. The Romans were in loose marching formation. They were not ready for any kind of fighting. Hannibal does not give a shit. It's happening now. And his entire army hits the Romans everywhere at once. His elite forces hit the Roman van, his cavalry cut off retreat, and everywhere else the Celts come screaming down the hills and hit every section of the Roman army at the same time. It's not a battle, it's a slaughter. It should be called the Slaughter of Trasimene. The Roman consul Gaius Flaminius has just been torn apart and made into souvenirs, and the rest of the army is utterly broken. And they want to run. They are very keen to get away from here, but there is nowhere to run to. Hannibal has trapped them. Both ends of this valley are cut off by Carthaginian troops. Hannibal's elite troops at one end and his cavalry at the other. The hills on one side keep spawning a seemingly unending amount of Celtic berserkers. There is nowhere to go. The only thing you can do is surrender or die. There is no escape. Well, of course, there is the Lake Trasimene on one side. You could try that, I guess, and some of the Romans do. Some Romans do decide to try their chances running into the Lake Trasimene to escape that way. And you think that could potentially be a feasible strategy, but you got to remember, 
These people are dressed for combat. They're in full armor. It's a bit hard to swim while you're wearing full iron armor. So these guys just sort of wade out into the lake until the water is up to their chins and they realize they can't go any further and then they realize how fucked they are. Meanwhile, Hannibal's troops are just there standing on the shore watching all of this unfold and they stand there brandishing their weapons and the message to these Romans that tried to swim their way to freedom is very clear. Carthage has got all day. You just come in when you feel like it. And Livy's account of Trasimene says that a lot of these Roman soldiers, they realize that they've run out of options and they dejectedly trudge back to shore where they are immediately captured by the Carthaginians. But a lot more Romans decide to just end it all there. They decide to just sink down into the water rather than live the rest of their lives as Carthaginian slaves. Polybius describes the same thing, and he puts it this way. This is Polybius again. As to those in the rear who had been trapped between the hillside and the lake, they suffered an even more pitiable fate. They found themselves herded into the lake, whereupon some lost their heads and tried to swim away in their armor and drowned, while the greater number waded out as far as they could. There they stood, with only their heads above the water, then... When the cavalry rode in after them and death stared them in the face, they raised their hands and uttered the most piteous pleas for mercy, begging to be spared. In the end, they were either killed by the horsemen or steeled themselves to self-destruction. End quote. As morning turns into afternoon, the mists that coated the battlefield finally began to burn off and it becomes clear the extent of the battle and it is not pretty for the Romans. 15,000 Romans were slaughtered that day, including one of their consuls. A further 10,000 were MIA. Some of them were people who'd managed to escape at the beginning of the battle, just squeaking through before the cavalry could cut them off, running in whatever direction had the least Carthaginians in front of them. And over the next few weeks, those guys would trickle into Roman towns by ones and twos with horrific stories of what happened, but most of them were never seen again. A further 6,000, mostly veterans of the Battle of the Trebia, managed to escape the battle outright. These 6,000 guys were the shock force that Flaminius sent to be the tip of the spear, these guys were at the very front of the line, so they were the ones who were actually prepared to fight and ready to go right now, and that's why they managed to do a lot better than anyone else. And they actually managed to form up into one of those protective formations that the Romans are known for, and they managed to fight their way out of the kill zone and to relative safety. And good for them, these 6,000 guys making it out alive, it must have felt pretty damn good to be one of those 6,000 guys. But it does make you wonder, and I've been wondering this the whole time I've been studying these sources, I genuinely wonder how many of these 6,000 guys who escaped, who fought their way free of the trap that Hannibal sprung, I wonder if maybe, just maybe, they might be thinking that Hannibal had let them go. Did they genuinely think that they fought their way out through their skill and experience at being veterans of the Roman army? Or was there some doubt there? Because there had to have been. 
But then again, these guys are Romans. They are the elite troops of Rome. They had to have been full of themselves with that trademark Roman arrogance. So most of them probably thought that it was their innate badassery that allowed them to make it out of this trap alive while everyone else died. But surely some of them must have appreciated that maybe Hannibal had allowed them to escape. That Hannibal, being the greatest military genius of all time, had done the arithmetic and realized that allowing the best Roman troops, their elite troops, their best veterans, allowing those guys to run away and not participate in the battle was effectively the same as killing 6,000 Romans in one go. The result's ultimately the same. They're just not fighting anymore. They're gone. They're not part of the equation. And of course, Hannibal knew that he could just deal with them later. He does, after all, have kick-ass cavalry. And I genuinely wonder if any of them realized that, at least at the time, as they're escaping. I mean, they all realized it the next day when Hannibal sent his cavalry after them and captured or killed all 6,000 of them down to a man, all of these 6,000 people that thought they were free and clear. But, you know, for a couple of hours there, they must have felt pretty damn good. But now they've been thrown in the cages with everyone else. So Flaminius and his army are wiped out, pretty much to a man. This is as comprehensive a victory as you are ever going to see in history, at least until we get to the next battle. And the Battle of Trasimene, it is still, to this day, one of the most comprehensive victories in the history of people stabbing each other. And now, here comes a really fun bit of schadenfreude. The Romans were so confident that they were going to win this battle with Hannibal. Again, I have no idea where this confidence comes from. Every time a Roman has tangled with a Barker, they have been utterly crushed. They just have never won. But still, this time, going into the Trasimony, they were utterly convinced that not only were they going to win, they were going to win easily. And remember, to date, they have never won a battle with Hannibal. Never. They came kinda close when Hannibal decided once that he didn't feel like fighting, but that's it. Every single time, Hannibal has utterly rinsed the Romans in a way that makes it look embarrassing for them. And yet, with no additional data whatsoever, the Romans... To a man thought that, yep, third time's the charm, boys. We've got this one in the bag. Hannibal doesn't stand a chance this time because third time or something. Reasons. Who knows? They are honestly the English cricket team of historical armies. They always win the moral victory and the spirit of warfare award, even though they're getting absolutely fucking shredded. So the Romans, not only did they think they're going to win, they thought they were going to win comfortably. And they thought they were going to win so comprehensively that it would be so apparent, their awesomeness would be so jaw-dropping and blinding, that the Carthaginians would, all as one, surrender rather than fight. The Roman army would show up and then Hannibal would go, oh yeah, okay, sorry, I guess we all give up and quit. Alright, throw your swords down boys, it was a good run, but it's over now. That's genuinely what the Romans thought was going to happen. And they thought that they would take the entirety of Hannibal's army as slaves. Every single one of them. They were going to capture them as slaves. 
I honestly cannot comprehend this level of wishful thinking. There is just no precedent for any of this. None of this thinking is grounded in any sort of objective evidence. It's just the Romans fighting an imagination battle. And then, of course, Hannibal had to go and ruin it by, in fact, not surrendering and doing the opposite, kicking the shit out of Rome. So the Romans, because they thought that they'd obviously win very easily, they actually brought a whole bunch of civilian contractors with them. And these civilians brought with them tens of thousands of pairs of shackles. The Romans had anticipated that they were going to win so easily that they would take tens of thousands of Hannibal's army as prisoners and make them into slaves, so they had people ready to collar and shackle all of these slaves that they were inevitably going to capture because they were inevitably going to win because reasons. And these civilians, they see off in the distance, they see an army coming down the road towards them with a bunch of prisoners in tow, and they must have been so excited at the bounty of slaves that they were about to take. Slaves were always the cornerstone of the Roman economy, and with this many captured soldiers, everyone is going to be absolutely stinking rich. Let the good times roll, boys. We've made it. And I can't help but imagine the shock that would have come over them as the army got closer and they managed to see that little bit better and as the banners resolved in their vision and you realize that those banners are wrong. Those are not Roman banners at all. Those are Gallic and Spanish banners. Your team has lost. And you have to imagine that utterly gut-wrenching moment when you realize that the army that is coming over towards you, that isn't your army, and you're not about to be very rich for the rest of your life. In fact, your life is now over. You've just gone from slave taker to slave. And Hannibal shows up and he says, Shackles! Brilliant! I'm so glad you brought shackles because I just happened to find myself in need of thousands of shackles. Because you're not going to believe this, but I actually took tens of thousands of prisoners like 30 minutes ago, and until now, I had no way to bind them. So this is all remarkably convenient. So if you could just hand over your tens of thousands of shackles, please, that would be great. Oh, and by the way, if you could whack a set of shackles on yourselves, that would be just ducky. In the net, right? Hannibal gets all of his prisoners together, and then he has to decide what to do with them. So first off, he gets all of the Roman citizens together. These guys are Roman, and he fucking hates Romans, so they're now slaves. Your entire life is now you get to spend a few years toiling away in a Spanish silver mine before you get worked to death or your lungs melt from silicosis. So I bet you wish you'd died in combat, idiot. Have fun looking forward to that. But then he gathers together all of the Roman allies. The people who weren't Roman, but were fighting on the Roman side. So people like Celts and Gauls and Iberians, uh, the Etruscans, the Sabines, anyone from Italy who wasn't Roman, but who had been conquered by Rome in the last couple of centuries. He gets all of these people together and he says to them, you're all free to go. What? Yep, you're all free to go. You're not Roman and my fight is with Rome. So you guys are all free to go. I'm a hard man, but I'm a fair man. So, my fight's with Rome, you're not Roman, we're all good. But, 
if you want to go back to your people and tell them how awesome I am and remind them of what dicks the Romans are, then feel free to do that. Fill out this little comment card on the way out. Uh, and by the way, uh, it just so happens I am always looking for people to join Team Hannibal. So if anyone does want to sign up and join my army, just let one of my recruiters know on the way out and he'll be happy to walk you through the paperwork. Oh, and I shouldn't need to say it, but just in case, I don't know if you noticed, if you, uh, I don't know if you caught up with current events, but I just happened to wipe the floor with a third Roman army and killed tens of thousands of people. So uh, just in case you were thinking about fucking with me, uh, yeah, don't. Okay, cool. Off you go. And he lets them all go. If you were not Roman, Hannibal had no beef with you. You were free to go. No hard feelings. Good luck with the spring harvest. I'll be with you. All that jazz. But the Romans, though, those guys are not having a good time at all. Because Hannibal Barker was not a nice person by any stretch of the imagination. But then again, no one was nice back then. It's all relative. But what Hannibal does to these Roman prisoners is going to make Guantanamo Bay look like a five-star resort. So for the third time in a row, Hannibal has utterly thrashed another Roman army. And not only that, Rome has just lost a consul. They're not used to this at all. That's a bit of a shock to the system. Up until this point, the worst thing that had happened to a consul was he got stabbed in the dick. Now, they can't even find the consul's dick, let alone the rest of him. Rome are not used to this. Gaius Flaminius, he did. It's probably worth briefly mentioning that most of the ancient historians talk about Gaius Flaminius being something of a heretic, or at least an agnostic, and that's why he lost the battle. And in those days, being agnostic was just the same as being a heretic. They were a very religious people. Heresy! 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 Come on, baby, give me some heresy! And obviously because Flaminius wasn't religious, that's why he lost. The gods decided to punish him for his hubris. So the way that the ancient historians try and deal with this absolute ass spanking that Hannibal's just given the Romans, it's uh, obviously Flaminius got his army absolutely hosed at Trasimene because he didn't pray hard enough. Not because he was a complete fuckstick who should never have been put in charge of a chook raffle, let alone an army. No, of course, there has to be a better reason for it. Yeah, the gods didn't like it. Jupiter just had it in for this Flaminius guy. That's why he lost. Yeah, that's a lot easier to take. Gaius Flaminius was not a devout man in the slightest, and he had no time for religion, which I think is just about the only sensible thing he ever did in his life, but the ancients didn't see it this way. People in history are always scared of sky wizards. So the historians include things like how Flaminius didn't perform the appropriate religious rituals before the battle, which is probably true because he didn't believe in any of that mumbo-jumbo. But then the historians will all talk about how there were all of these ill omens before the battle. Things like Flaminius falling off his horse, and then again he goes to pick up the standard, the battle flag, and it won't lift off the ground or come out easily. And these are all terrible omens from the gods that say that things are going to go very poorly and he shouldn't have gone to battle with such bad omens. And there's an argument to be made there, sure. But if you want my opinion, 
This all sounds very much like some post-hoc rationalization where long after the battle, people are trying to come up with reasons why the supposed best army in the world got absolutely fucking rinsed by a ragtag group of roughnecks three times in a row. It's the ancient equivalent of blaming the referee. I do include it because I've heard that you guys like it when I throw in more nuance, not less. So there's the context. Some historians try to paint this like the Roman Republic had this chapel perilous moment, but we in the future are a much more cynical people. We don't believe in the Sky Wizards as much, so it doesn't really enter our thinking, but it was front and center for these ancient peoples. The ancient Romans were trying to put a positive spin on it and say that the lost was the will of the gods because Flaminius was such an apostate, so there's nothing we really could have done, actually. The lost was inevitable. You can't question the gods. But more sensible minds throughout time have reasoned that if you elect the biggest fuckwit in Rome, you can't be surprised when he acts like the biggest fuckwit in Rome. And that is the end of the tale of Gaius Flaminius. That's how Flaminius gets his head cut off at the Battle of Trasimene, and most of his army goes down with him. So as Flaminius and the vast majority of the Roman army are getting turned into cat food, as all that's happening, meanwhile, the Romans had sent some reinforcements to Flaminius just in case. Rome, as in the city of Rome and the rulers within Rome, they don't know how the battle has gone yet. This is at least 12 years before the invention of mobile phones, so nobody back home in Rome knows that that army is not there anymore. So they sent some reinforcements just in case. The Roman senators mustered together as many troops as they could find, and they sent them north to help because, hey, you know, the more the merrier. Hey, we just found some more soldiers, let's send them up north to help in the fight against Hannibal because everyone wants more soldiers. And Flaminius can certainly use these soldiers because surely he hasn't charged into a trap because Hannibal insulted his dick, so these reinforcements are going to be really useful. So what happened was that the Roman senators and the tribunes, they know that Hannibal is the horse lord of the ancient world. Hannibal has kick-ass cavalry. I keep saying it because it's so important. Hannibal has some absolutely boss cavalry. So Rome, they work really hard to build up a cavalry force of their own, and they send 6,000 of their own cavalry north to help reinforce Flaminius at Trasimene. Remember, Hannibal has won several times in the past because of this kick-ass cavalry, so Rome had assembled as many equites of their own as they could find, and they sent them as reinforcements to try and neutralize Hannibal's cavalry advantage. Oh, equite just means, like, knight in Latin. You know, equite, equine, horse, you get the deal, right? So when I say equites, it's just cavalry, like a knight. So Rome scrapes together as many equites as they can find and send them north to reinforce Flaminius, hoping that Flaminius was not as stupid as he seemed to be, and, you know, just in case, it's a long shot, but maybe he hasn't walked into an ambush yet, you can only hope, here's some cavalry. And this force of 6,000 cavalry arrives at the battlefield to find only Hannibal's army there. Where are the Romans? That's a very good question. And just as they're starting to wonder this, hey, where are all of our guys? 
these reinforcements find themselves surrounded by Numidian horsemen. And now these 6,000 elite Roman cavalry get to join in on the shackle party. These 6,000 equites that were sent as reinforcements got captured before they could even draw their swords. Rome has just sent them to their doom. And this hurts Rome even more than just losing another 6,000 cavalry. And there's no such thing as just losing 6,000 cavalry. That's going to hurt anyone, even Rome. Losing 6,000 cavalry is awful. But it's even worse than that. Equites were basically Roman knights, meaning that to be an equus, you had to, well, you had to be able to afford a horse for one thing, so that rules most people out who can afford a horse. Even today, think about whether or not you could afford a horse and the kind of people that could afford horses. It was the same back then. There's a real class divide, which meant that the Equites were all at least minor nobility, but they went all the way up. So they were not quite senators, but they were well above plebeians. All of these equites were all relatively important people. And now, they're all Carthaginian slaves. Rome has just lost 6,000 nobles, businessmen, politicians, just generally important people, in addition to everyone who got captured and slaughtered at the actual battle. So you take the casualties from the Battle of Trasimene, now add an additional 6,000 important people to it because Rome done fucked up bad. This situation is far from ideal for Rome. And word of all of this gets back to Rome and the Roman citizens are just shell-shocked. They are as rattled as anyone has ever been. Rumours had reached the city before any actual news, as is always the case with rumours, so people were on edge already, and then the rumours got stronger and stronger until eventually everyone realised that there was something seriously amiss here. Things have gone very badly, and the people just naturally began to gather near the Senate, on the steps of the Senate, hoping to hear some actual news of the war against Hannibal, not just rumours and conjectures. And thousands of people were amassed outside the Senate building, waiting for someone to say something, before finally, one of the elder senators approached the rostrum, and he took the stand, and in the stunned silence of the moment, with tens of thousands of Romans watching him, he simply said, We have been defeated in a great battle. And then he just turned and walked away. And there was silence in the great city of Rome. This is beyond devastating. They cannot process this kind of news. They're Rome. They're the greatest people in the world. They have the best army in the world. They crushed the other Italian states. They crushed the Greeks. Then they crushed the Carthaginians in the First Punic War. Rome were the greatest nation in the world. But then this Hannibal guy comes out of the Alps and he wins at Ticinus and he wins at Trebia. Okay, that's not ideal, but you know, even a blind squirrel can find a nut every now and then. You expect Hannibal to get a couple of victories over the course of his career, sure. But then Hannibal crushes the Romans at Trasemene. And then on top of that, he also gets a bonus 6,000 nobles. This is unheard of. Rome aren't used to even breaking a sweat in battle, let alone getting 
utterly annihilated, not once, not twice, but thrice. And the Romans just do not know what to do. They are flummoxed. There's a foreign army burning its way down towards the city itself, and they cannot deal with it. There's nothing they can do to stop Hannibal. And this scares the ever-loving shit out of them. As I can only imagine that it would. This is an existential threat, because if Hannibal makes it to Rome, then in Roman minds, there's no question what he's going to do when he gets there. It's what the Romans would do if they got to Carthage. He is going to remove Rome from the map. And, by transitive property, everyone who lives there. There's a phrase from this period that actually survives to this day, and it goes, Hannibal anti Portium. Hannibal is at the gates. This is as scary as it gets for a Roman. Hannibal is at the gates. He's coming, and when he gets there, we're not going to have a fun day. This forces the Romans to do something extraordinary. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and there's nothing more desperate than this. Rome decide to install a dictator. Now, this needs a bit of breaking down. Dictator today and dictator as the Romans would have used the word are very different things and roughly analogous to the difference in meaning today between the Greek word tyrant and what we say today as a tyrant and what it actually meant back then. So try and take out your modern pejorative idea of a dictator, someone like Saddam Hussein or Idi Amin or Scott Morrison or anyone like that. The term in this story doesn't have that sort of cultural inertia behind it. It was more of a standard sort of diplomatic term. Essentially, the Romans were terrified of kings, as I've said, and I go into in a Patreon show if you've got five bucks. So they always had two people in charge as a sort of check and balance against any impromptu kinging that might occur. Their whole system is built around this. You always have to have two guys of equal power to prevent a king from happening. Even if it means you get an absolute dickhead and your army gets slaughtered a couple of times in a row. That's still better than a king. But, in exceptional circumstances, the Romans were able to realize that having two consuls at the same time was usually a fucking stupid thing to do, so they had provisions in place where they could briefly suspend this system and have just one guy in charge. A dictator. I'm so lonely. A dictator was obviously for use only in the most pressing of emergencies, because a dictator had all of the powers of a king, and Romans were really scared of kings. But that emergency protocol existed for just this kind of situation. In case of Hannibal, break glass. And the position of dictator came with tons of checks and balances and measures to make sure that the dictator didn't turn himself into a king. A dictator had a set term limit. They could only be a dictator for so long, usually six months to a year. And that would usually be enough to see the Republic through whatever crisis it was currently in. And at the end of the term limit, the dictator himself was honor bound to give that power back and abdicate the position of dictator. And to the credit of the Roman culture, dictators always did. Rome had a few dictators throughout the course of the Roman Republic. 
It was rare, but it was not unheard of to have a dictator, and every single one of those dictators gave their power back at the end of their terms. They abdicated their position, and they let democracy reign. Because, to a Roman, with their Roman cultural inertia, the idea of a dictator individually, that person, the idea of holding on to that power and becoming a king was unthinkable to them on a genetic level. It was never a problem. Romans were brought up and indoctrinated from birth to hate kings. They would never consider remaining a dictator beyond the terms of the crisis. And this continued from 700 BCE right up until our good friend of the pod, Jules C, comes along and ruins it for everyone, but that's not until much after this story. So you only install a dictator when things are going to shit in a big, big way, and Hannibal coming to collect everyone's skull is enough of a reason to do this. Barely. Dictators are only under the most dire of circumstances, but Hannibal is at the gates after all. But here's the problem. Usually, it's up to the two consoles to appoint a dictator. Kind of like turning both keys of a nuclear missile at the same time, you need two consoles to appoint a dictator. It's part of the whole checks and balances system that both consoles need to agree that A, a dictator is necessary, and B, who that dictator should be, and then they unanimously appoint one. That's how it's supposed to go. But, if you're keeping up with the maths, Rome are currently minus two consoles. They have exactly zero people in charge of Rome right now. One of their consoles, Geminus, has been cut off by Hannibal after that epic flanking maneuver through the Arno. He is missing in action, presumed dead. They don't know what's happened to Geminus. He's not dead, in case you're wondering. He never actually participated in the clusterfuck that was the Battle of Trasimene, but to get back to Rome from where he was in the north, he would have to fight his way through Hannibal's army with his own much smaller army, and Geminus, to his credit, he's not that stupid. So he's just chilling out in the top half of Italy, but he can't get any word back to Rome, so he's essentially out of this story. Latest sports news off the street, boppers. The baseball furies dropped the ball, made an error. Our friends are on second base and trying to make it all the way home. But the inside word is that the odds are against them. Stay tuned, boppers. Stay tuned. He's going to come back into the story, but not yet. So Geminus is in the top half of Italy, watching Hannibal shit all over Rome, and knowing that he can do nothing to stop it. But regardless, he's out. So there's one consul stuck on the opposite side of this monster death ball that's coming to destroy Rome, and their other consul, Gaius Flaminius, he just got turned into a hat. So Rome have zero consuls, and there's nobody who can actually appoint a dictator, even though they really need one. So in a rather extraordinary move, the Tribune of the Plebs is the one to appoint the dictator. And this kind of political power is well outside the wheelhouse of the Tribune of the Plebs, but these are interesting times. It's kind of like in Battlestar Galactica, where Laura Roslin becomes president, because even though she's 200 and something in line for the top job of president, she's the only surviving government official. 
That's kind of the situation that Rome is in. The Tribune of the Plebs happens to be the highest ranking person who is not currently chained to Hannibal's elephant. So because Hannibal was indeed heading towards Rome with a bullet, anti-Portia, desperate times mean that you do things like appoint a dictator even without the oversight of the consuls. So the Tribune of the Plebs steps up to the plate, and this Tribune, he gathered up some senators, and they start working on a plan. And their thinking was pretty much, well, obviously, that Flaminius guy was an absolute fucking disaster, and he went off and got most of our army killed in a couple of hours. Perhaps electing a demonstrable dickhead is not the best idea. So, with that in mind, who is the least Flaminius guy that we have? And they go looking through Rome for the person who was the least like Gaius Flaminius. And the person who happened to be least like Flaminius was a guy you may be familiar with if you watch 30 Rock. None other than Fabius Maximus. The Fabian strategy. I know this. If an apple and a feather fall at the same time... The Fabian strategy derives its name from the Roman general Quintus Fabius Maximus. Remember him from the last show? He, yeah, he's coming up again. I told you he would. Or, to use his full name, Quintus Fabius Maximus Vericosus. And the Vericosus part of that is very unfortunate, but that's how this guy is going to be remembered throughout history. Remember what I said about Roman names? Yeah, it's coming back to bite people in this story. Apparently, Quintus Fabius Maximus Vericosus Apparently, despite all of his civil service records and everything awesome he's ever done, he also happened to have a very prominent wart on his face. Hence, he became known as Fabius the Warty, or in Latin, Fabius Vericosus. The Romans were not nice people. And if you're remembering that Fabius Maximus was the guy in Carthage and talking to the Carthaginian Senate when this entire war kicked off, and he's the one that actually decided that it was officially going to be the Punic War, then congratulations on remembering that. Well played. So this war is indeed his fault, but also, he also happens to be the least stupid person in Rome right now. And no, I did not mean to say that Fabius Maximus is the smartest person in Rome. I actually meant to say he is the least stupid. We do have to grade the Romans on a curve here. Now, Fabius was the complete opposite of Flaminius. Fabius was quiet, not loud. He wasn't bombastic. He wasn't a fucking moron. Fabius Maximus had been a consul a few times in the past, so he has experience. But most importantly, he was not a complete fuckwit which is a very radical new direction that the Romans are currently experimenting with. But remember, these are desperate times, so you do something crazy like elect someone who is not a complete fuckwit. So Fabius Maximus gets appointed as the dictator of Rome. He is now the one person who is solely in charge. Which is going to be important because Fabius comes up with a strategy for dealing with Hannibal. It's the strategy that history will name after him. It's the strategy that he is famous for, and it's the strategy that an entire episode of the comedy series 30 Rock is named after. And it also happens to be the most unpopular policy that you could possibly think of if you happen to be a Roman living in 217 BCE. Fabian's strategy is deeply, 
deeply unpopular, but he's the dictator now, so what's anyone going to do to stop him? Nothing. And here is what he comes up with. This is the Fabian strategy. And the Fabian strategy is, do not, under any circumstances, do not fight Hannibal. That's it. That's the plan. That is the Fabian strategy. If Hannibal shows up, we run away. If you think Hannibal is going to be somewhere, you go somewhere else. And if you start dismissing an idea because it's impossible, then you're already dead because Hannibal has already done the impossible. You cannot fight Hannibal. You cannot win against Hannibal. So, simply, do not fight Hannibal. Just run away. If Hannibal shows up, you be elsewhere. That is the Fabian strategy. And as you can probably guess, this was deeply unpopular in Rome. Because Romans love fighting, and the Romans are incapable of seeing their own shortcomings, so the Fabian strategy did not go down well. But, Fabius Maximus is the dictator right now, so they can all go suck on D's nuts. That is the benefit of having a king. People can fuck right off if they disagree with you, and that's what happened here. So the Fabian strategy sticks. Now, it needs to be said that the Fabian strategy is way more complex than it looks on the surface. It's very glib to say that it was all about running away, but it's actually way more nuanced and grounded in logic and not thinking with your dick. This is the first time in this entire series that Sun Tzu would look at Roman strategy and not burst into tears over their absolute lack of tactics. Rome are finally starting to wise up. The Fabian strategy is not so much that you don't engage Hannibal, you do things other than engaging Hannibal. You hit places where Hannibal is not. You cut off his supply lines, you attack his allies, hell, you can go to Carthage and fuck around in Africa. You can do a hell of a lot of things, but if Hannibal himself shows up, then you nope the fuck out. Fabius Maximus realized that Hannibal was the absolute god of war. He's the best that there ever was, and possibly the best there ever will be. But the problem that Carthage had was that there was only one Hannibal Barker. He couldn't be everywhere at once, so the Romans, they decide to be where Hannibal isn't. Fabius Maximus takes the Roman army and he starts doing things like hitting Hannibal's supply lines. Fabius reckoned, and he was absolutely correct, that Hannibal was on the clock the entire time that he was in Italy. He is playing an away game this entire time. An army is incredibly hard to supply and feed at the absolute best of times with the best logistics. It is almost impossible to do when you have zero supply lines because you're in hostile territory. And it's even harder to do that if you're in hostile territory because you happen to have pulled off two of the most incredible flanking maneuvers of all time that were supposed to be technically impossible. So Hannibal's supply lines are non-existent. And Fabius got that right. So instead of engaging Hannibal directly, Fabius is going to bleed him by a thousand cuts. Cut off his supply, hit his depots while he's away, try and isolate stragglers in his army and take them out. General nuisance stuff, guerrilla warfare. 
And eventually, much later in history, Fabius Maximus will be renamed after this. Instead of being Fabius Vericosus, Fabius the Warty, he will then be renamed Fabius Cunctator, or Fabius the Delayer, which is admittedly a lot better than Fabius Wartface. And you will see some people such as some 1970s historians who shall remain nameless, some people will claim that Fabius was the pioneer of guerrilla warfare, which is just categorically untrue. Not only was the art of war written prior to this entire period, just happened to be on the other side of the world, we've already had a guy in this series doing exactly the same thing as the Romans are right now to the Romans. So Fabius did not invent it. Fabius just took what Hamilcar Barker was doing in Sicily 30 years ago, and he's applying it here. So calling him the father of guerrilla warfare would be like saying that I invented the idea of history podcasting when I'm using Dan Carlin's Punic Nightmares as a primary source. Same deal. And Fabius is entirely correct here with his strategy. Hannibal cannot afford any of this. Because as I just said, his supply lines are virtually non-existent. Not only that, he is getting no reinforcements, especially not from Carthage. Hannibal cannot afford to lose, ever. The army he started this war with is the army he's going to need to finish with. Sure, he does get a bunch of Celts and assorted non-Roman Italians onto his side to bolster his army, but all of his best troops, people like the Numidians and the Balearics and the Syrians, What he has now, that's all he's going to get. And he already has zero war elephants. He has to be careful with everything else he has in his army. Every soldier he loses is someone he loses permanently. If Rome's superpower is being able to continually find armies, Hannibal has exactly the opposite. Every person he loses is gone forever. Because Carthage is not supporting him in this war. And there is a war going on here. It's not just what Hannibal's doing. It is the Second Punic War, remember? Not the Hannibal War. Hannibal might have kicked this whole thing off by attacking Saguntum on his own recognizance, but Carthage decided to follow him in and make it an official war. So there is a larger war going on. But the Barkers were never popular in Carthage at the best of times, and Hannibal is barely Carthaginian. He left when he was nine years old, and he hasn't been back since. He's turning 30 during this campaign. He is Spanish more than anything else. So he is as much of a foreigner to the Carthaginians as actual foreigners. They don't consider him to be Carthaginian, and he's a Barker at that. And old man Hamilcar Barker had plenty of enemies back home in Carthage. So whenever Hannibal asks for reinforcements from Carthage, Carthage pretty much always comes back with, well, you do seem to be doing pretty well on your own, and... If you're not capable of winning with the army you already have, then perhaps you're not as great a general as you think you are, so you get no reinforcements from us. And it went like this for the entire war. Ultimately, politics will be Hannibal's undoing, but that's not until much later. The political situation in Carthage is far too complex to get into, but it does boil down to that. People back in Carthage did not like Hannibal. Carthage had just as many fuckwits in it as Rome did. The two nations were way more alike than either cared to admit, and Hannibal was really unpopular back home in Carthage. But the Carthaginians could not argue with his success, because he was indeed the god of war, but there were always people trying to undermine him. 
Eventually, it will cost Hannibal his command, and ultimately his life, and it's going to mean that Carthage gets removed from the face of the earth, but like I say, there are fuckwits everywhere, and that does not happen until much later. So Rome, using the Fabian strategy, is bleeding Hannibal dry, and Carthage is doing fuck all to help. Often they're actually making things much worse. Because as I said, Rome realized that there was only one Hannibal. Hannibal Barker is the goat. We all know that by now, so don't engage him. Mago Barker, Hannibal's younger brother, he happened to be nearly as good as Hannibal. Almost, but not quite. He could have potentially been another person that Rome refused to engage with, but Mago was Hannibal's second in command. So he is always in the same army as Hannibal, so it's effectively the same rules apply as Hannibal. And there was another brother, a third brother, Hasdrubal Barker. He is pretty much in the same vein as Mago. Not quite as good as Hannibal, but that still leaves him streets ahead of absolutely anyone else in this period. Save for one Roman that we will get to later. Hasdrubal Barker has been stationed back in Spain this entire time to guard the home front, so he is also not someone that Rome have to worry about. He will never leave Spain. And that's the three brothers Barker. Hannibal, Mago, and Hasdrubal. Also, an aside here, but here is some absolutely bitching trivia that will totally win you a meat tray one day. Mago Barker is the reason that mayonnaise is called mayonnaise. There you go, win a trivia night with that. I know that sounds like one of those things that Damo would come up with because he thinks it's funny, but it is absolutely one of those times where the truth is so wild that I don't actually have to do anything with it. Mago Barker is the reason that mayonnaise is mayonnaise. Towards the back end of this war, the Second Punic War, Mago will actually take shelter in a port in Spain. And because he brought so much infrastructure with him on all of his ships, the port that he sheltered in actually grew into a city of its own, kind of like Baltus Gate. And this city was named Mago, after Mago Barker. Again, kind of like Baldur's Gate. Eventually, language being what it is, Mago the city turned into Mayho the city, because language, which will eventually be pronounced Mahon. And that is currently what the city is known as today, Mahon. And the city of Mahon happened to produce a proprietary, unique-to-them source, which they called Mahonese, which was discovered by the world at large in 1756 and became known as Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise, Mahonese, Mahon, Maho, Mago. So there you go. Mayo is Mayo because of Mago Barker. So Hannibal's running the show. Mago's his second command, and the third brother, Hasdrubal, has been left behind in Spain to keep the spice flowing. No, sorry, not spice, money. Keep the money flowing, but you know how I love a Dune reference. So while Hannibal is off doing all of his awesome Hannibal stuff, he knows that the Romans might be tempted to hit his home base in Spain where all of the money is, so that's why he left Hasdrubal there to have someone nearly as good as the top dog himself to keep the home fires burning. Long live the fighters! But outside of those three guys, most of the Carthaginian generals are complete dipshits, just like with Rome. So Fabius Maximus decides to go after them. And this continues for some time. Rome keeps hitting places where Hannibal isn't. 
and this does have the desired effect of bleeding Hannibal. He is feeling the pinch after this. So for Hannibal's part, he would dearly, dearly love to meet old mate Fabius Maximus in a field battle. He really wants, he's desperate for, a full-on engagement with the Roman army. May thy knife chip and shatter. Because he knows he is going to kick the shit out of any Roman army he encounters. And when he does, he's going to be able to loot all of their stuff and all of their food and all of their money and all of his problems will go away because he stole all of the Romans' stuff. So once again, Hannibal is doing everything he can to provoke a Roman attack. And to be fair, this usually works for him. There is form on the board for the Romans. Using taunts to bait a Roman consul into attack has worked a treat on Flaminius, it worked on Sempronius before him, it worked on Scipio before him. Hannibal is always confident that eventually a Roman will be stupid enough to come out and play if he provokes them enough. This has worked in the past. So you can't fault his thinking here. But Rome aren't taking the bait. The Fabian strategy is to always run away from Hannibal, Hannibal is now doing everything he can to taunt the Romans into actually fighting him. And they continually turn down the bait. So Hannibal, he has to get super creative here. Creative even for Hannibal. And this guy is an absolute genius. Hannibal is brilliant across the board. One of the strategies that Hannibal used to bait the Romans into attacking would be to find out where Fabius Maximus had property. Fabius was a rich guy. He had properties all over Italy. That was par for the course for the upper Roman crust back in the day. And thankfully, rich people can no longer buy large swathes of real estate crippling the housing market. But you have to try and imagine such a crazy thing as rich people hoarding properties that they don't actually live in. That was the time back then. So Hannibal sets about finding all of Fabius's properties, or that of his family. If you were in some way related to the Maximals, Hannibal wants to know about it. Because he has very good spies, as we know. Go forth and find Fabius Maximus's property portfolio and let me know where all of his stuff is. And then, this is the real genius part. You are going to love this. Then, once he knew where Fabius had all of his properties, Hannibal would take his army over there to whatever town Fabius Maximus had a villa or a house or a mansion in, and he would burn those towns to the ground. He would murder a whole bunch of people there, steal all of their stuff, but here's the critical bit, here's the genius. Hannibal would leave Fabius's stuff completely untouched. If a property was owned by Fabius Maximus, the Carthaginian army would leave it alone. They would ride through the war unscathed. The rest of the town would burn, but Fabius's properties were untouched. Why would he do this, you may ask? Well, if you did ask that, then God bless you for being a good person. You are a wonderful, innocent soul. But you should also know, if you're the kind of person who asked that question, you should also know that a lot of the audience for this show have already figured it out because they're a bunch of sick fucks just like I am, and you should never accept a bet from those people. And if you guys are upset that I'm calling you sick fucks, then you should really look at all of the 9-11 memes that you send me. I do love them, we have a great time, but we're all going to hell, okay? But we already knew that. So here's Hannibal's play. Romans were a cynical, conspiratorial, gossipy people to begin with. 
But this, this sent the political rumor mill into overdrive. Hannibal had his spies all over Rome promoting the theory that Fabius had a secret deal with Hannibal. That the leader of the Carthaginian army and the dictator of Rome were in cahoots. God, I love using that word. Cahoots. Fabius would continue to hold back the Roman army to use his dictatorial power to refuse to engage with Hannibal, and in return, Hannibal would spare Fabius's properties and instead burn to the ground the homes of his political enemies, strengthening Fabius's claim as dictator. It looks like he's making a play for king. And this is not true, of course. It's absolutely untrue. All of it is made up by Hannibal. But nobody in Rome cared about that. History is rhyming again. All they saw was that their troops were being ordered not to fight Hannibal, as Hannibal, in turn, ravaged the Roman countryside, burned down their villages, raped their women, and it looked like the guy in charge of Rome had a secret deal going on with Hannibal. All of this was happening while everyone in Rome was still clinging to the delusional belief that somehow, some reason, this time the Romans would win. If we fight Hannibal this time, we're going to win. I know Hannibal has wiped out three Roman armies, but the fourth time's the charm, lads. Double or nothing. If we take on Hannibal now, we're going to win, but Fabius is keeping us back. So there's a whole lot of pressure on Fabius Maximus to unleash the army and to go forth and smite Hannibal. Fabius Maximus is not an idiot, though. He knows that Hannibal is going to mop the floor with the Romans because that's what he does. And Fabius is desperately trying to talk some sense into the Roman citizens, saying things like, this guy has a 100% win rate, what the fuck is wrong with you? We sent our best guys against him and they got slaughtered, and we've got no one left. What, you want to send rookies up against this guy? But politics is never about common sense. And it needs to be said, it needs to be abundantly clear that the Fabian strategy was working. It was clearly and demonstrably working. What Fabius was doing was bleeding Hannibal. Hannibal did not have much time left. But almost all of the Romans were morons. So just like what happened in the First Punic War, Rome was beating Carthage everywhere that there was not a Barca to lead the armies. Just like in the First Punic War, where Rome didn't have anyone as good as Hamilcar Barca, but there was only one Hamilcar Barca, it's the same thing here one generation later. Hannibal is unstoppable, but Carthage itself is losing on almost every other front in the war. Rome are winning the Second Punic War. So there's a lot of merit to the Fabian strategy. It's just about holding on and winning everywhere else until Hannibal has no choice but to surrender because his country lost. And that's what's happening. It's happening slowly, but it was happening. So this goes on for quite a bit, and Fabius Maximus essentially does stem the bleeding. He has contained Hannibal. He stabilizes the situation. Hannibal was on an epic streak coming out of the Alps. He was unstoppable, and he looked like steamrolling his way all the way to Rome. But Fabius managed to take a bit of wind out of the sails. Took away that momentum. Hannibal was still strolling all over Italy and setting it on fire at his leisure, and Rome could not stop him. But now, at least Rome had time to take a breath and figure out their next move. And it turns out that this is a very bad thing for Rome. 
You'd think that having a break from crushing defeat after crushing defeat would be a useful shot in the arm for the Roman Republic, and in most cultures you'd be absolutely correct, but not here. Because the last thing you should ever do is give Romans time to think. Thinking is not their strong suit. They are not good thinkers. They tended to think stupid shit, like how Hannibal hasn't wiped out the Roman army at least three times in 18 months, so obviously the Romans are going to win now if they go out to fight him because reasons. That's the kind of stupid shit that Rome thinks of. So the Fabian strategy has stopped the bleeding, but in the collective Roman psyche, they've convinced themselves that they are winning this war and they're winning it against Hannibal. They've got that delusion going again. And it also coincides with the dictatorial term of Fabius Maximus being over. Remember, he was brought in as a dictator for a fixed term. He wasn't brought in as a dictator to stop Hannibal or to push back the armies. He was brought in for a fixed term of 18 months. That term is now over. It's time to stop being a king and go back to merely being an incredibly rich man in a time of unbridled decadence. It's a hard life. So even though the job was not yet done, time is up. And Fabius Maximus, because he was a good Roman with good Roman values, he abdicated the position of dictator. No questions asked. Fabius Maximus, with his term as dictator being over, he voluntarily stepped down. And a lot of people in history consider this to be incredible. Like, why would you do that? But you have to remember that this was the norm back then. This was the expected and honorable thing to do. No respectable Roman would ever keep the power of being a dictator. It was unthinkable to them. We, today, we think of this as unusual because we've seen a lot of dictators in our time and it always goes to their heads. But we've got the knowledge of that one time that a Roman dictator didn't give away power and he turned the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. But that's going to come later. For a lot of the people in this story, what Fabius Maximus did is not a big deal. Part of the honor of being declared a dictator in the first place was that the people of Rome considered you to be honorable enough as a person and trustworthy enough that you would give that power back. It was a recognition from everyone in Rome that you were a particularly chill dude. It's like everyone in the country thinking you're Keanu Reeves. Essentially, it's incredibly prestigious to be offered the position of a dictatorship, but it's way more prestigious to give that power back, to prove that Roman people's faith in you was not misplaced. Fabius Maximus was made the dictator to stabilize the whole Hannibal situation, and he did, and then he wasn't dictator anymore. Shit is now kinda sorta under control. It actually isn't because Hannibal Barca and his very large army is out swinging its dick all over Italy and setting it on fire, and Rome cannot stop it, but at least now, Hannibal is not going to immediately show up at the gates of the Eternal City and decide to redecorate it. The bleeding has been staunched, if not stopped. So, obviously, this would be a super great time to have some elections and go back to that two-console system because that system was doing just gangbusters before Fabius. Elections were well overdue to begin with. They're supposed to happen once a year, and remember, Rome are currently minus two consoles. 
They need to replenish their supply of leaders because one of them is trapped on the other side of Italy and the other one is actually in several places at once right now and they're never going to find all of him, so we need two new consoles. I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. And the two new consoles who were elected were Lucius Aemilius Paulus and Gaius Terentius Varro. As ever, if you actually read the histories, you'll see these names used interchangeably because there are no rules about names, you make it up as you go along. So I'm going to be going with the vague consensus and calling them Paulus and Varro. I've been over this a lot for precisely this reason. You guys know the drill by now. Roman names are funky. Polis and Varro are kind of like chalk and cheese because that's how Rome did things. Nobody can ever get along because that might make things work better. Obviously, the whole chalk and cheese approach has worked well in the past, so let's keep doing what we always did and wondering where we're going wrong. It's not like electing diametrically opposed nimrods has cost us three sequential armies. Let's roll them boons again. I got a good feeling about this one. Remember, Fabius Maximus has just spent over a year as dictator cutting through all of this partisan bullshit and actually getting things done. He fixed the absolute clusterfuck that was Roman politics at the time. And now the Romans had gone right back to square one by again electing two diametrically opposed demagogues. If you're wondering how such a stupid society can get around to conquering the world, I will get around to it one day, but the short version is that they slowly evolve a better type of dickhead. But you really have to imagine what the political climate would have been like in Rome in 216 BCE. Things like border security are wedge issues in politics today. Imagine what it must have been like with an invading army actually inside those borders. People vote for demonstrable fuckheads like Scott Morrison because they're scared that a couple of hundred emaciated refugees will arrive on boats looking to share in the wealth of the lucky country now. I can't imagine how intolerable the Liberal National Party, who are the successors of the Optimates, how they would be if there were 40,000 armed soldiers occupying everything north of the Tweed River. These guys are jerks now, and we don't have a Hannibal in the system. And here's a quick aside that isn't relevant, but it is fun. I mentioned everything north of the Tweed. If you're from overseas, the Tweed River is what separates the states of New South Wales and Queensland. And in Australia, we like to shit on Queensland because it is Queensland. It's like our Florida. But during World War II, it was decided on an official government level, it was decided that the Allied powers were willing to let the Japanese have the entirety of Queensland if it came down to peace negotiations. We, as a country, as a world, we were willing to sacrifice Queensland. And there has not been a day gone by since then that at least one Australian hasn't wondered if we would have been better off. I mean... You know, people are entitled to their sexual proclivities, you know. I mean, let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned, you know. But I ain't spending any time on it because in the meantime, every three months, a person is torn to pieces by a crocodile in North Queensland. But back to ancient Rome. There's a hostile power inside Roman territory 
Who among these candidates for consul offers the best ideas for sorting out the Hannibal problem? And both Polis and Varro were elected on their policies of how to get rid of Hannibal, although they had very different ideologies on how to go about it. Polis was from a Roman political group known as the Optimates, and he was the leader of the Optimates, so he is Optimate Prime. I will never do a better joke than that. So Polis is essentially a Tory, and you guys know how I feel about Tories. Tories are incapable of changing on a genetic level, so they're exactly the same today as they were 2,000 years ago. So Paulus is your ancient Roman Peter Dutton, Rishi Sunak, Ron DeSantis, take your pick. They are like sharks. They have not evolved in millions of years. And Paulus had been a consul before. He had commanded armies previously. This is not unusual. Most of the people in this story are having their second or even third crack at the top job. But it demonstrates that Paulus has been around. He is not totally out of his depth. He's been on campaign before. He fought some Greeks in one of the wars they had with the Greeks, and he was good enough to get a triumph, which was not easy to do. So this guy has some runs on the board. I've covered it before in depth, but if you don't know what a triumph is, basically you have to do a war so well that you get rich enough that you can afford to have a big parade and a massive party for everyone back in Rome. You take that much plunder, you get to have a triumph. And it was a really big deal to get a triumph. And Paulus had done well enough to earn himself one triumph. So he's a big deal. Unfortunately, Paulus also had a reputation for being a massive dick. And he was tried, but not convicted, of doing a huge corruption. So for anyone who thought that I was being unfair by labeling him a Tory, here he is with the classic Tory playbook of massive corruption. They have not evolved in thousands of years. Now, the other guy, Varro, on the other hand, he was a populari, a plebeian. He was new money. Varro was a man of the people. Varro was a commoner who was the first in his family to make it into politics. His father was a butcher, so very low-bred, which is something that his political opponents used to try and slander him, but the commoners of Rome loved him for it. Here's a poor guy made good, so they love that story. But what I lack in size, I make up for in... Obnoxiousness! And of course, the whole poor guy who becomes rich, that meant that the snobs of Rome hated him because, again, evolution, thousands of years. Which means that I instinctively like him, even though that's not a very good argument and I will be proven very wrong. Varro's consulship will not go well, but at least at this stage, at the very beginning, there are good signs. Polybius says in his history that supporters of Varro were, quote, were more notable for their number rather than their dignity, end quote. So that says a lot about Varro, but it says a lot more about Polybius because he was also a Tory. So Paulus was the rich guy that the rich people loved and the commoners hated, and Varro was the commoner that the rich people hated but the poor people loved. And, as per Roman political cultural convention, they decided to elect the yin and yang of Roman politics and see how well they mixed. So both Paulus and Varro get elected as consuls based on their anti-Hannibal platforms, which was the number one election issue of 216 BCE, and rightfully so. Somehow, pretty much everyone in Rome had managed to rationalize away their previous attempts to combat Hannibal. 
Never mind that every time Rome had battled Hannibal, they had been profoundly spanked. There was always a good reason for that. Some mitigating circumstance that meant that the Romans, oh, they just got unlucky again and again and again. Surely their luck is going to turn around. I mean, Hannibal got lucky with the weather. He got lucky with the way the winds were blowing. Hannibal got lucky with a random encounter. The gods weren't favorable on that particular day. The horoscope was off. Whatever. There was always a reason. Once again, a comparison between the Romans and the English cricket team is not out of order. As of recording this show, once again, the English cricket team are claiming that they're the best in the world, despite the fact that they finished last on the table of the cricket championship, below Afghanistan and the Dutch. As an Australian, this will never not be funny. But the Romans convinced themselves that they're the better army, with better troops and better generals, and Hannibal had just been outrageously lucky 3,000 times in a row, somewhere in this last three years of getting their asses kicked, and then an extended period of running away from the ass kicker, suddenly Rome are convinced that Hannibal, well, he isn't actually that good, is he? He's very overrated, Hannibal. He's just been exceedingly lucky dozens of times in a row. I did not care for the Godfather. What? Did not care for the Godfather. How can you even say that, Dad? Didn't like, didn't like it. Peter, it's so good. It's this, like the perfect movie. I, this is what everyone always says. Whenever they say, oh, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. I, I mean, you listen, never see... Robert Duvall! I, no, I, no, fine, fine actor. Did not like the movie. So the two consuls, Paulus and Varro, they decide that since Rome is obviously and demonstrably so much better than Hannibal, despite literally all evidence to the contrary... It's time to ride out and meet Hannibal head-on and send him directly to hell. No more of this Fabian strategy of running away. We're going to go out and meet Hannibal head-on. It's time to finally put an end to this Carthaginian army. And Hannibal, upon hearing about this development from his extensive spy network, Hannibal could not have been happier. This is like 10 Christmases come at once for him. Hannibal has spent months and months and months doing everything he can to try and get the Romans to come out and play. Nothing was working. None of his taunts were effective. And as we've discussed in this show and the last show, Hannibal really needs to keep that momentum going. He can't afford to sit around twiddling his thumbs because he has no supplies and his army all has ADD, so he needs to keep fighting, otherwise this whole operation will fall to shit very quickly. At this point in the story, Hannibal was in very real danger of being forced to give up and go home until these two Roman dickheads delivered him the best present he could have asked for. At the very first opportunity for Rome to have elections after this dictator, they held elections and a couple of demagogues had managed to rile the people up by lying to them and now the Romans were super keen for a fight. Hannibal could not have been happier and this is exactly why it's important to study history because it's happened again and 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 again. But this time, Rome has decided that they are done fucking around. We're going to ensure that we beat Hannibal this time. Maybe this time for sure. Things are gonna work out different, not the way they did before. This time for sure, lads, so let's leave nothing in the tank. By this point in the tale, the Romans were forced to concede that Hannibal was actually 
pretty clever. And they reluctantly admitted that Hannibal did seem to know what he was doing. So the Romans planned around that. Hannibal knows how to ambush. He's really good at ambushes, and we are reluctantly willing to concede that after he's ambushed three entire armies in a row, where well, he might just know a thing or two about ambushes, so we're just going to plan around being ambushed. Rome decided that Hannibal was inevitably going to ambush them, so they created an army that could not be ambushed. And the idea they had was to create the largest army that Rome had ever seen. Let's see Hannibal deal with this. We're just going for massive overkill at this point. Make the army so big, Hannibal cannot ambush it. So the Romans gather up an army of 90,000 men. 90,000. This is absolutely fucking huge. This army is twice the size of Hannibal's army, and then some. A typical Roman army in this period was about four legions worth of dudes. The force that Rome gathers here to fight Hannibal at this point in the story, that is 16 legions large, which is quite a bit more than four. And the idea is that there must be a point where it doesn't matter how brilliant Hannibal is, they're just going to zerg rush him with warm bodies until he's overwhelmed. Knowing their weakness, I sent wave after wave of my own men at them until they reached their limit and shut down. Kiff, show them the medal I won. They're just going to drown him in Roman corpses. It isn't pretty, but these are desperate times. Hannibal is, after all, at the gates. Just hit him with such a large army that no matter what manner of clever bullshit he's able to come up with, we deal with it just through the sheer fucking size of this never-before-seen army. And again, this is Rome's true superpower in action, their ability to keep finding armies. Trebia and Trasimene, either of those defeats would have wiped out any other ancient nation, let alone both of them back-to-back, -back. but now Rome not only has another army, they have one that is even bigger. Four times bigger, at least. Just for good measure, not only were there quadruple the usual amount of legions, they decided to expand those legions as well, to put more soldiers in each and every legion. So even though it's on paper four times larger, it's exponentially larger than that. They beefed up the legion size. This is a lot of men. This is easily the biggest army that Rome has ever assembled. It is one of the largest armies ever assembled in the ancient world by anyone. Full disclosure, from here on out, I'm going to take a few liberties with the story. It's still going to be factually accurate. I'd never lie to you, but for the purposes of narrative and structure, I am going to condense a few events and combine a couple of things. Nothing major, but it is going to make the whole thing much easier to listen to. This is one of those times when it's better to be a comedian than a historian, because it makes it easier to clean up the mess that is the ancient accounts of this battle. Because the narrative flows better if we stick to the general gist of what happened, rather than rigidly sticking to the exact timeline. So be warned, what I'm about to say is generally true, but if you're the kind of historical pedant that goes, oh, well, actually, this happened on this day and not that day, and there were this many men and not quite that many... 
yeah, I know. I'm just making it easier to listen to. But for the most part, you're not going to notice the difference. So Rome takes this fucking massive army they have assembled, and they set off to meet Hannibal in glorious combat. And they march off to meet Hannibal at a little town called Cannae in southeast Italy. You see, while Rome had been having elections over the winter, Hannibal, once again, had not exactly been idle either. As soon as the spring thaw hit, he brought his army out on the march and he captured a very important Roman supply depot, the town of Cannae. Cannae was the central hub for a lot of Roman agriculture in the region. It's surrounded by big farms, so there was plenty of food to be had at Cannae. And Hannibal's army was always short on supplies, so this was a very big win for him, capturing this huge food cache. You'll get historians like Livy try and tell you that Hannibal was on the brink of disaster here. I think the quote from Livy is that he only had about 10 days of food left, and that if the Romans had only waited that extra 10 days, then the war would have been very different. But you really have to doubt Livy's claim of 10 days because Livy specifically does not state that Cannae was a supply depot. Livy seems to go to pains to avoid mentioning that. Livy just makes it sound like there's no town there at all. Hannibal is just chilling out in a field for no reason, because why not? Livy does not mention that Hannibal had captured a large amount of supplies at Cannae because it doesn't fit with his narrative. It's kind of hard to be short on supplies when you have just captured a very large supply depot. Cannae was in the dead center of vast swathes of fertile land, and all of their harvests were gathered there. It is entirely possible that Hannibal may have been running out of supplies. He may have had 10 days worth of supplies left before he captured the town, but now he has more food than he can shake a stick at, which was Hannibal's plan the entire time. This wasn't the site of one of the biggest battles in history for no reason, there's a reason that Hannibal picked Cannae. He needed food, so he went out and captured food, and there was food to be had at Cannae. So Hannibal takes this crucial supply depot, and the Romans would rather that he did not do that. They don't like the idea of Hannibal eating their barley and drinking their wine. That, and the fact that Rome was spoiling for a fight anyway, so they don't even need the pretext of recapturing those supplies, but it is always important to have a legitimate Cassus Belli just in case. What's important is that Rome knows that Hannibal has just taken the town of Cannae. Which means that they know where Hannibal is. He's at Cannae. He's not out ambushing them somewhere. He's not doing some nigh-impossible death march through the underworld. He is at Cannae right now. We know where he is. So the two Roman consuls, Varro and Paulus, they gather up this massive sledgehammer of an army that is one of the biggest ever assembled, and they send it off to Cannae to take on the handman. And... Depending on which side of the battle you're on, this is about to be either the largest military defeat in history, or the greatest battle ever fought, depending on whether you're Roman or Carthaginian. Regardless of where you stand, it is objectively true that this is going to be the most lethal single day of fighting in human history until the Somme in 1916 more than two millennia later. And there's no use burying the lead here. This battle is why I chose to do a series on Hannibal. It's that important. Everything else in this story in these last four episodes has been pretty entertaining. Sure, there's a lot of good stuff there, but Cannae is something different. 
what is about to become famous as the Battle of Cannae, Hannibal Barker is about to win what is considered almost universally to be the greatest military victory in the history of mankind. To date. As in, he still holds the record. What he does here is that brilliant. Hannibal's command here has been described by many of the greatest military leaders of all time. People like Julius Caesar, Frederick the Great, Clausewitz, Napoleon, Bomonke, Patton. Hell, even Norman Schwarzkopf considers Hannibal's command at Cannae to be the pinnacle of the art of war. Often imitated, but never bettered. Hannibal has pulled off the impossible no less than five times already in this series, but what he does here is going to make all of that look nickel and dime. There's impossible, there's Hannibal impossible, and then there's can I. Get ready Get for the, ready next, for the battle. Next, battle. next battle. Hannibal's army is significantly outnumbered here. He's got less than half of the soldiers that Rome are sending at him. Now, I don't know where all of you sit in the conversation of greatest military commanders of all time, but I think we can all agree that this is less than ideal. If possible, you would prefer that your army had at least roughly the same amount of murder bots as the guy coming after you. Hannibal doesn't have that. He's outnumbered somewhere between 2 and 3 to 1. But there's a crucial detail. While Hannibal has less total murder bots... He has more horse-mounted murder bots. I keep talking about the cavalry because it is just that important. There is no substitute for good cavalry, and it's a large part of why everything in this tale happens the way it does. You need a cavalry advantage. Hannibal has about 10,000 cavalry, and it's his awesome cavalry that we've covered so much already. These guys have killed so many Romans over the last couple of years that it has become muscle memory for them. They can do it in their sleep. The Romans, on the other hand, are coming in with 6,000 cavalry tops. Rome might be able to keep finding soldiers to run into Carthaginian spears, but it's a lot easier to replace foot soldiers than it is to replace cavalry. So while Rome has this supernatural ability to replace their casualties after every one of these battles, they haven't been able to keep replacing their horsey men. If you hand a farmer a pilum and a scutum, he's not a farmer anymore, he's a legionary, he's a soldier. But equites are different. Equites are the landed gentry of Rome. It takes a generation to replace those guys if they go down. And Hannibal has been running train on Roman cavalry for years now. Not only that, not only the thousands of casualties, but remember, after the Battle of Trasimene, he took 6,000 cavalry reinforcements hostage without a shot being fired in anger. That 6,000 cavalry just wiped off the board without even doing anything. So Rome, for all of their scary, massive, fuck-you nature of this humungadunga King Kamehameha army that they've just assembled, it is all show and no go. They do not walk the talk. There is fuck all cavalry here, and that's going to be a huge difference. A life and death difference. But that's a problem for the future. Right now, the largest army Rome has ever assembled has just rocked up to the outskirts of Cannae, prepared to throw down with Hannibal. Almost immediately upon their arrival, the Roman consuls started bickering. 
because that's how the system always works. We had a good 18-month span there where we had one guy in charge and there wasn't bickering, but now we're back to opposite dipshits with equal power and it's going about as well as it always does. Paulus doesn't like the look of the terrain. There was a lot of open, flat ground around Cannae. Remember, this place is mostly farmland. Vast open fields. That kind of terrain suits cavalry. And you know who's got really good cavalry? And considering that the best element of the Roman cavalry had been captured without even fighting, this is less than ideal for the Romans. So Paulus is suspicious of this place from the get-go. He's thinking that maybe Hannibal has lured the Romans to a place where his cavalry can have what is, quite literally, a field day. Varro is way more gung-ho in true Roman fashion. He says, So what if this is prime cavalry terrain? Look at us, we outnumber him two to one. And if I remember my Roman numerals correctly, two guys equals at least one horse, so we're good. I don't care how awesome Hannibal is, there's no way that each of his guys is going to kill two of our guys, let's go and get him. That is, of course, unless you are a coward, Paulus. Chica chica chica! Chica chica chica! And you have to remember... All 90,000 of these Roman soldiers are super keen to get to the fighting. They hated the Fabian strategy. They want to cover themselves in blood and glory. Why would we come all of this way to Cannae and not fight the Carthaginians? Send us in, coach. We've got hoop dreams. We've got them bad. So remember the way the consuls work. They each command the army every other day. And they're politically opposite. Hannibal, of course, knows all of this. He has very good spies. So on Paulus's day of command, he actually forms his army up and offers battle. He provokes Paulus into a confrontation. Chica, chica, chica! Chica, chica, chica! I'll meet you at the abandoned aqueduct. For the death race. Yes, the death race. And he does this deliberately, because he knows that Paulus is going to refuse to take the field. Which is sensible. Hannibal knows that he can't bait Paulus into fighting. Paulus is the cautious one. He doesn't want a bar of it. This whole procession of Hannibal trying to bait him into a trap, it reeks of Hannibal trying to bait him into a trap because it looks identical to the last two traps that Hannibal laid that ended so badly for the Romans. So Paulus is not going to fall for some Hannibal bullshit. The Roman army isn't going to walk into an ambush on Paulus's day of command. He won't wear that on his record, so he declines battle. There will be no combat today. And he has a point. Hannibal is very famous for bullshit by now. Besides his actions in the previous battles, he's known for his deception and misdirection, which is now actually starting to work against him. The Romans don't appear to be as dumb as they usually are, and they're not walking into ambushes anymore. Once upon a time, a year ago, Romans would have been falling over themselves to walk into an ambush. But now, Hannibal's reputation precedes him, and the Romans are beginning to believe in the conceptual idea of ambushes. There's a story about how Hannibal left his camp wide open and abandoned, the gates ajar and with treasure just strewn everywhere, and then he had his army hide on a nearby hill in ambush. But the Romans didn't take the bait, because that's just too suspicious. It was the classic empty fort gambit, Zhuge Ling style, if you can remember that far back in this podcast's lifespan. 
So the Romans, seeing the empty fort, they went, oh yeah, obvious trap, and didn't take the bait. And this actually happens a couple of times. And in one account, Paulus decides not to engage in combat because as he was drawing up the battle plans for that day, as he's getting his tactics together and moving some markers on a map, he sees a bunch of his chickens were not eating the food that he had given them. So that's enough to say, nope, no battle today. There's a lot to unpack there, and we're already light on time, but just take it for granted that Paulus was the kind of guy who, A, brought his pet chickens with him on campaign, because that's nowhere near the weirdest thing we've discussed so far, and B, is the kind of person who believes in omens. So Paulus is drawing up the battle plans, and the chickens aren't eating, which, as everyone in the audience who owns a chicken can tell you, when a chicken is off its food, that means that Hannibal is about to ambush you. Ask any chicken owner, not eating their food means a Hannibal ambush. It's as true today as it was back then. The chickens weren't eating, that's a bad omen, and the gods were telling Paulus not to fall for Hannibal's trap. But then again, to the Romans, absolutely everything was an omen from the gods, and omens always mean exactly what you want them to, so... There is that, but that's the context of the story. So anyway, one of Hannibal's ambushes didn't happen because Paulus was a super religious guy and his chickens just happened to not be hungry one day. So there's no battle. There's also another account of this very same event that says that at the same time as the gods were giving their chicken omen, some local farmers from the area rode up to Paulus and they said, oh yeah, hey Paulus, yeah, I thought you should know that uh, Hannibal is on the other side of that hill over there and he's planning to horribly murder you, so uh, maybe don't go near that hill today. So I will let you guys all decide amongst yourselves which one of those accounts is true, the farmers or the chicken omen, but to the ancients, both of those were equally valid. There's another event that Polybius and Livy both mention, although their timelines get mixed up, but it probably actually happened, in that a force of Romans had a chance encounter with a small force of Carthaginians. And in this small skirmish that nobody saw coming, the Romans were actually winning, and winning by a lot, so the Carthaginians retreated. Most of the Roman army, including Varro, wanted the Romans to pursue the Carthaginians and wipe them out, because, hey, that's how ancient warfare works. But since it was Paulus's day of command and not Varro's, he ordered the army to disengage and not pursue the Carthaginians, because obviously this is another trap. So the Romans backed off, and again, there was no battle that day. And the Roman soldiers hated Paulus for this especially the other consul, Varro, denying them the glory of killing Hannibal and avenging their country. But there are a couple of points in Paulus's defense here. One is that it would later turn out that this was indeed another classic Hannibal ambush and the Romans would have been absolutely slaughtered, vindicating Paulus's decision. And the other point is that this is exactly the same thing as it happened at the Battle of Trebia, and Paulus seems to be the only Roman in this story with any sort of object permanence. The thing is, though, with Hannibal constantly baiting Paulus, the goal wasn't exactly to get Paulus to commit to a battle. That was never the intention. If he did, that would be great. Hannibal absolutely wanted to throw down and pull off one of his trademark ambushes, but there was another goal in mind. Every time Hannibal taunted the Romans, and every time Paulus backed off, the Romans got more and more enraged. 
and that was the goal. Every time that Paulus took the extremely reasonable position of not getting everyone horribly murdered, the Romans grew more and more mutinous because they thought that he was keeping them back from their obvious, inevitable victory that was totally going to happen. So all of this weakens Paulus's command and strengthens that of the guy who actually wants to fight, the other consul, Varro. The entire army comes very close to mutiny, declaring Paulus a coward. Chica, chica, chica! And before he'd stepped down as dictator, Fabius Maximus, a couple of months before this, he'd pulled the incoming consul Paulus aside, and he warned Paulus about this Hannibal dude. And he advised Paulus to follow the Fabian strategy. Do not engage Hannibal. Wait for his supplies to run out. Wait for Hannibal to make a mistake. Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you kill a Hannibal. And apparently, Paulus was very keen on this advice. He followed it to the letter. But not everyone in the army got the memo and they were all clamoring for combat with the Carthaginians. Apparently. You should always remember that it is an entirely reasonable position to go in thinking that both Polybius and Livy are utterly full of shit and making all of this up on the spot. That is always a valid position. In fact, recent historical consensus is that it was actually Paulus in charge of what was going to become the Cani clusterfuck and not Varro, but that didn't fit the narrative of how rich people are always smarter that both Polybius and Livy are trying to sell to people. So keep that in mind. But also keep in mind that although the sources might be tainted, they're the only sources we have. So I'll be sticking to the accounts of Polybius, which is a new term that I came up where I smashed together Polybius and Livy. So I'll be telling the story the way they told it, but be cognizant that it may or may not be utter bullshit. And ultimately, it doesn't matter who ends up in charge on the day of the Battle of Cannae, it's not going to affect the story in any way, but I thought you should all be going in with your eyes open. And we also get some more classic Polybian and Livian bias here. In particular, you can never trust Polybius. Remember how I said he was tied in with the Scipio family, which was why he was always saying how awesome the Scipios were? Well, Polybius happened to be besties with the grandson of Paulus the guy in charge here, which is hardly objective. And Polybius's accounts of this battle is a very pro-Paulus and very anti-Varro account. And in the Polybius version, Varro comes off very poorly indeed. And a lot of it is because of Polybius's innate bias being best friends with Paulus's grandson. And a lot more of it is because Varro was a populari and a commoner. And as a Tory, Polybius hated him for being a union man. But a fair chunk of it is that Varro, ultimately, he is going to be the one that's responsible for getting a fair percentage of the total Roman population at the time killed. Which is a long way of saying that Polybius has an axe to grind with Varro, and he might not be completely fair with him, but also there are legitimate reasons to grind that axe. Livy, in his version... He has Fabius Maximus pulling Paulus aside before the battle, before they all head off for war and have a word to him. And in this, he says, you're actually fighting two battles here. There's the fight against Hannibal and the Carthaginians, but there is also the fight against Varro. Because Varro is brash and stupid and impetuous, and he's a filthy commoner. He's the son of a butcher. 
So you know he's going to do something stupid because poor people are always stupid. That's why they're poor. And one day, this philosophy will be codified by John Calvin and will become the basis for 20th century economics. And once again, you have to marvel how Livy managed to capture this private conversation word for word when he lived over a hundred years later, and also managed to accurately predict the future of socioeconomics. The guy must have been a brilliant historian. Either that or I'm putting words into his mouth. Both the same thing, really. So in all of the ancient sources, there is a concerted effort to paint Paulus as the cautious one who is following a plan that had worked in the past, the Fabian strategy, as dictated by Fabius Maximus himself. So Paulus is the cautious one, and Varro is the jock idiot who gets everyone killed. And we can't prove that this exchange between Fabius and Paulus ever actually happened, but we can't disprove it either. And Kenai does turn into a shitfight between the two consoles, so there is a grain of truth there somewhere. But anyway, Paulus elects not to take Hannibal up on his offer for battle, and there is no battle that day, or any of the Paulus days. After his gambit to draw out Paulus didn't work, Hannibal decided to use the terrain around Cannae to piss the Romans off. Remember, this is the biggest army that Rome has ever assembled in one place at the same time. So the army camp is massive. It sprawls. It's like Woodstock. And large camps require an epic amount of logistics just to keep everyone from shitting themselves to death. The Art of War actually spends a lot of time discussing just how important your logistics are, because otherwise your soldiers are all going to shit themselves to death. In this case, it takes a lot of water to keep everyone hydrated, washed, and to flush all of their shit away so they don't shit themselves to death. And there happened to be two lakes that ran around the side of Cannae. Again, it's farmland. Farm needs water for irrigation. That's why everything is like it is. So there are two significant lakes that the Romans have decided to camp between. Most of their army is on one side of these lakes, and about a third of it is on the other side. Hannibal gets his Numidians, who were always his chief mischief makers, and he sends them out to make everyone in the Roman camps miserable, to maybe provoke a battle. And this is the third time in this series that they've done this. The Romans needed to distribute water through this massive camp, which meant that they had to send people out to gather the water in buckets. There's no plumbing in an impromptu war camp, even if plumbing is a Latin word, so everyone has their water needs met by grabbing a couple of buckets and trekking on down to the lake and hauling that water back to wherever you came from. And Hannibal sent a bunch of his light, fast horsemen to murder the people who were out there picking up the water. Which sucks if you're Roman. Oh, you wanted a drink of water or you want to wash yourself or you want to take a shit? Well, you get to meet Mr. Javelin. And surprisingly, the Romans weren't too keen on meeting Mr. Javelin, so the water has stopped flowing. Everyone is thirsty, everyone is dirty, everyone's too scared to take a shit, because taking a shit is when you're going to get stabbed, and nobody in history has ever been keen to get stabbed mid-shit. Everyone knows that an absolutely colossal battle is going to take place soon, any day now, but nobody knows when. And until then, the waiting game and the sniping from the Numidian horsemen, that's creating a very, very tense environment for the Romans. Everyone is on edge. The next day, it's Varro's turn to command. Because this is obviously a great system with no flaws. 
And that day, Varro offers battle. No more of this waiting around bullshit, let's force the issue. We've got a massive fuck-off army, let's go and remove Hannibal from the board. And the army lets up a cheer, because this is exactly what they've been fanging for this entire time. They are super keen. It is only that coward Paulus that has been holding us back. But it was his day in charge yesterday. Today, he can't do dick. All he can do is watch and lament how his cowardice means that he won't get a triumph back in Rome when we wipe out the Carthaginians. Varro gathers the army up, and he actually beefs it up. Remember that Roman politicians all had to serve 10 years in the army before they can become politicians, so Varro knows a thing or two about battle. He's no military genius, but he's not completely out of his depth either. The guy is an utter dickhead in a lot of ways, but I can't fault this one particular thing he's about to do. I mean, it is going to result in about 100,000 people getting brutally murdered, but he didn't know that at the time, and the principle is sound, so we can't blame him for trying. If you remember all the way back in episode 1, what feels like decades ago, I discussed phalanx strategy. And remember how the Thebans discovered that the way to overpower other phalanxes was to make your phalanx bigger and heavier, to cram more people into a tighter space so that you have this enormous blob of flesh and pointy metal? Well, Varro knew this. And again, in his defense, this idea is sound. Thebes used it to conquer most of Greece. Philip and Alexander used it to conquer Thebes, and then most of the rest of the world. The principle is sound. There's no reason that this will not work on the Carthaginians. Well, there is one reason, and his name is Hannibal. But again, who's to know at this point? You can't fault Varro for this. Varro takes his already staggeringly large army, and he Thebans it right up. He has his troops packed in tighter and tighter. He adds more rows of legionaries, more ranks, and he makes the formations extra deep to give them that extra punch. It's like hiding a roll of coins in your fist when you punch someone, it weights the entire blow. He's doing that on an army scale. He takes his entire army and he concentrates it. He puts more guys in less space. This goes against most of Roman military doctrine at the time. Remember that Roman armies were designed to be looser and more flexible than a phalanx. But this comes with a cost. That's why I spend so much time on tactics and equipment, so we don't have to do that now. The looser composition of the Roman maniple was what made them so dangerous. It was how they managed to wipe out the Greeks and the Carthaginians in the First Punic War. But you have to remember that Rome has not beaten Hannibal yet. They haven't come close to parity. So Varro breaking from convention in an effort to defeat Hannibal, that's not the craziest idea in the world. He needs to try something, and he's deciding to do things old school. By packing his troops in tight like this, Varro plans to lose the flexibility and maneuverability that Roman cohorts or maniples are famous for, but as a trade-off, he vastly improves their ability to punch through enemy lines. It might be contrary to their battle doctrine, but remember, Hannibal has been eating these Roman armies like skittles, so I can't blame Varro for mixing it up. Varro's plan is to use this massive ball of men to just bludgeon their way through Hannibal's army. 
There is no subtlety here. This is designed to be a steamroller. And remember, this army is twice as big as Hannibal's. The plan is to just sledgehammer the Carthaginians and bury them with the sheer size and weight of the Roman army. At the last major engagement, the Battle of Trasimene, the Romans had four legions. This Roman army has 16. Surely that is enough to get the job done, right? Of course not, and don't call me Shirley. Hannibal looks at this Roman army that is twice the size of his, and instead of being scared by it, he is stoked. Because that just means that there's twice as many Romans to kill. Everything is coming up Millhouse. We have you four to one. I like those odds. It's now the early morning of the 2nd of August, 216 BCE. Well, technically not August, not back then. That guy hasn't been born yet, but you get the idea. It's that time of year. And now, the time for battle has finally come. Rome and Carthage spend the early hours of the morning forming up into their respective battle formations. And now, we have arrived at the fabled Battle of Cannae. Varro sets up his sledgehammer. He has the Roman cavalry anchoring the right flank by the lake, and the allied cavalry on his left. And the rest of his infantry is now in this super dense ball of killbots. About 80,000 killbots, give or take. We can never know the real numbers of such things, but that's the ballpark figure for how many troops Rome are putting in the field. And they're packed in tighter than usual. And Varro, he aims this death ball directly at Hannibal. I'm not doing it justice here. You really need to spend some effort imagining just how astonishingly massive this Roman army is. Have you ever been to a packed out sporting event or a huge concert at a major stadium? That's how many Romans there are here. 80,000 Romans. There are four times as many Roman soldiers, just the Romans, as there were total people at the Battle of Hastings. As in both sides. The Roman army here is staggeringly large. And I think this is the first time in this series that I'm turning to Plutarch. So that's interesting, if true. But Plutarch has a great line in his book called Parallel Lives, which he wrote about 300 years after the Battle of Cannae. And according to Plutarch, the Carthaginians are lining up opposite this Roman Zerg swarm. And we'll get to Carthage in a bit. But the Carthaginians are watching the Romans form up, and the Romans just keep forming up. More and more men just keep entering formation. It seems like it goes on forever. The Roman army stretches as far as the eye can see. There are that many people there. It is the most people that anyone has ever seen in one place before. And Hannibal's army are watching the Romans form up, and most of them are, if not scared, then at least a little bit apprehensive. Which I think is fair, watching this many people form up and all of them have the intent of stabbing you to death, that is going to make you a little bit tetchy. And one of Hannibal's closest lieutenants, a guy by the very unlikely name of Gizgo, 
This Gizgo guy, he looks at the Romans forming up, and he says to Hannibal, the size of that army is astonishing. And Hannibal turns to Gizgo, and he says, why yes, yes, that's true. But you know what's even more astonishing? There's got to be at least 80,000 men in that Roman army, and not a single one of them is named Gizgo. That's astonishing. And then everyone laughed because, in my opinion, as a professional comedian with 20 years of experience, that is a genuinely great line. The size of that army is astonishing. Yeah, but what's even more astonishing is that none of those 80,000 people is named Gizgo. What a weird name, Gizgo. Why did your parents name you Gizgo? Gizgo? So Hannibal can do comedy too. Add that to his CV. So the Romans are forming up and forming up and forming up, and since this is the biggest army that Rome has ever put together, there's a few command and control issues here. They have no idea how to actually command this many men. Nobody has any idea how to actually get orders to this many people. Nobody's ever put this many people in the field before, so they've got to make it up on the fly here. And this Roman death ball, which is particularly condensed, it's not as big as it usually would be because of all of the condensed people crushed in with the sole purpose of murdering Hannibal. The Roman battlefront is still about two kilometers from one end to the other. That is a long way to have to relay orders. The current world record for running one kilometer is just over two minutes. Assuming that your command center is somewhere in the, you know, the center, then you're looking at about three minutes between sending an order and that order actually getting to the people being ordered. I'm assuming that the people in the Roman army weren't current level Olympians, so that's why I'm playing around with the time there. And in the chaos of battle, a lot can happen in those three minutes. A battle can be won and lost in three minutes between when you send the order and when the order is actually received. So the Romans have an idea. And it's basically the equivalent of why a dinosaur had two brains. Because this army is so fucking big, both of the consoles are going to have to command it at the same time. And instead of being in the middle, they're each going to be on one of the edges, so that they can get orders out as quickly as possible. So they have the two consoles, Paulus and Varro, on the flanks with the cavalry. And the infantry is in the middle, and that is being commanded by a few proconsuls that happen to be there as well. A proconsul is a guy who used to be a consul, but then his term was up, so he's now no longer a consul. So a proconsul is basically an ex-president. You keep them around because while they're not in charge anymore, they do know what it's like to be in charge, so they're super experienced and very useful. So there's a couple of proconsuls in this army, and they're being used as subcommanders. Each one gets a little section of the army. And what this means is that there are a lot of very important, majorly important Roman political figures at this battle, and most of them are dead set in the thick of the Roman death ball. So when you've got this many troops at a battle, commanding them becomes a real big issue, hence the number of generals that we have in play here. But even then, it's difficult. There's a lot of noise and chaos at any battle, let alone a battle of this size. So the more troops that you have, the harder it is to give them orders. How do you go about issuing those orders and then making sure that those orders are received and carried out? It's nearly impossible, so the Romans don't even try. 
the Romans had to go into Cannae with a very simple battle plan. There's no room for getting cute here. Everyone gets really simple orders at the start, and then you stick to those orders as much as possible and hope for the best. And the plan was for this massive death ball to just punch through the guts of the Carthaginian army, try and kill Hannibal himself, but just smash his army through sheer weight of numbers. Everyone just keeps pushing forward until we win. That's the plan. Hannibal is going to try and do some bullshit because that's what Hannibals do, but it won't matter. If all of our men know that the plan is to keep pushing forward until the enemy breaks, then we won't really need to issue any orders at all. Everyone knows what to do. You just keep pushing forward. Simple, right? The problem was, of course, that Hannibal was not an idiot. He had thought of this as well. Hannibal knew better than anyone how hard it is to command an army of that size, and he anticipated that the only way that the Romans would be able to accomplish commanding an army of this size would be to keep it simple. So he took a guess at what the Roman tactics were going to be, and as it would turn out, he was bang on the money. After all, it's what he'd do in that situation. So Hannibal knew what the Romans' plan was. And Hannibal's plan for countering the Romans was to just let them do exactly what they were planning. Just let the Roman battle plan go right ahead, let it all play out. That way, they wouldn't realize just how fucked they were until Hannibal was in up to the hilt. Oh, interesting side note here. I know I do side notes a lot. Welcome to ADD Guy Does Podcasting. Facts get thrown in randomly. You love it. Come on, admit it. You love it. Hannibal's army had, up until this point, Hannibal's army had been so successful and captured or killed so many Romans, and they had looted so much Roman stuff, that by all accounts, I'm talking like uh, Polybius, Livy, Plutarch, Appian, those guys, all accounts, Hannibal's infantry at the Battle of Cannae actually looked like Roman legionaries, until you got right up close and realized that they were African. This isn't part of some trap or anything. Hannibal isn't doing a false flag attack here. He's not faking the Romans into thinking it's a friendly army. I just thought it was interesting that Hannibal was so successful that he'd managed to capture so much Roman gear that his army was effectively dressed the same as the Romans. They were all decked out in Roman kit. So Hannibal's army at this point, at the Battle of Cannae, despite being made up of people from dozens of different nations all over Africa and the Mediterranean, they all look like Romans because of how many Romans they killed. Alright, end ADD tangent. Hannibal deploys his troops opposite the Romans. Like I said in the last show, Hannibal is known for doing the one percenters better than anyone else, finding any small advantage he can and exploiting it, and if you have enough one percenters in your favor, then they can add up to a total victory, and Hannibal does this better than anyone. And he does it particularly well here. At Cannae, Hannibal had his troops positioned to the east of the Romans. So what, you might say? Well, The battle starts at dawn, as most battles did. And if you're to the east of the other army, that means that they're going to be staring directly into the rising sun during the first couple of hours of combat. See? It's the one percenters. 
and this particular region of Italy at Cannae was known for a southeasterly breeze that rose up around mid-morning, which meant that once the advantage of the sun was lost, when it rose high enough, now there was a wind that blew dirt and debris into the faces of the Romans as they fought. And this is well before the invention of speed dealer Oakley sunglasses, so they're getting grit in their eyes. It's the little things that make all the difference, and Hannibal did the little things better than anyone else. So here's how Hannibal's army is going to line up in response to the Romans. And this is going to be crucial. It all hinges on this, so it's important to pay attention. On the flanks, he has his cavalry, which is what everyone does. Nothing unusual there. You want your horses to be able to run around freely for maximum effect, so you put your cavalry on the sides, just like the Romans are doing. But up against the Roman allied cavalry, so people that weren't Romans, like the Samnites or the Etruscans or whatever, up against these guys, he has his Numidian light cavalry. But up against the actual Roman cavalry, the Roman nobles, the Equites, Hannibal sends his heavy cavalry, his Libyan and Spanish cav, his heavy-hitting bad motherfuckers. He's going to hit Rome's cavalry the hardest. Then, inside of this, he has his infantry. Again, nothing unusual here. They're lining up exactly the same as the Romans because that's how you did things. On the wings of his infantry are the Africans. So people from in and around Carthage itself, Libyans, Gaetulans, people from all the way down to the Sahara. These were his absolute best troops. These were the elites that had come across with Pappy Hamilcar, and they're propping up the edges of the army. It needs to be said again, because I haven't done it in this show, that these dudes are scary as all shit to a Roman at this time. They're not sub-Saharan Africans, so they don't have the pure dark complexion. They're not your Zulu types. But these guys would have been darker skinned than Romans were used to, and Romans were very racist. So this is scary. And they're decked out in things like war paint and feathers and leopard skins and other exotic stuff. So these guys would have been super freaky deaky to a Roman who was used to seeing people who look like him. This is some weird shit to be dealing with. And also, like most of Hannibal's army, they're wearing captured Roman gear. So seeing someone this exotic in the armor of a guy that you might have known before he got turned into a football has a huge psychological impact. And also, these guys used exotic weapons like a sword, which is called a chotel, which is basically a massive, oversized sickle, a big curved sword. And these might look unwieldy, but the idea of curved swords go all the way back to the Kopesh of the ancient Egyptians, and the idea was that these bad boys could actually curve around a large shield, like the kind that the Romans used. And then they could start to cut up the person behind the shield, or hook into the shield and rip that shield off, at which point you would start cutting into the poor bastard who, until a second ago, had a shield he thought was useful. So these Africans are some badass motherfuckers, and they are scary to the Romans. And then, in the middle of the army, meeting the Roman death ball head-on, were the Spanish and the Gauls. The people who had signed up most recently. And, one could argue, the people who were the most expendable. It's brutal, but that's how the world works. But crucially, absolutely crucially, in this block of loose allies, the people of the most questionable commitment to the cause, the ones whose loyalties, while not being questioned, they were not as diehard in their support of Hannibal as the Africans. In the dead center, in the middle of this force of people who may or may not be entirely committed to the cause, 
dead set in the middle of them, smack bang in the center of the army, at the tip of the spear, was none other than Hannibal Barker himself. He was in the absolute middle of the army. He was leading from the front. The first Roman skull taken this day will be cleaved off by Hannibal himself. Blood for the blood god, skulls for the skull throne. Well, kinda. Hannibal was absolutely at the center of the army. He and his brother Mago were personally leading the attack from the front. But it wasn't out of an Alexander the Great-style sense of glory hunting and sheer lunacy. That wasn't Hannibal's style. This was more out of necessity. While Hannibal never shied away from a fight, he was quite good at it, Hannibal knew that he was more effective if he was up on a hill, able to see everything and making sure that the battle was going smoothly. You know, being a general. But this time, he couldn't do that. He had to be in the thick of it. And the reason is because his plan is incredibly dangerous. And by putting himself directly at the center of that danger, he's showing his men that he is willing to put his money where his mouth is. It's one thing to send men to die in an incredibly risky plan. That makes people edgy. But if the guy ordering you to do it has put his balls on the chopping block too, people tend to have a bit more confidence in the operation. This incredibly audacious plan that was fantastically dangerous, Hannibal wasn't sending anyone to do anything he wouldn't do himself. He believed in the plan, and that's why he was in the thick of it. So he's saying to all of these people around him, you guys aren't cannon fodder. You're not here to be a meat shield, and the very fact that I'm standing here with you proves it. There is a plan in play here. I need you to trust me. And he had to go to these lengths because the plan was, in true Hannibal style, utterly bonkers. His plan was that the middle section of the army, the meat of the army, where Hannibal himself was fighting, the plan was that that section of the army was going to lose. They're going to let the Romans win. See? Crazy. Hannibal level crazy. The plan is to deliberately lose this battle. Not quickly, mind you. They're not going to throw their spears down and run away, nothing like that. There needs to be craft to this, there needs to be an art. And Hannibal was an artist of war. Hannibal knew that the Romans were going to be sending their best men in a huge wedge to try and break open the Carthaginian center. And, hopefully for the Romans, bulldoze right through to the other side. Hannibal's plan was that he was going to let them. Very slowly, very, very slowly, the Carthaginian center was going to give ground to the Romans. Whenever the Romans pushed, Carthage would back off a few meters. Every now and then, the Carthaginians would take a step back, and the Romans, instinctively, would take a step forward to close the gap once again. That's just basic human nature, and it's how these people have been trained for war all their lives in the ancient world. When a gap opens up between the two phalanxes, you step in and fill it, and eventually, you push the enemy back far enough that they decide to quit and run away. That's how ancient warfare has been working for thousands of years at this point. It's so ingrained that none of the Romans would have even been thinking about it. They wouldn't even be conscious of this happening because it would simply not occur to them to look. 
It's like, uh, how often do you think about which sock you put on first? That's how instinctive it is to the Roman troops. And we're talking at an army-wide scale here. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers are fighting in this battle. Nobody is going to notice that the entire army has taken one step backwards. Or another step backwards. In fact, this whole thing is going to take place in such tiny increments that the Romans are never going to notice it happening at all. But it's what Hannibal had planned the entire time. Quite a few authorities on history have described Hannibal's maneuvers at the Battle of Cannae as an equivalent of battlefield judo, and that is the best description for it. Judo is all about using an opponent's body weight and momentum against them, and Hannibal is doing exactly that, but for tens of thousands of people at one time. What's about to happen is going to make the legend of Hannibal Barker. Everything he's done up until this point has been brilliant. He's easily already one of the best generals of all time. But what he does here takes him from brilliant to mythical. In case you were wondering, this is one of the ways that you can carve your name into history for all time. You just simply need to be the best of all time at war. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the bulge, so this is the bulge. No, don't be nasty. The troops in the middle of the field, where Hannibal and Mago are, they actually bulge out a little bit past the line of battle, by at least a couple of dozen meters. So everyone's not in a straight line in Hannibal's army. They actually bulge into a convex shape in the middle. And a lot has been made of this ever since. Was it intentional? Was it an accident? Either is a good guess, but in my estimation, nothing about Hannibal was ever an accident. And the thing about having a bulge in the troops in the formation here is that it gave the Romans something to aim at. A big, convex group right in the center of the army for the Roman sledgehammer to aim at and try to hit. And the Romans can't help themselves. It's too tempting a target. Again, it's instinctive. They don't even know they're doing it. And over the next couple of hours, the bulge is going to go from being a protruding, convex part of the line, and it's going to collapse back into a concave shape. It becomes a funnel that draws the Romans in closer and closer. So I don't think it's an accident, but then again, what do I know? I'm a comedian, so choose your own adventure. So that's how everyone's formed up. Now, the battle is engaged. Welcome to the Battle of Cannae. We start off with the cavalry getting it on. But at Cannae, there isn't as much room for the cavalry to operate as much as cavalry would like. Now, I said that these are big, vast, open fields that cavalry would have a candy land in, and usually that would be the case. But there are just so many troops in play here, the lines are so long, that the cavalry doesn't have the full room to maneuver that they would at any other battle at any other point in history. They're between the infantry and the lakes. And this influences how the cavalry battle is going to be fought. Usually, cavalry likes to keep on the move. They like to ride in, strike, and then ride back out and do it all again. If cavalry ever comes to a complete stop, that cavalry is usually dead cavalry, because barding isn't really a thing in this era, so the horses aren't armoured. So if a horse comes to a stop, you can then kill that horse, it goes down, it pins its rider underneath it, he can't get out, and then you can just leave him there stuck under a horse and come back and stab him in the throat later. 
spoiler alert, this is going to happen to the Romans a lot. So because of the size of the armies, the cavalry on both sides can't do their usual free-flowing attacks. So they just run into each other and start duking it out blow for blow. But remember, not only does Hannibal have better cavalry, his cavalry is great counter-cavalry. They specialize at taking out enemy cav. Even the horses are dicks, they bite and spit at enemy horses. So Hannibal has a massive advantage right from the get-go, and Rome's cavalry get blown off the park at the start of the battle. It's over very quickly. Carthage's cab just decimates them. And this isn't one of those cases like it has been in the previous shows where the cavalry realize that they're being beaten and then they run away and ride off and try again later. The Roman horse contingent gets wiped the fuck out at the start of the battle. They die. This is unusual. You expect your cavalry to retreat but remain a force. You don't expect them to die. It's very bad for the Romans. It means that Roman cavalry is not playing any further part in this battle because they're all very dead. Hannibal's cavalry kicks the ever-loving shit out of the Romans and wipes them off the battlefield in approximately 12 seconds. Hannibal's army overall was much smaller, half the size of the Romans, but his huge cavalry advantage has paid dividends, and now the Romans have no cavalry of their own in support while Hannibal's horsey death squads can come in and do horrible murders to the exposed Roman flanks without any fear of reprisal. The cavalry victory for Hannibal is so comprehensive that the side with the Hispanic cavalry, who was led by a guy named Hasdrubal, but not any of the other famous Hasdrubals in this story, just a completely different Hasdrubal, everyone was named Hasdrubal, this guy wipes out his Roman opponents so quickly that he's actually able to take his forces and ride around the entire battlefield, kilometers and kilometers worth. He rides around the entire outside of the battlefield to the other flank. He's gone completely to the other side of the battlefield and he helps out the Numidian cavalry there and together they wipe out the rest of the Roman cavalry. And then they combine and Hannibal's two cavalry forces consolidate, and they cut off any chance of a Roman retreat. They own the region in behind the Romans. They start hitting the Romans from behind, which is super duper bad for the Romans. A phalanx getting hit from behind is usually the end of that phalanx, and at this battle, it is no exception. If you get hit in the back once, you're going to take massive casualties that could decide a battle, Hasdrubal and his cavalry are hitting the Roman rear time and time again all day, reaping an unholy orgy of violence. So the battle's pretty much over at this point. It's going to take a whole day of fighting and dying, and the Romans definitely do not realize it yet, but they have already lost. But the big show hasn't even begun yet. It's time for the infantry part of the battle. Hannibal kicks it off by sending in his Balearic Slingers, the elite skirmishers, and he uses them as a screening force. I don't think I discussed what a screening force was when I went in-depth on skirmishes, did I? I don't think I did. Alright, screening forces. One of the uses for skirmishes is they act as a screen. So if you're doing something that you don't want the enemy to see you doing, for instance, organizing your troops in one of the biggest ambushes of all time, you would send out your skirmishers. And these skirmishers, they run around and they throw some shit and they shoot some arrows and slingshots and whatever. They're not looking to cause damage. 
Not really. They're just creating mayhem. And while they're running around and your own troops are trying to deal with them and everyone's got their shield up trying to not get hit in the head with a rock, everyone is kicking up a lot of dust. And there's a lot of missiles flying around, people are yelling, swords are clashing, it is chaos. And in that chaos, it becomes really hard to see what the other guy is actually doing. So that's a screening force, and that's what Hannibal does. So Rome can't see what Hannibal's up to. And then he withdraws the skirmishes because their job is done for now. They're going to come back because they're not finished for the day, it's a split shift, but they're done for now. Meanwhile, the Romans decide that they've had enough of this screening, and they send their forces in to hit the Carthaginians head-on. No more bullshit, it's time for a good old-fashioned ass-kicking. The Roman battering ram begins battering. They meet the Carthaginians in the middle of the battlefield. The extra-heavy, extra-dense Roman death spike of troops against the relatively weak and inexperienced Carthaginians. And combat ensues, pushing, probing, stabbing, dying. And as expected, the Romans are winning. Partially because they're better armed, better equipped, and most of all just bigger masses of men, but mostly because that was always Hannibal's plan. The Romans push the Carthaginians back, the Carthaginians give more and more ground. The Gauls and the Spaniards in this part of the army, they're putting up a good fight, they're fighting very valiantly, very bravely, but the Romans are clearly winning and pushing them back. And what the Romans don't notice in their bloodlust, in the heat and noise and fury of a battle, what they do not notice is that while the Carthaginian line is lighter than theirs, the Carthaginians are spread further across. It's a longer line of troops. The Romans, before this battle, they had condensed their troops into this battering ram. Carthage did exactly the opposite. They spread everyone out more and more. Oh, and by the by, if you're reading Polybius' account of this battle, this is the point where he absolutely loses the plot, and it is clear that he does not have a fucking clue what he's talking about, and he contradicts himself a number of times. It becomes a garbled mess, so we can safely ignore Polybius from this point on. So as the Roman troops keep pushing this Carthaginian force back, and they think they're winning, and they are winning in the center, the edges are about to become super important. Remember how I said that Hannibal put his best troops on the flanks? Here's why. The Romans are pushing forward more and more, and they actually push past the Carthaginian flanks. So they've actually penetrated into the Carthaginian line. This means that Hannibal's troops on the edges start to close in around the sides, like fingers closing into a fist. Hannibal left his forces in a longer line of battle for just this reason. So that when the Romans pushed forward, the flanks could then wrap around the sides and start hitting the Romans in their flanks. Which is exactly what they do. Every time the Romans push the Celtic and Spanish troops back a little bit, that gives a little bit more ground for the heavy African shock troops on either edge to close in around the Romans. It's very hard to do this without a visual medium, but imagine it's like a Venus flytrap closing. And what you need to remember is that there is fighting going on the entire time. It's not just people moving around, they're trying to kill each other the entire time. And every time one of these Roman soldiers dies, the other Romans have to move in tighter, closer together, in order to hold that famous Roman shield wall together, to maintain that density. 
So over the course of the battle, the Romans are getting more and more condensed. Their line is closing in further and further. There are more people in less space, and Rome doesn't even notice it happening. Because it's hard to notice individuals moving when your army is 70 or 80,000 men strong. And this keeps happening to the point that the African troops have now spread out to encompass the entire depth of the Roman columns. Rome, so determined were they to push forward and wipe out the Carthaginians as quickly as possible, they didn't notice that they'd pushed too far. That they'd failed to consolidate that position and keep their flanks clear. In the fury of the battle, the Romans haven't noticed that their cavalry is gone. This isn't unreasonable. This particular day is very dusty. The sun is in the Romans' eyes. There's a general chaos of battle all around them, and the Africans are closing in and closing off the sight lines with them. You can't see shit. The Romans are expecting that their cavalry is going to protect their flanks and stop them from being, well, from being flanked. What they can't see is that their cavalry is already dead. Nobody is coming to save them. No, Lieutenant, your men are already dead. They probably should have had an inkling that this was going to happen because Hannibal's cavalry was always better on their worst day, and the Romans have lost tens of thousands of their most experienced cavalry before this battle, so they should have been expecting that something like this was going to happen. But in the heat of battle, I'll concede that they were merely surprised that there will be no cavalry coming to rescue them. Gandalf will not be showing up at dawn on the fifth day. These men are doomed. So there are no Roman regiments in position to stop Hannibal's elite troops from outflanking the Romans and fully encircling them. What has happened is that the Carthaginian trap has finally been sprung. The African forces have closed around the sides of the Romans, the cavalry has locked up the rear, and now Hannibal and his dummy forces in the middle have finally given up the pretense of retreating, and they're now holding firm. The Roman army, over 80,000 soldiers worth of the biggest army that Rome has ever fielded, they are now completely surrounded. Well, not completely surrounded, but close enough. Hannibal did leave a couple of hundred meters clear on either flank so that the cavalry could come in and do strafing runs and conduct absolute bloody murder on the Romans. But for all intents and purposes, the Romans are completely surrounded. There is an enemy in absolutely every direction. The rarest thing in all of warfare. A total and complete double encirclement. This is never supposed to happen. You are not supposed to be able to completely surround the enemy. And yet Hannibal did. The Romans can't go anywhere because there is a Carthaginian soldier in front of them in whatever direction they face. Clausewitz, in his book On War, will tell you that what Hannibal did was impossible, so he mustn't have done it. Clausewitz refused to believe that Hannibal was able to achieve a double encirclement with such a small army. And Clausewitz did write the book On War, after all. I mean, it's called On War. But Karl von Clausewitz was a German born long before there was a Germany, so there are a lot of things that he thought were impossible that later turned out to be true. 
So don't take Clausewitz at his word here when he says that Hannibal didn't encircle the Romans because that's impossible, because other things that Karl von Clausewitz considered impossible were things like flight and antibiotics and electricity and black people voting. So don't take his word for it. The Roman army is surrounded. They had a brief chance to escape at the very start of the battle, but they thought they were winning at that point, so nobody took the opportunity to run. Now, that window has closed. You cannot run anymore. There are Carthaginians on all sides. All that the Roman army can do now is die. And die is exactly what the Romans are going to do. They can't escape this trap. It's too late. And you can't blame the individual Romans for this. They weren't to know what was happening with the forces as a whole. Imagine the situation. Imagine being there at Cannae. You're a Roman legionary somewhere in the middle. You can't see shit. In an ancient phalanx, only the first two or maybe three rows of people can see anything at all. And even then, they can only see what's directly in front of them. You can't see to either side because that's where all the shields are. Most people in a phalanx can only see the person directly in front of them or the shield being held above their heads to stop the missiles coming in. You can't see anything. On top of that, it's summer. It's hot. Oppressively hot. It's dusty. The wind is blowing all of that dust up into a storm and it's in your eyes and it's in your throat and it's dropped visibility even more. The average soldier in the Roman army wouldn't have had a clue what was going on until the forward momentum stopped. Oh, we've stopped. What does that mean? Is that good? Is that bad? Did we win? Did we force them to retreat? I thought we were winning. But the clashes of swords and the screams of dying men still ring everywhere all around you. Alright, we didn't win. Okay. Then why have we stopped? And then the sounds of combat start to come, not just from the front where you were expecting, but from the sides. Both sides. Oh shit, we've been flanked. Hannibal has flanked us. And then you hear it from the rear, where the cavalry are attacking, the storm of horses' hooves beating on the dry earth. Oh shit, we're being hit by cavalry. We are completely surrounded. And then people start, quite literally, people start shitting themselves. Because the enormity of all of it is hitting them all at the same time. Hannibal has outplayed everyone. Again. There is no victory here. You can't even run, because where are you going to run to? Everywhere you turn, there's an enemy soldier. There is only death. Almost a hundred thousand Roman soldiers are standing, shoulder to shoulder, packed in like sardines, waiting to die. Waiting for the Carthaginians to cut their way through the ranks in front of them and finally get to you. Now, here's where something interesting happens. Interesting and horrible. This is the point where Hannibal deviates from the art of war. Something I should clarify. ADD! I've brought up the art of war a lot in these shows, and how closely Hannibal is following Sun Tzu's famous book. I want to make it clear that there is no way that Hannibal read the art of war. Those two universes never collided. There was never a crossover event. It's just that the art of war is just generically good advice if you're doing a war. And Hannibal, being good at war and not fucking stupid, he and Sun Tzu had a lot of parallel ideas. 
We actually don't know when The Art of War was written. Hell, we don't even know that Sun Tzu was actually a real person who ever existed. His name just means mentor or, or sensei. But we've narrowed down the writing of The Art of War to somewhere between 475 and 221 BCE. Which isn't really narrowing it down, but it does precede Hannibal's life, so there is a chance that he did read it, but there really isn't. There is no way that that book made it from China to Carthage in that period. It's just that good military commanders happen to follow similar ideas. Anyway, one of the big things that the Art of War teaches is that you never fully encircle an enemy. Just don't do it. You never completely surround them. You always leave a small gap through which they might escape. And the reason for this is simple. You actually do want the enemy to have a way to escape. You want to give them somewhere to run to. Because if a person is presented with certain death, or a small gap through which they might run away to safety, most people are going to run away, to live to fight another day. Take away that gap though, cut off all means of escape, and the enemy is now facing absolute certain death no matter what, well, in that situation, you find out exactly how hard a man can fight. Because if he's going to die no matter what, he is going to go down swinging. You're going to try and take as many people as he can with him. So that's why Sun Tzu said to always leave somewhere for people to escape. Because it's a lot safer to let someone drop their sword and run away than it is to see just how many people he's capable of taking down before he dies. And it's good advice. It's worth remembering when you find yourself at the head of a large war host. But Hannibal, he's a Barker. And Barkers are not fond of Romans. That, and Hannibal needs to make a statement here. His whole campaign has been predicated on the idea that he would beat the Romans, and then all of Rome's former allies would then flock to his side and reinforce him, joining in the fight against Rome, and to date, this has not happened. The Etruscans, the Samnites, people like that, they haven't joined Hannibal. Even though Hannibal had comprehensively beaten the Romans three times, it still has not been enough to convince these people to change sides. Even though he'd beaten three Roman armies, entire Roman armies, the Romans kept bouncing back. And Hannibal didn't get his reinforcements. So today, he's going to put a stop to all of that. The Romans are not going to come back from this one. And anyone still on the fence about Hannibal's ability to deal with Rome can watch from the sidelines. Hannibal is going to kill every single soldier in this army. No prisoners. No mercy, no quarter, everyone is going to die today. Hannibal doesn't care how much any Roman is willing to fight to the death, the death part is inescapable. He doesn't care how dearly they all sell their lives, he's taking all of them. Every last fucking one of them is going to die. And that's what he did. Cannae was a massacre. There's no other term for it. It was an utter massacre. A few Romans had managed to escape the encirclement early on, once it was clear that the Romans were utterly fucked. A few had managed to fight their way through the net that was closing around them. These were guys who were on the edges already. They weren't committed to the heavy infantry push in the middle. They saw what was happening and they fought their way out. It was brutal. It wasn't a matter of, oh look, Hannibal did a Hannibal. Soinks, let's get out of here, Scoob! 
No, they needed to fight through a thousand guys who were trying to convince them to stick around for the party later. See at the party, Richter! And one of these people happened to be Scipio Africanus, who just had a powerful knack for fighting his way out of Hannibal's death traps. This is not the first time he's done it. Scipio Africanus actually gets about 500 men together, and they fight their way back to a Roman town nearby where they were relatively safe for the time being. And uh, just spoiler for the future, log that fact. It is important. Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus was at the Battle of Cannae. He watched all of it unfolding. Remember that. So all up, about 14,000 men managed to escape the net before it closed entirely on the Romans and they were completely encircled. And 14,000 soldiers sounds like a lot of men, and it is. That's a fair-sized army for most people in the world throughout history. But it's not big when we're talking about the armies that battled at Cannae. That is 14,000 men out of an army that was, at the start of the day, over 86,000 strong. Which leaves 72,000 Roman soldiers who were caught in the trap, completely encircled by the Carthaginians, surrounded on all sides with no chance to escape. 72,000. So just to help visualize it, that is a large sports stadium worth of Roman soldiers tightly packed into a scrum. Just a massive, massive huddle in the middle of a field at Cannae. They used to be in formation in a phalanx, but that's gone now. It's just chaos. So 72,000 people in one massive lump of flesh. Totally surrounding them is the Carthaginian army, who have also abandoned their own phalanxes, and they have now formed a circle, arm to arm, completely enveloping the 72,000 Romans. There is no more art of war here. This is going to be as bad as anything is ever going to get in history. This is, without a doubt, one of the most brutal days of all time. It is one of the most horrible points in all of history. 72,000 men are going to be slowly and systematically over the course of an entire afternoon, 72,000 men will be brutally cut down by Carthaginian swords and spears. After that initial breakthrough early in the morning, nobody else escaped. All of these men died. The historian Victor Davis Hansen does the maths on this, so we don't have to. 72,000 men is a lot of men. Which means that the Carthaginians, to kill all of them in one day, that meant that 10 Roman legionaries were killed every single second. Until they were all gone. 10 people dead. 10 people dead. 10 people dead. 10 people dead. 10 people, that's 50. All day. Until 72,000 are gone. The numbers are so high that you need a point of reference to make it all fit in your brain. You can't visualize it. So to put it into perspective, this happened on the 2nd of August, 216 BCE. 216 years before the birth of Christ. The next time that the world sees this many people murdered in a single battle is on July the 1st, 1916, at the Battle of the Somme in World War I. Hannibal held the record for most people killed in one day 
for over 2,000 years. 72,000 Romans had been herded into a tiny area about the size of a sports stadium. They're squeezed in tighter than shoulder to shoulder. In fact, thousands of these people will die from asphyxiation. They're simply crushed to death by the weight of everyone else around them. That's how tightly jammed in they are. There are Carthaginians on every side. They start raining missiles down on the Romans. Spears, javelins, rocks from slings, arrows, just a hail of horrible shit constantly raining down. An area bombardment. And they couldn't miss. If you were a slinger at Cannae, you're going to hit someone. And the Romans are holding their shields up, locked into that famous Roman testudo formation, their famous shield wall. How long can you hold your shield up? Realistically. How long can you hold a shield above your head? It's keeping you safe from the missiles, it's stopping you from dying, but how long can you keep it up? A minute? An hour? Even if your life is on the line, how long before your arms just give out? Because the Carthaginians have all day. They're not going anywhere. And it's just a production line of death slowly, systematically murdering every single Roman caught in this death web. And there's absolutely nothing that the Romans can do about it. They're squashed in too tightly, they just cannot fight back. There is no room, they can't fight their way out. All they can do is wait around to get murdered. Remember, this isn't people being bombed from the air or hit with artillery or being machine gunned or anything modern. These troops are being butchered by hand, with swords and spears. It takes hours. And it takes a toll on the Carthaginians too. A whole lot of Carthaginian soldiers are going to die because of this. Well after the battle has been decided and won and lost, a lot of Hannibal's army are going to die because the Romans are fighting to the death. They're fighting hard as they go down. But all of this is happening so that Hannibal can make a point. The sheer number of people being crushed into this mass of humans actually sent some Roman soldiers flying out in ones and twos just through sheer force of fluid dynamics, through physics. When you get enough people packed into a space like that, they behave like a fluid. And Bernoulli's principle takes over. Imagine being packed into a group so tightly that you actually get ejected from the mosh pit at speed and thrown onto a Carthaginian spear, because that was what was happening. A lot of these Roman soldiers are going down swinging, but a lot more Romans just break. They break in a way that you can't even imagine breaking. It is almost inconceivable to the modern mind. I can't even imagine it. Being trapped in a massive crowd of tens of thousands of people jammed in so tightly that you can't even fall down. You can't even breathe because you're being crushed by the weight of everyone else around you and you're all just standing around waiting for the Carthaginian spears to be done with the person in front of you and then finally finish you off. Which could be hours away. And there's nothing you can do about it. The only thing you can do is wait for it to happen or to end it yourself. And a lot of Roman soldiers committed suicide rather than wait for the Carthaginians to get to them. Some of them fell on their swords in that classical Roman style that Shakespeare spoke about, but most of them, especially later on in the day, that wasn't an option. 
there simply was not room for them to hold their swords out in front of them to drive it into their own hearts. They didn't have the space that were packed in that tightly. So we get accounts of people in the middle of this scrum simply crouching down where they stood and then burying their heads in the dirt, suffocating themselves in the earth rather than waiting for Hannibal's men to come along and finish the job sometime after dusk. After an entire day of slaughter, I can't even imagine just to be one of those guys in the middle knowing with absolute certainty that you're going to be stabbed to death, but also knowing that that's going to take hours to happen. Hearing the men all around you die first, knowing that your turn is only a matter of time, but there's nothing you can do about it. It's unimaginable what that must have felt like. If you're a Roman at the Battle of Cannae, this is quite literally the worst day that anyone has ever experienced. This is officially, objectively, as bad as life can possibly get until World War I. At the end of the day, when the last Roman soldier had been stabbed to death, the blood was ankle deep. Think about that. Ankle deep. An entire field, a farm, with blood ankle deep. And you have to factor in things like clotting and evaporation and soaking into the soil, and it is still ankle deep. That is a lot of blood. About 4,000 Carthaginian troops died at the Battle of Cannae, which is a lot of people when you consider that the battle was essentially over as soon as it began. But Hannibal had to make sure that he broke the Romans. That's the price of the butcher bill. And as for the Romans, well, I've been saying that they lost 72,000 men, and that's pretty well accepted, but we will never actually know. Livy says that 50,000 men died, Polybius says 90,000, but when you're talking about those kind of numbers, where 20,000 people is a rounding error, does it really matter? 72,000 people. Oh, and a whole bunch of super important Romans died too. A lot. A significant chunk of the Roman leadership perished at the Battle of Cannae. Another Roman consul was dead. Again, Hannibal is just tearing through consuls. Consuls are not supposed to die. Rome is not used to seeing one consul die. Hannibal is chewing through them like Pez. Varro wasn't among them, though. Varro survived. If the sources are to be believed, which they aren't, but if the sources are to be believed, this whole affair happened because Varro was a typical Roman gung-ho dipshit who rushed in when he shouldn't have. According to most of the sources, he was the one in command of the army that day. Although not all of the sources, there's disagreement. Anyway, let's assume that this whole mess belongs to Varro. He saw very early on just how bad things were going, and he noped the fuck out at the first opportunity. He ran away with his lictors, his bodyguards, which was about 70 men, and it's so incredibly shameful for any Roman to run away from a battle ever under any circumstances, but for the consul, the guy in charge of the army to turn tail and run, that is devastating on the army's morale. So the guy who caused all of this mess happens to be the one that got away. Because there's no such thing as karma. The other consul was not as fortunate. Paulus died at Cannae. The guy who didn't want to march into Hannibal's death trap but was forced to because of Varro's impetuousness 
Paulus is dead. According to the accounts, a Balearic slinger actually domes him with a rock pretty early on in the battle. Livy gives this story about how Paulus was beamed by a slingshot early on, but he kept fighting, and then when everyone is trying to flee, Paulus bravely fights to the death because he's a super awesome patriot who's going to die fighting for the idea of Rome. And a soldier actually offers his horse so that Paulus, the consul, can escape this battle, but Paulus says, No, I stand with my men even unto death. (laughs) Fuck up, Livy, that never actually happened. Paulus got brained in the first hour of the battle, and that was the end of him. He got sniped early on. He didn't even hear the shot. Livy's account of this is disgusting for just how much he's sucking the dick of a dead rich guy. It is pathetic. That's how badly he wants to ingratiate himself with the Roman Tories of the time. Servilius Geminus. You remember that guy? He's the previous consul who was cut off after the Battle of Trasemini, when Hannibal murdered Flaminius, the other consul, where he'd managed to make it back to Cannae by sort of trailing Hannibal's army as he rode down, and Geminus, I bet he wished he hadn't made it back to Cannae because he dared too. So while he was trapped in the top half of Italy, he managed to consolidate with the Roman army just in time for the Battle of Cannae, and yeah, now he's dead. So that's two current or former consuls who died in the fighting. A guy called Minusius, the master of the horse, so their head cavalry guy, he's dead. He was the head of the cavalry and a very high-ranking Roman. He gets unalived very early on in the battle. They don't find the rest of him. 29 military tribunes died, so 29 very high-ranking Roman generals. 80 senators are dead. A huge chunk of the Roman ruling class died in the utter slaughter that was Cannae. Not to mention all of the minor nobles who made up the cavalry. Not to mention the actual percentage of the population of Rome that made up the bulk of the troops. Over half of the Roman leadership, most of the nobility, and over 2% of the entire Roman population at the time died in this one battle. 2% of the entire population of Rome. That is, well, it's a lot. Cannae is the most comprehensive victory by anyone in the ancient world. You are not going to see anything like this until the invention of the machine gun, when it gets used on people who don't have machine guns. That's the margin by which Hannibal won at Cannae. Rome came at Hannibal with three armies, each bigger than the last, and the one at Cannae was the largest fighting force Rome had ever assembled. It was essentially three armies consolidated into one army, and Hannibal wiped them all out. Trebia, Trasimene, Cannae, bang, bang, bang. Not beat them, not forced them to retreat, he killed those armies. They play no further part in history. Nobody in war has ever won like Hannibal won. The Romans were famous because of their ability to keep putting armies in the field. That's how they've beaten everyone up until this point. The other Italians, the Greeks, the Carthaginians in the First Punic War. They just keep finding soldiers. They keep finding armies. Wear the enemy out through the sheer zerg wave of never-ending hordes of Romans. But now... After Cannae, something new has happened. Rome has run out of soldiers. 
They've run out of reserves. They've now run out of adult males to do the fighting. They can't pick themselves up again because there is nobody left. Hannibal has wiped out a percentage point of the Roman population. Two out of every hundred people in Rome is dead. Over the course of three and a bit battles, Ticinus was more of a skirmish, but three major pitched battles with the pride of the ancient world, the Roman Republic, Hannibal Barca has, up until this point, all combined, killed 10% of all Romans of fighting age. 10% of people eligible to serve in the army are dead because of Hannibal. 1 in 10 Romans aged between the ages of 15 and 60 died at the hands of someone under Hannibal Barker's command. There is literally, and I mean literally, there is literally not a single person in all of Rome at this point who did not have a relative who died because of Hannibal Barker. A husband, a father, a son, a brother, an uncle, everybody, every single person in Rome knew someone who had been killed by Hannibal's army. That's how many Romans have died. It is a lot. Livy tells us the story about how after the Battle of Cannae, Mago Barca traveled back to Carthage to let them know how the war was going and to let them know just how much ass has been kicked, which is a significant amount of ass. Hannibal only ever checked in from time to time. As I've said a lot, he was more Spanish than Carthaginian. He did not give a shit about Carthage. But he did want to tell them that he just engaged in the best military command of all time and utterly decimated the Romans. I mean, literally decimated the Romans. He killed 10% of them. And that is the kind of thing that you're going to want to brag about. So, to highlight the importance of everything going on, he sends his brother Mago back to Carthage to give them the 411. And Mago walks into the Carthaginian Senate and he relates how the campaign was going. He said, we did a Ticinus, and then there was a Trebia, and they went pretty well, and then there was a Trisemini, that was fun. We just had the biggest ambush ever of all time, we killed a whole bunch of Romans, Trisemini was great, had a blast. And then, we had a fight at Cannae, where we removed... Rome's ability to wage war. So things are going pretty well. Thanks for asking. How are you? Good? Good. And then to illustrate his point, Mago Barca picks up a sack that he'd brought in with him, and he starts tipping this sack out onto the floor of the Senate. And tumbling out of this sack are thousands and thousands of gold rings. There are gold rings pouring and bouncing all over the floor. Mago looks like he's just been hit by Dr. Robotnik. That's how many rings have exploded out of him. And he's standing in this pile of gold rings. Mago explains that each of these rings belonged to a Roman equus, a knight. These rings were awarded to knights for extraordinary courage and valor in battle. This is like the Roman version of a Purple Heart. And there are thousands of them all over the floor. Hannibal's army had killed that many Roman commanders. Not soldiers, not legionaries, each of these rings belonged to an officer. That's how utterly the Romans were defeated at Cannae. There is nobody left to stop Hannibal now. There is nothing between Hannibal and the Eternal City. He had crushed all opposition. Hannibal was, well and truly, at the gates.
And that, honestly, that is where I would like to leave this story. If I could, I'd love to leave it there. But I can't. Because we all need some closure at this point, I think. We need to know how the story ends and how Rome endures, because Rome is still there and Carthage isn't. Culture. History. Spaghetti. These are the things of a boot country called Italia. So what happened? Hannibal hit his peak at the Battle of Cannae. And when we say that someone has peaked, there's a bit of a pejorative element to it, but that's not the case here. When your peak is quite literally the most comprehensive military victory in the history of warfare, that's as good as peaking gets. There are very few people in history who will peak the way that Hannibal peaked at Cannae. Genghis Khan is possibly the only other candidate, and even though Genghis Khan was in the top five people to ever command an army, Hannibal could have taken him. Genghis Khan makes the peak list because of the just generally debauched lifestyle he led. That's why he's peaked. Hannibal has him on sheer martial prowess. After the Battle of Cannae, Hannibal's legend was forever carved into history. The greatest commander of all time. And that would be a fine place to leave things. But we can't. Because it doesn't end there. Because we all know that Rome doesn't end there. You can still go and see it today. In case you're keeping notes, there's still a whole bunch of Rome that needs roaming. We need Marius and Sulla and Caesar and Octavian and Anthony and Cleopatra. And that's even before we get to the Roman Empire. So if Rome is still standing today, I guess we need to know what happened. So here's the coda to the Hannibal Lecture. After Cannae, there is nothing between Hannibal and Rome. He still has most of his army. Nearly all of his army is intact after the battle. He barely lost anyone in the grand scheme of things. Rome have lost everyone. There is absolutely nothing that Rome can do to stop Hannibal from marching on the city and taking it. Livy is pretty strong on this point, but every historian has a different opinion, and this happens to be one of the most complex issues in all of history. If I'm belaboring the point, it's because it needs to be understood. There is not much at all stopping Hannibal at this point. Rome is his if he wants it. He can go and take it. Sure, there are a couple of legions of random people that Rome has just handed a sword to to try and defend the city, but half of those people were just as likely to defect to Hannibal's side. So Rome is there for the taking. Hannibal and his father Hamilcar's lifelong dream of burning Rome to the ground? It's done. All Hannibal has to do is march a couple of days down the road and take the city of Rome. After the Battle of Cannae, there is no one to stop him. And for some reason, he just... He doesn't. He doesn't march on Rome. Hannibal is not at the gates. Livy, what do you reckon? Quote, Never, when the city was in safety, was there so great a panic and confusion within the walls of Rome. I shall therefore shrink from the task, and not attempt to relate what in the describing I must make less than the reality. The consul and his army, having been lost at the Trasemenus the year before, it was not one wound upon another which was announced, but a multiplied disaster, the loss of 
two Roman consular armies, together with the two consuls, and now there was neither any Roman camp, nor general, nor soldiery, that Apulia and Samnium, and now almost the whole of Italy, were in possession of Hannibal. End quote. Rome has no consuls or proconsuls left, more or less. Anyone of any sort of leadership position died at the Battle of Cannae. The only person who is left alive is Varro, but Varro is not too popular at the moment because of the whole end of the world thing that he'd caused, so they're essentially bereft of leadership. Everyone in Rome is in an utter panic because they're about to be wiped off the map. Things are so bad in Rome, the result at Cannae was so utterly catastrophic to them, that the Romans, for the last time ever in their history, the Romans resorted to human sacrifice. That's how bad things were. Hannibal was at the gates. And then, Hannibal never showed up. And this, this right here, this is the biggest counterfactual in all of history. Just how many things turn out so differently if Hannibal marches on Rome, if he takes the city? You don't get the Gracchus brothers instituting their reforms. You don't get Marius or Sulla. You don't get the first triumvirate, Pompey, Crassus, Julius Caesar. And if you don't get Caesar, you don't get the Julian calendar or the month of July. You won't get August, for that matter. If Caesar doesn't exist, does the Library of Alexandria get burnt down? Although that was only one of many times that that particular event happened. We can't pin it all on Caesar. Alexandria burned a lot. Most of our laws in the Western world are based around the ancient Mos Maiorum, the Roman rule of law. Hell, we would be doing this podcast in a different language because there would not be any English anymore. What does the world look like today if there is not a Roman Empire for Jesus Christ to rebel against? Supposedly. And it's a genuinely big question, and there are no right or wrong answers, but just take the time to reflect on the enormity of this one decision in the heat of the moment by one man. How many things are different because Hannibal didn't march on Rome? So much of our history, so many things that happened in the thousands of years since would not have happened if Hannibal had marched on the city, and yet he didn't. And this has been one of the biggest debates for all historians ever since. Should Hannibal have marched on Rome or not? Well, obviously he should have because they were proper fucked, but he didn't know what we know in the future. Proper fucked. Yeah, Tommy. Before the Germans get there. So think like a Barker. Should he have marched on Rome? Because I know that I've painted it like a no-brainer, but there are strong cases for and again. Because we do know that Hannibal perhaps should have marched on Rome. The Romans were proper fucked at that stage. Yeah, Tommy. But despite how I made it sound just a couple of minutes ago, it wouldn't have been a slam dunk to take the city. There would have had to have been a siege. Rome was, after all, a fortified city, and one of the biggest cities in the world at that point. Taking it wasn't going to be easy, even if it was relatively undefended. Which anybody will tell you takes more than a smile. You might not lose too many people in actually taking the city, but it's going to take a lot of effort and it's going to take a lot of time, because you're going to need a siege. And what does the art of war say about sieges? It says, don't. 
Sun Tzu is super clear that sieges suck, and you should only do it if there is absolutely no other option available. And since Hannibal and Sun Tzu were vibing to the same wavelength, that is exactly what Hannibal thinks too. There are better options than a siege, because sieges suck. So while we know that Hannibal could have besieged the city and taken it and removed Rome from the game of history, Hannibal didn't know that. What Hannibal did know was that his army were pretty tired after Cannae, and he didn't want to force march them on Rome and then put them straight into a siege situation. His troops had earned a little R&R. And also, and this is a fair point, and I don't think it gets enough attention, Hannibal did not have any siege weapons. At all. So if he marched on the city, when he got to Rome, he would have to find some siege engineers and a whole bunch of supplies, and then wait weeks for siege engines to even be built before the city could even be captured, and Hannibal knows that he does not have that kind of time. In the future, we know that Rome has no soldiers left, but if there's one thing that everybody in this time period knew, it's that Rome always found new soldiers. So in Hannibal's mind, there was no reason to expect that Rome wasn't sending yet another army his way as reinforcements. Just to be clear, Rome were not doing that, but Hannibal doesn't know that. Remember, there's still a second Punic War happening. There are fronts everywhere from Cannae all the way back to Carthage. There's fighting everywhere. So it's not like Rome has zero soldiers left at all, just zero soldiers left in that region. Hannibal has pruned the weeds in Italy proper, but Rome was more than just Italy. It was a big empire. I mean, maybe not an empire, a republic, but if it quacks like an empire... Republic will be reorganized into the first galactic... So with these reasons, which may or may not be good reasons, Hannibal does not march on Rome. And there's a very famous scene from Livy's history where the commander of the Numidian cavalry, a guy named Mahabal, he comes up to Hannibal and he says, we're going to go capture Rome, right? I mean, we've got to capture Rome, because if we want to capture Rome, then we've got to do it right now. This is like the only chance we're ever going to get, so we should probably start marching south, right? I mean, we take in Rome, right? And Hannibal says, I, I don't know. There's a lot to think about here. I'll get back to you. And Mahabal was utterly incensed. He could not conceive of winning this great victory at Cannae and then not going to Rome to horribly murder everyone there. And he says to Hannibal, Vincericis, Hannibal, Victoria Utinescus. At least according to Livy. I don't think that an African cavalry general would have that much of a command of the Latin language, so here's the translation. Assuredly, no man has been so blessed with all of God's gifts. You, Hannibal, you know how to gain a victory, but you don't know how to use it. So Mahabal's pretty pissed off. But in Hannibal's defense here, and I'm talking myself around to this point as I record this show, Hannibal knew the strengths of his own army. He knew that he was better in the field. He was a field commander. He was a guy who showed up out of nowhere like the Slender Man, did an awesome ambush, wiped out your army, and then vanished into the mist. Hannibal worked best when you didn't know where he was. And if he parked himself in front of Rome for the weeks or months it would take to besiege it, then Rome would be able to throw everything they had at Hannibal because he was right fucking there at the door. They knew where Hannibal was. And Hannibal was smarter than that. 
Hannibal's father would have nuked Rome from orbit, but Hannibal is not his father. So like I say, there are points for and against, and there was a lot of friction in Hannibal's army, re the issue of whether to allow Rome to continue being Rome, but it wasn't clear cut. But ultimately, for whatever internal reasoning of his own, Hannibal does the most unbarker thing in his entire life, and he elects not to march on the city of Rome and a true sliding doors moment in history occurs. Now, I feel I should pull back the curtain a little bit and allow some truth to shine in. For this entire series, I have been painting the picture that Hannibal Barker's life mission was to destroy Rome, to burn it to the ground and salt the earth so that nothing can ever grow again. But it actually wasn't. I said that because it drives the narrative, and it did serve at the time. But Hannibal wasn't looking to destroy Rome outright. That was his father's mission. Hannibal didn't have the same personal revenge motive. He didn't have the same passion. What Hannibal wanted was to take Rome down a peg, to curb their ambitions, to bring their truly legendary arrogance back down to regular human baseline levels. Hannibal wanted to beat Rome, he wanted to humiliate them, but he didn't particularly want to destroy them. If it happened, it happened, but it wasn't the goal with Hannibal like it was with Hamilcar. What Hannibal wanted was to bring things back to the way they were before the First Punic War. He wanted Carthage on top, the kings of the Mediterranean, and he wanted Rome put back in their place as a minor regional power in Italy. But he wasn't looking to wipe them out. In this regard, he was very different to his father. So where Hamilcar Barker would have immediately marched on Rome and been the first person through the breach to take the first Roman skull, Hannibal didn't have that kind of bloodlust. He had a much cooler head. In Hannibal's mind, his mission is now pretty much accomplished. Rome has been knocked off their pedestal, their ego has taken a massive, massive hit, and their armies are in tatters. Why slaughter an entire city of civilians just to prove a point? He'd already proven that point with the army at Cannae, he didn't need to kill everyone. History would prove him very wrong, of course, but but what Hannibal does is actually rather advanced thinking for someone in that day and age. The whole idea of, hey, maybe I don't need to murder absolutely everyone. He was quite progressive. Now, what Hannibal actually does instead is he offers an olive branch to Rome. He sends them a letter expressing that although Rome has absolutely no chance against him in open battle and Hannibal can wipe out the Romans at his whim, Hannibal isn't going to be a dick about it. Which shows you just how good he was at war, when you can be that chill about being the best of all time. Hannibal says, I can come over there and end you at any point, but I'm a cool guy, so I won't. So how about we hammer out a peace deal? And remember how Rome had screwed Carthage over with the peace deal at the end of the First Punic War? Well, Hannibal is going to be the bigger man here. He's going to prove that he's above the Romans by offering a fair peace deal and then sticking to it. He's a man of his word, unlike the perfidious Romans, so he offers them an olive branch. And Rome, because they're Roman, they tell Hannibal to go fuck himself. And I really need to admire the Roman commitment to the bit here. I respect it. Even when faced with the complete annihilation of their entire civilization, Romans are still going to be insufferably arrogant until every last one of them is killed. As I've said many times on this show, if there's one thing I respect, it's commitment to the bit, especially unto annihilation. 
the Roman Senate refuses to parley. And remember, it's the Senate here and not the consuls, because so many consuls have been murdered by Hannibal in the last 18 months. Rome tells Hannibal to go suck on their nuts. We're not going to have a peace treaty, we'll fight until every last one of us is in the ground. In fact, fuck you, we've just made it a capital offence to say the word peace in Rome. What do you think about that? And that's something that Rome actually did, they made it illegal to say peace. That's how committed they are to war. Remember the rule, bellum Romanum, war the way the Romans fight it? That the victor is not victorious until the vanquished considers himself so? Well, Rome are never going to consider themselves vanquished. Even as they are dying to a man in their hundreds of thousands at one time, they never consider themselves vanquished. Rome doubles down. Every male of fighting age is now in the army. They conscript everyone. All previous restrictions and concessions are now gone. If you were old enough to hold a sword, you were now in the army. Peasants, hobos, even slaves were drafted into the army. And you know things are getting desperate when all of this is happening. For one thing, you generally do not want slaves in your army. It's usually not a good idea to put weapons into the hands of people you are holding against their will. You might be thinking that Spartacus is a good example of why you don't arm your slaves, and you'd be correct, absolutely. And if you're thinking that Spartacus led the Third Servile War, the Third Slave Revolt, you're even more correct, so well played. This, here, after the Battle of Cannae, is a truly desperate time for Rome. Rome is letting just anyone join the army at this point. Usually, the army was reserved for the right kind of people, like you wouldn't let a poor person join the army. Oh god, that's a silly idea. How unseemly. A poor person? In the army? Well, I never! If you know your Roman history, you know that Rome had a major thing that only landowners could be in the army. The ramifications of which are an entire series of shows about the Gracchus brothers, so we won't get into it now, but one of their big things was that only the right kind of people could serve. Not anymore. That's gone. If you were a man, and you had at least one arm, you were in the army now, go fight Hannibal. Actually, no, I think Rome would have even had people with no arms in the army. Just stick a couple of swords to the stumps and spin around really quickly. You're good to go. Go murder some Carthaginians. Be the human blender for the glory of the Republic. And as for everyone else, oh, you're sad about how the war has been going? You had a son or a father or a brother who died at Cannae? Oh, boo-hoo, we all did. Go drink a warm glass of Harden the fuck up. We're still in this fight. You want to cry about the people who died? Guess what? It's now illegal to cry. Again, a real thing, they made it illegal to cry. Commitment to the bit. I value it over anything else. And here is where Rome finally does something sensible. After all of these years, they finally do something that's not catastrophically stupid. They looked back at the last couple of years, and they realized that there were exactly two people in the entirety of the Roman Republic who were not complete fuck-knuckles. One of them was Publius Cornelius Scipio, Scipio Africanus. He's the one who fought his way out of Hannibal's trap at Cannae. In fact, he seemed to have quite a knack for avoiding Hannibal-style traps. Scipio was still a junior officer at Cannae, he was still in his teens, 
So he was left guarding one of the camps while the rest of the army went off to die, so Scipio survived the Battle of Cannae, and he went from being a junior officer to a general over the course of an afternoon because everyone ahead of him in rank was brutally slaughtered, so he's the last man standing. So say we all! But he approached his new office with the vigor of youth, and he tried to keep the Republic standing and at least get in the way of Hannibal somewhat provide some sort of resistance. The whole roughnecks, come on you sons of bitches, who wants to live forever kind of vibe. And at this point in the story, he's actually trying to rally Roman soldiers to offer some kind of resistance to Hannibal instead of curling into a ball and pretending that none of this was happening. So the people of Rome started to look to Scipio because he's the only one with his chin up. The other person in this story who is not a complete douche canoe is Fabius Maximus. And there was an awkward conversation when everyone who hated Fabius during his dictatorship and accused him of being a coward was forced to concede that maybe, just maybe, the Fabian strategy actually worked, and if we'd kept following it, then possibly a quarter of a million Romans might still be alive instead of being turned into Celtic hats. Fabius Maximus, for his part, was way more magnanimous than I would have been in this situation, and he didn't go on a months-long tour of I told you so's, but instead he started putting Rome back together and leading it out of the crisis. He's the one that instituted the no-crying law, among other things. Now, one could be forgiven for thinking that Fabius Maximus was a dictator again, because he's doing all of the things that he used to do as dictator, but he's not. At this point, he's just some guy who happened to have been a dictator once. Right now, he's just a private citizen. But he's one of the few high-ranking Romans in this period who has not been turned into a pimp hat by the Celts. So when he tells people what to do, there's nobody left to contradict him. And, well, now that we think about it, the Fabian strategy actually worked and and didn't get a whole bunch of people killed, so maybe we're going to listen to this Fabius Maximus dude. Meanwhile, on the other side of Italy, after the Battle of Cannae, Hannibal finally got the thing he'd been fighting for the entire time. Most of the Roman client states finally caved in, and they signed up with Hannibal. They joined Carthage. There was open rebellion all across the Italian peninsula. Rome, the empire that wasn't an empire, was in civil war. Half of the nation was in open revolt, signing on with Hannibal. Now, finally, he had the troops and provisions to continue his war on Rome indefinitely. Although he never again got the opportunity to march on the city itself. And there's a life lesson there for anyone listening. If you're ever presented with an opportunity to crush your enemy, drive them before you, and hear the lamentations of their women, you damn well take it. So Hannibal is cashed up, and Rome is in crisis. Rome, as discussed revert to the tried-and-tested Fabian strategy while continuing to wage war with Carthage all across the Mediterranean. And we're exactly where we were before the Battle of Cannae. Hannibal is rampaging through the Italian countryside, an unstoppable force of destruction that Rome cannot engage in the field without dying horribly. And Rome, who are employing the Fabian strategy, which is to be wherever Hannibal isn't. Attack people who aren't Hannibal, but if you see any sign of Hannibal himself, you run the fuck away. And here we are. Another classic ancient war stalemate. And this stalemate continues for another 15 years. 15 years. Hannibal occupied the upper half of Italy, what should have been the Roman halfland, 
the top half of their nation, Hannibal made it his stomping ground for 15 years. And this is just another sign of how good Hannibal was. There's nobody else like him in history. Because for an army to occupy a hostile country, to run unchecked within a nation's borders, to do that for 15 days would be noteworthy. If you could have an unchecked invasion of a foreign country for 15 months, that would be incredible. That would be noteworthy. You do not often see that. Hannibal did it for 15 years. He was 15 years a boss. Hannibal was in Rome. He was occupying the Roman countryside itself for long enough for children to be born and for those children to enter military service. He occupied the country for that long that there were multiple generations of people to fight him. And there wasn't a damn thing that anyone in Rome could do about it except to acknowledge that one of the horsemen of the apocalypse could rock up at any time and murder hundreds of thousands of people. That was the situation. Hannibal was rampaging across Italy, but he couldn't quite get into Rome itself. And Rome could not dislodge Hannibal. Stalemate for 15 years. But for Rome, there was nothing they could do about Hannibal himself. The guy occupying the country was absolutely unstoppable and we can't engage him. What else can we do? Well, how about we return the favor? And that's what Rome did. Instead of spending resources fighting Hannibal and losing, they took the fighting back to Carthage. They fought the rest of the Punic War. There was Hannibal and Mago in Rome, can't help that, and then there was Hasdrubal Barca in Spain, so we're not going to go fight in Spain, but everywhere else is fair game at this point. There just aren't enough Barkas to go around. And that's how it went down. This is a series on Hannibal, not a series on the Punic Wars, although the Venn diagram is almost a circle, so we won't get into details about the rest of the Second Punic War, but as you've probably figured out, Rome won. I mean, there's a lot going on here. There's actually a war within a war when Macedonia allies with Hannibal, and you get the Macedonian War, but there's only so much room in these shows. I mean, look at how long we've been going already, right? And as a display of just how much I'm leaving out, even with this timestamp, how much has been left on the cutting room floor, there is something that we may get around to in the future. One of the places that joins the war on Carthage's side, fighting for Hannibal, is Syracuse. Syracuse rebels against Rome, and Rome thinks that they can easily retake Syracuse, because there's nobody called Hannibal there defending it, but while there are no Barkers in Syracuse to cause the Romans problems, there is a guy by the name of Archimedes. Yes, that Archimedes. And he has invented a motherfucking death ray that destroys any Roman ships that try to dock. I know, I'm leaving out death rays, I'm sorry. Although there is a show about philosophers coming up very soon in the future, so it's in the chamber. You will get your death rays eventually. One particular note about the Greater Second Punic War is that Hannibal's brother, Hasdrubal, he was forced to leave Spain and come to Italy to reinforce Hannibal there. And another Barca is always a welcome addition. And maybe it would have changed how things turned out. But history happened. On the way to reinforce Hannibal, Hasdrubal's army was ambushed by the Romans and Hasdrubal was defeated at the Battle of Metaurus. 
Hasdrubal himself was killed in this battle, and because the Romans were, to a man, absolute fuckshits, they hacked off Hasdrubal's head, put it in a box, carried it all the way across Italy, and then, in the dead of night, they threw the box into Hannibal's camp for Hannibal to find. I saw you with the box! What was in the box? Because I envy your normal life. Put the gun down, David. It seems that envy is my sin. No, oh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? Give me the gun. Remember how Hannibal and Hamilcar Barker were always super respectful of the dead? Yeah, the Romans were fucked. Eventually, Rome applied enough pressure to Carthage itself that it was able to push them all the way back to Carthage. And because of this, there was no choice but for Hannibal to retreat from Italy. He had to leave to defend Carthage. And at this point in the story, Hannibal is totally over it. He's old, he's tired. He's about 45 years old at this point. He has been commanding an army for nearly two-thirds of his entire life, and he's been fighting since he was 10 years old, and he watched his father die with a flaming sword in his hand, getting cut down by assassins. Hannibal is tired and jaded. Having his brother's head tossed over the camp wall broke a part of Hannibal, and his heart was just not in the fight anymore. He's done. So when Carthage sends an order for him to pack up and return to Carthage to defend the motherland, a place he hasn't set foot in 35 years, for the first time in his life, Hannibal actually obeys, and he heads back to what is, nominally at least, his home. Now there's more fighting all across the Mediterranean, the Punic War keeps happening, and eventually Rome start to push all the way back to Carthage, and Hannibal is forced to defend Africa itself. And that leads to the last famous battle in this story. It's known as the Battle of Zama. Now, it needs to be said that there is actually some very compelling evidence that the Battle of Zama never actually happened. These theories are new, and they completely upend over 2,000 years of established history, but it's far from the craziest historical assumption that's been overturned by new evidence. So there's a very strong chance that the famous Battle of Zama never actually took place, and that all of this is a romantic story told by Romans hundreds of years later, and that the Second Punic War actually ended diplomatically with a bunch of peace treaties and politicians arguing in a senate rather than what is, admittedly, a very prosaic battle when you think about it. But that's no fun. So we're going to go with the established history that the Battle of Zama actually happened the way that we've always been told, but just know that this is not set in stone, as is the same with most history. So I think we're all battled out at this point, and I don't blame you, it's been a long time. So let's not get bogged down in the actual details of the Battle of Zama. What you need to know is that Hannibal is completely over it at this point. He's having what we today would call a midlife crisis. He is completely burnt out. He cannot be bothered anymore. He's got one eye, he's got heaps of health issues from a life spent on campaign, He's got chronic pain, he's mentally exhausted, so his heart is just not in the fight like it was when he was in his 20s. And as someone who is about to turn 39 next week, I feel this in my bones. I feel you, Hannibal. Respect. The Carthaginians have been losing pretty steadily, and the Romans have beaten them all the way back to the plains of Africa. Rome, at this point, were finally being led by a very good general of their own, and one that was in the prime of his life, the new generation replacing the old, as it were. And this guy's name was Publius Cornelius Scipio, as most people in this story are named Publius Cornelius Scipio, 
but this one is the guy who after this battle would become forever known as Scipio Africanus. Scipio, that guy who conquered Africa. Hannibal has the remains of the Carthaginian armies, about 40,000 men total, and for the first time in nearly 20 years, he has elephants again. Hey, they're playing the elephant song! I love that. Reminds me of elephants. Scipio has a smaller force, about 30,000 Romans. But, and this is absolutely crucial, it's a factor that cannot be understated, Scipio has one huge, huge advantage that has not yet been seen in this entire series. You see, Scipio, unlike most Romans, was not an absolute tit. He was very clever and very good at what he did. And you'll remember, Scipio has been floating around at all of the major encounters in this series. His father was the guy in charge at Trebia, and he had to swoop in and pull him out of the fire. He's also one of the few people who managed to fight their way out of Cannae. Scipio has seen more of Hannibal's tactics and been on the receiving end of them and survived than anyone else in history. Nobody knows Hannibal better, and this entire time, Scipio has been taking notes. You magnificent bastard, I read your book! He's been learning this whole time. He knows how Hannibal operates, so he's becoming something of a Hannibal himself. And Scipio looks back at all of the battles where Rome got utterly trounced by Hannibal, and he sees that there's one consistent pattern. Well, two, actually. One is that Rome was chock full of fuckheads who never did any critical thinking in their entire lives. But, much more tangibly, Scipio realizes that every time Hannibal has done some absolute Hannibaling, it's because he's had very, very good cavalry. It's been the Numidian cavalry every single time that has been the major point of difference. So Scipio thinks it might be prudent to address that issue. Remember, there are two Romans in this entire story who are not idiots, and one of them is Scipio. He takes a huge amount of Rome's considerable fortune, and he bribes the Numidians. They are now on the Roman side. Think back to every battle we've spoken about in this show and the last show and the one before that. How many times have I mentioned the Numidian cavalry? How important have they been at every step in the story? Well, now they're fighting against Hannibal, not for him. His major strength is now a weakness. And as you might be able to guess, there is no coming back from that. The battle is over pretty much before it begins, because Hannibal's best troops have now turned against him. Not only does he not have them, but Rome has them. But there is still a battle to be fought. Possibly, we're not entirely sure, but there is a battle, and it's the Battle of Zama. Without going too far into it, because the day is long, Scipio turns out to be a very, very good general himself. Maybe not quite as good as Hannibal in his prime, but close. Closer than anyone has been before or since, possibly until we get to Mongol people. And now, he has Hannibal's best troops. He has the Numidian cavalry. Scipio outmaneuvers Hannibal several times, again, mostly thanks to having the Numidians on his side, and Hannibal cannot counter it, because he no longer has kick-ass cavalry of his own. Hannibal does have about 80 elephants, which is admittedly a lot of war elephants, and it may have been enough to turn the tide, even with everything going against him, but by this point in the story, 
202 BCE, Rome has figured out how to counter elephants. Among other things, the Romans used trumpets to spook the elephants and actually provoke them into charging early, which means that they actually do more damage to the Carthaginians than they do to the Romans, so they're a liability, and they wreak havoc among the Carthaginian ranks. Meanwhile, the Numidians are doing their thing, and Hannibal just has no more tricks. He is out of troops, he's out of fucks to give at this point. He's done. Rome wins the Battle of Zama, and Rome wins the Second Punic War. If you've watched the movie Gladiator, then you might recognize the Battle of Zama as the one where Maximus first announces himself in the Colosseum. Maximus and his gladiators were fighting a recreation of the Battle of Zama, and Maximus was given the role of Hannibal in that battle. But Maximus being Maximus, he uses his experience as a legionary general to grant his men an upset victory, prompting Joachim Phoenix to quip, My history's a little hazy, Cassius. But shouldn't the barbarians lose the Battle of Carthage? So, credit where due. Gladiator cops a lot of flack, most of it justified, but they do get that one particular point right. Carthage were indeed supposed to lose the Battle of Carthage. And even if you don't like Gladiator, weirdo, you have to acknowledge that when that German guy straight up punt kicks a guy in the face, that deserved an Oscar for best face kick that was an awesome moment in cinema. Which, if that isn't a category, that needs to be a category at the Oscars. Best face kick, and also best spinning while firing two guns at the same time. Let's make the Oscars great again. So Scipio Africanus wins the Battle of Zama, and he becomes super, super famous for this. And why not? The guy is the biggest hero Rome had ever seen up until that point. He's a bigger deal than Romulus, the fratricidal son-of-a-wolf pimp rapist who the city was named after. Hannibal Barker had terrorized Rome for 20 years at that point. Nobody could even compete with him in the field of battle, let alone win. Hannibal was the boogeyman, and it just so happened that Scipio turned out to be the guy that you sent to kill the fucking boogeyman. So he became John Wick himself. And because Scipio had beaten Hannibal in Africa, he got the cognomen Scipio Africanus. He is now a legend. And his legend endures for a long, long time. So much so that there's this one battle late in Julius Caesar's career, so a couple of hundred years later, when Caesar was fighting some Roman rebels in that region, what used to be Carthage. So this is about 200 years after the Battle of Zama. And this is prime Julius Caesar, too. Caesar is a guy who I would easily throw on my list of top 10 generals of all time. He is no slouch, even when compared to people like Hannibal and Scipio. And at this point, it's prime Caesar. He's had a string of victories at this point. He's conquered most of Europe. Caesar has had more triumphs than anyone else in Roman history. At this point, there is absolutely no doubt that if you were ranking the best generals of all time up until that point, it was Hannibal, Alexander, Scipio, and then Julius Caesar. That's how good Caesar is at this point. And even with all of his victories, Caesar's hyper-fanatical soldiers still had a superstitious belief that they could not win a battle in Africa without a Scipio. So strong was the mythology and the legend surrounding the Punic Wars and Hannibal and Scipio that there was a legend within the Roman army that the Romans could not win any battle in Africa if they were not under the command of someone named Scipio. 
So Caesar goes through all of his army, and he finally finds someone who is distantly related to Scipio Africanus, like a great-great-great-grandnephew or something. And this is just some guy. He's not anyone special. He's just a basic legionary, essentially. He just happens to be the great-great-great-grandnephew of Scipio Africanus. But Julius Caesar plucks him out of the line, and he gives him a token command and says, here we go, our army's being commanded by a Scipio. We're all good here. And the troops are happy because they have a Scipio in charge and Caesar's army wins. Now, that's probably because Caesar was actually in charge and he was really fucking good at it, but superstitions don't exist because of the sense they make. So you can't win a battle in Africa without someone named Scipio, even if it's a great, great, great nephew of the Scipio. That'll bring a Babe Ruth the fourth. Of course, he's no Babe Ruth the third, but... The franchise is very excited about this illegitimate great grand bambino. So the Second Punic War is won by Rome, and the same sort of thing happened as at the end of the First Punic War. A bunch of treaties, a bunch of penalties, Carthage pays reparations, they're forbidden from building armies, all of that usual shit. You guys know how an ancient peace treaty works by now, it's not all that interesting. And Hannibal, for his part, Without a war going on, he doesn't really know what to do, so he goes from being a general to being a politician, which was, again, hardly unusual. Hannibal became what is essentially the president of Carthage, and it did not go well. Which isn't to say that Hannibal wasn't good at it, he wasn't a terrible president. Maybe he was too good at it, actually. Hannibal's time in charge of Carthage was built around the concept of rooting out the rampant corruption in the Carthaginian Senate. Which, if you're someone who is as jaded as I am, and I'm guessing you all are, you'll think that being a politician who tries to police corruption in politics is living on borrowed time from the very start. And you would be absolutely correct. Always remember, just because you're cynical doesn't mean that you're wrong. So Hannibal, as president, or Safet, if you want to get all accurate about it, Hannibal starts to clean up Carthaginian politics. And the corrupt Carthaginian senators, and there were a lot of them, they did not take kindly to this. They liked their corruption because it made them rich. So they fabricated some crimes that Hannibal was supposed to have committed. For instance, one count of trying to reduce corruption, and they tried to have Hannibal arrested, whereupon they would put him on a ship and send him off to Rome so that Rome could strangle him to death because that's the kind of thing that they did. And Hannibal wasn't too keen on being strangled to death, so he said, you know what? I actually kind of hate Carthage. I'm not Carthaginian. I just happen to be born here. You know what? I'm out. Fuck you guys. I'm out. I quit. I leave. Screw you guys. I'm a and he left. He just packed up and left Carthage. The greatest Carthaginian general of all time just left. Hannibal ended up becoming a soldier of fortune, a mercenary for anyone who could afford him, like a one-man A-team. And one of the places he ended up working was for the kingdom of Bithynia in modern-day Turkey. And Bithynia at the time was at war with Pergamon, which is also in modern-day Turkey, because if there's one thing that the Middle East used to do but they don't do anymore, it's go to fight with their neighbors for nebulous reasons. Thankfully, that doesn't happen anymore. We've sorted the whole Middle East situation out, but that's what used to happen back in these days, in 200 BC. So Hannibal is the mercenary general slash admiral of the Bithynian armed forces at that time, and that's when he invents snake bombs. See, I told you I'd get around to it. Hannibal invents snake bombs, which is just another reason to love the guy. 
So as I just said, Hannibal is general slash admiral. So that's another box he can tick in his extensive resume. He's not just the best general of all time, he's a really good admiral too. And he's leading the Bithynian fleet in a battle against the Pergamenians. The thing is, Pergamon outnumbers Bithynia by a significant margin. Up to 3 to 1 if you believe the ancient sources, which you shouldn't. In this case, it's a Roman historian by the name of Cornelius Nepos, and he's basically the ancient Roman equivalent of me, so he's not an ancient historian so much as an ancient podcaster. I like Cornelius Nepos, he's a cool guy. So Hannibal needs to figure out a way to even the odds a little bit and give his smaller fleet a fighting chance. I mean, this is Hannibal's bread and butter, right? Being outnumbered is precisely his jam. Nobody is better at being outnumbered than Hannibal. So he has a think about it, and he comes up with a really Hannibal plan. And he thinks to himself, Hey, you know what? You know who doesn't like being shot with snakes? Everyone. And he is absolutely correct. Nobody in history has ever wanted snakes shot at them. It's a universal constant, like the speed of light. So Hannibal orders his men to spend a week collecting as many venomous snakes as they can find, and then they put these snakes into clay pots, and they put those pots on their ships. And then as the smaller fleet of Bithynian ships approaches the Pergamenians, they load the snake pots into catapults and launch them at the enemy fleet. And it goes exactly as you might expect, because, again, nobody in history has ever wanted snakes shot at them. Hannibal is now the 190 BCE Oppenheimer. Now I am become death, launcher of snakes. These enemy sailors who run around their ship barefoot and without clothes on, and on decks that are usually bereft of venomous reptiles, now find that their ships are seething with snakes. They are unfamiliar with this situation. Sailors do not encounter a lot of snakes in their usual business day, so they do not handle it well. And for the snakes, well, these snakes are quite pissed off at being held in clay pots for days on end and then being yeeted in the air towards Pergamenian sailors, so they've got to work out some of that aggression, and the snakes win. Because they're snakes. Now that's what I call live ammunition. I, I don't blame you if you unsubscribe right now. So the Pergamenian fleet is completely disabled and unable to fight because nobody saw Operation Snakestorm coming. And that's the kind of thing you expect from Hannibal Barker. He always does the thing you least expect. And I don't mean that in the traditional art of war style, like hit the enemy where he does not expect you to strike kind of thing. I mean unexpected as in the only way you can think of this shit is if you take a bunch of peyote and then eat a wheel of cheese before you go to bed and whatever you dream is your battle plan. Because anyone who tells you that they were expecting snake bombs is lying. Everyone is thinking that Hannibal has an ambush in him, sure, but nobody went to bed that night before the battle thinking Hannibal was going to throw snakes at them. But now, after the battle, everyone has to kind of consider the possibility of snake ambushes. There's another story of Hannibal going bugfuck wild in this period, but I only have one source for it. I know that's never really been a problem for us in the past, but I do try to be transparent for these things. It's from an academic paper by Michael Gray and Kenneth Spaeth, cheerily titled The Bioterrorism Sourcebook, and this is from Chapter 10, A Brief History of Biological Weapons. In this chapter, they describe how Hannibal, during his mercenary days in Bithynia, 
He's growing weary of snake bombs because it's a bit blasé by now, right? So he went in a different direction. And before one battle, he sent some of his spies out, and he always had really good spies. He has some of his spies go and conduct a bit of ungentlemanly warfare, as the British might say. And these secret agents infiltrated the enemy camp and managed to spike the enemy's water supply with Belladonna, which you might know better as Deadly Nightshade. Now, at this scale, there wasn't enough Belladonna to kill anyone in the other army but it was enough to have them all tripping absolute balls just before the battle. You see, the active ingredient in belladonna is scopolamine, which is a potent hallucinogen. It's also sometimes called truth serum, although that's a product of the movies that's never actually worked in real life as a truth serum because of the, you know, the whole potent hallucinogenic properties of it. Nobody on scopolamine has ever spoken the truth. They see shit that they wish they hadn't seen. So Hannibal spiked his enemies with a hallucinogen right before the battle. Imagine waking up that morning, knowing you're going to be facing off against Hannibal Barker, which is intimidating enough, but you know that Hannibal Barker is probably A, going to ambush you, and B, send snakes in your direction, and then suddenly you feel the onset of what is effectively Scarecrow's fear toxin from Batman. And you can probably imagine how that battle went. It went so well for Hannibal, in fact, that 2,000 years later, the CIA would look at that plan and decide that they wanted a piece of that pie, so the CIA did it themselves. Much of the foundation of the infamous MKUltra program was based on a tactic invented by Hannibal Barker. But that's another show for another time. Hannibal spends about 15 years working as a mercenary in and around the Levant. He is reasonably effective, actually very effective as a commander, whether on land or at sea, because he's still Hannibal Barker, but he never quite had the same passion as he did in his youth. There are two major periods in Hannibal's life, before and after Cannae. His midlife crisis crushed harder than most people. But that being said, he's still really, really good, and he does things like invent chemical warfare or build snake bombs, which is always awesome. And this whole time, Rome is incredibly nervous about Hannibal, because he's Hannibal and they're shit scared of him, on account of him being the boogeyman for an entire generation. So while all of this post-Zama stuff has been happening, there have been roving death squads roaming around the world trying to find Hannibal and murder him in his sleep, because they sure as shit don't want to take him on in a battle. But these death squads never caught up with Hannibal because Hannibal, sensibly, made sure that he always had an army in between himself and any potential death squads. Which, important safety tip right there, always try and have an army with you, because people will fuck with you a lot less when you have an army at your back. But the constant threat of Roman assassins does a number on Hannibal's health, which has been steadily declining for the last 20 years. He's in his 60s now, and he is tired. He's really tired. He's over it. A few times he actually makes some overtures for maybe someone to give him an army so he can go to war with Rome again like he did when he was young, but his heart was never in it and it never actually came to fruition. Eventually, in the year 181 BCE, Hannibal's patron kingdom of Bithynia bites off more than they can chew. Remember, they've been at war with Pergamon this whole time, and Pergamon just pulled the trump card of allying themselves with Rome. Rome, after the end of the Second Punic War, they were uncontested as the big dogs in the ancient world. They were the big swinging dicks. There was nobody left to challenge them. So Pergamon allies with the Alpha Dog, and Rome comes in, and together they defeat the Bithynians. 
As ever, they did it by fighting somewhere that Hannibal wasn't, because they still cannot take on Hannibal himself. But Bithynia does lose to the Pergaminian Roman Federation. And one of the terms of the surrender that Rome sends Bithynia is that the king of Bithynia has to give up Hannibal. Take away his armies and tell us where he's hiding. And the king of Bithynia, he's got no skin in the game. Hannibal is his employee, not his friend. So he does what he's told, and he gives up Hannibal's location. And Rome send their goon squads. Hannibal's villa is surrounded by Roman legionaries. Hannibal, seeing that his bolt holes are all covered, he has nowhere to run. He could surrender himself to Rome, but he's just over it. He cannot be fucked anymore. He's about 65 years old, and he's spent at least 45 of those years fighting, non-stop. He's just tired. And so the great Hannibal Barker, the most incredible general in the history of mankind, still to this day, Hannibal takes a vial of poison that he had on his person at all times. Quite literally, in case of Romans, break glass. And he downs the poison rather than become a prisoner of Rome. And before he did, he penned a letter, left clutched in his dead hands, that said, quote, Let us release the Romans from their long fears, since it tries their patience too much to wait for an old man's death. End quote. And that, my dear listeners, is the end of Hannibal Barker. Maybe. As ever, we don't know. We'll never know. We don't know where he died. We don't know when he died. We don't even know how he died. We just know that he died. The sources, as they do for this entire tale, disagree. The version that I just told you, that was Livy's version, which I dare say you can all spot Livy's storytelling by now. And it's just a little too narratively perfect, don't you think? But that isn't to say that it didn't happen like that, it's just that we're all very dubious of Livy by now. Pausanias tells us that Hannibal got an infected wound and died of a fever. But that's boring. Appian says that it was actually the king of Bithynia himself who poisoned Hannibal to carry favor with the Romans. Or maybe Hannibal became one with the force, fading into nothing, leaving behind only empty clothes as the Roman swords cut him down. Who's to say? My version, the Force Ghost version, is the least likely, but why the hell not? If Livy and Polybius can make shit up, then why can't I? At least you can count on me telling you when I do. But one thing that we can all agree on is that sometime in 181 or 182 BCE, Hannibal Barker, the greatest of the great captains, died. And we are so very, very near the end of the tale. We're nearly there, but not quite. There are a couple of more things that we need to clear up first. You might note, correctly, that there is no Carthage today. We have the city of Tunis, capital of Tunisia, which is almost certainly where Carthage was, but not exactly where Carthage was. And that's because of a little something which became known as the Carthaginian Solution. About 40 years after the death of Hannibal, there was yet another war between Rome and Carthage, the Third Punic War, the end of the trilogy. Carthage had been neutered as a military power by the terms of the surrender at the end of the Second Punic War. They were effectively not allowed to have a military, and they were definitely not allowed to have a navy. But if you'll recall the first two shows, so long ago now, the strength of Carthage was never their military. It was always their economy. 
Carthage were always incredibly rich. So even though they lost two very long wars to Rome, they were still the richest nation in that part of the world. They just kept pumping out money like nobody else. And this galled Rome. It burned the Romans. Rome were the victors, twice. Why should they have less money than the people they'd beaten in two successive wars? And this is most famously summed up through one historical figure who is noteworthy only for his hatred of the riches of Carthage, someone who made history only because of how much he hated Carthage. And this person, who I suspect most of you know, was the famous Cato the Censor, aka Cato the Elder. Cato was a prominent Roman senator who despised Carthage, to the point where any speech he was giving to the Senate would end with the words, Carthago Delenda Est. Carthage must be destroyed. It didn't matter what he was talking about. He could have been talking about end-of-season grain harvests. It didn't matter. He ended every speech with Carthago Delenda Est. Carthage must be destroyed. So here we have Cato to give his opinion on the new olive crops that have just come in in Sicily. Take it away, Cato. Ah, yes, wonderful batch of olives this year, great texture, smooth taste, they'll make a very fine oil, and also Carthage must be destroyed. Cato was the most bombastic demagogue that Rome had, and the template for any fascist following in his footsteps in the 20th and 21st centuries, but he was far from alone. A lot of Romans were like this. So, Rome went through some very sneaky means to goad the Carthaginians into breaking the terms of their treaty with Rome, giving Rome the casus belli necessary to declare a Third Punic War. And the Third Punic War went very poorly for Carthage, because Carthage did not have a military to speak of at that point, and Rome had all of the military. Carthage put in a good fight, and they did pretty well. They managed to hold out for three years, but they were never going to win. And they didn't. Carthage lost the Third Punic War as well. And Rome, predictably, were dicks about it. And they were dicks about it even by the standards of Roman dickbaggery at the time, which is a lot of dickishness. The Roman armies at the time, who were led by yet another person named Publius Cornelius Scipio, the famous one's son this time, and this Scipio, who was known as Scipio Aemilianus, his tutor happened to be none other than our old mate Polybius, who writes all of this history. So that's why Polybius's histories sound like they do. The dude was a very close personal friend with the guy who captured and destroyed Carthage, Scipio Emilianus. Scipio besieged Carthage, and then, after a few months, he finally took it. And when the Romans finally captured the city of Carthage, they were not gentle. What they did was famous, and it became known as the Carthaginian Solution. Essentially, they razed the city. So the Roman soldiers looted and pillaged and raped and burned Carthage for days. Anyone they didn't kill, they took as hostages or slaves, they stole everything they could carry, and they destroyed the rest. Then, they burned the city to the ground. They demolished it. They tore it down to the foundations, and then they destroyed the foundations. And then, according to the popular narrative, they salted the earth so that nothing would ever grow there again. And that is the Carthaginian solution, to destroy your enemies so utterly that they can never rise again. Bellum Romanum. 
and it's what Hannibal probably should have done after the Battle of Cannae, and the Romans learned that lesson there. You wipe out your enemy, make sure they can't get back up again. Now that the shoe was on the other foot, the Romans are not going to make the same mistake. And in 146 BCE, Carthage went from being one of the biggest cities in the ancient world to no longer on anybody's maps in the space of a week. History pedants will love to point out that the whole salting the earth bit probably never actually happened, that it was a narrative license by the ancient historians, but does it really matter? The city was burned to the ground and everyone was killed or enslaved. I don't think the Romans earned any brownie points for not actually having salted the earth. The damage was done. But regardless, that's the end of Carthage. Forty years after the death of Hannibal, Carthage is no more. But as for Hannibal Barker himself, I think I've proven my case as to why I consider Hannibal Barker to be one of the most interesting people of all time. And it's a perfect justification as to why Pacific Rim's Hannibal Chow considered him to be his favorite historical figure, and named himself after Hannibal, as well as his second favorite Szechuan shop in Brooklyn. I took it from uh, my favorite historical character and my second favorite Szechuan restaurant in Brooklyn. And of all of my sources, I think the 1910 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica summed it up best. So here's their historian, the very unlikely named Maximilian Otto Bismarck Caspari. Here's how he put it. Quote, As to the transcendent military genius of Hannibal, there cannot be two opinions. The man who for 15 years could hold his ground in a hostile country against several powerful armies and a succession of able generals must have been a commander and a tactician of supreme capacity. In the use of strategies and ambassades, he certainly surpassed all other generals of antiquity. Wonderful as his achievements were, we must marvel the more when we take into account the grudging support he received from Carthage. As his veterans melted away, he had to organize fresh levies on the spot. We never hear of a mutiny in his army, composed though it was of North Africans, Iberians, and Gauls. Again, all we know of him comes, from the most part, from hostile sources. The Romans feared and hated him so much that they could not do him justice. Livy speaks of his great qualities, but he adds that his vices were equally great, among which he singles out his more than punic perfidy and inhuman cruelty. For the first, there would seem to be no further justification than that he was consummately skillful in the use of ambassades. For the latter, there is, we believe, no more ground than that at certain crises he acted in the general spirit of ancient warfare. Sometimes he contrasts most favorably with his enemies. No such brutality stains his name as that perpetrated by Gaius Claudius Nero on the vanquished Hasdrubal. Polybius merely says that he was accused of cruelty by the Romans and of avarice by the Carthaginians. He had bitter enemies, and his life was one continuous struggle against destiny. For steadfastness of purpose, for organizing capacity, and a master of military science, he has perhaps never had an equal. End quote. And I couldn't have put it any better myself. But I could put it longer, and that's why I did four shows. How we doing? Anyone need a bathroom break yet? Well, hold on, because we're not done. There is one last tale I'd like to tell you. And it's not a reliable tale, there is very scant evidence for it, but it is legitimately and without question my favorite story in all of history. 
It's my favorite story to the point that I've actually written a stage play based on this event. So if anyone on Broadway wants to give me a call or if the people from Hamilton are listening, I am ready to go. And this story comes to us from Livy, so yeah, yeah, but here we go. Hannibal, as we now know, spent the second half of his life on the run from Rome, working as a mercenary in and around the Mediterranean. And at one point, he was the military advisor to Antiochus III of the Seleucid Empire. Coincidentally, at the same time, Rome had sent an envoy to the Seleucids as just a standard bit of diplomacy between two great nations. But the diplomat that Rome happened to send was none other than Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus. Yes, the famous one. Now, Scipio, after his victory at Zama, his career path had actually followed an ironically and eerily similar path to that of Hannibal himself. Scipio too had turned to politics, just like Hannibal had, and he'd found it just as unpalatable as Hannibal did, and made just as many enemies. Scipio, the greatest hero in the history of Rome at that point, found himself back in the machinations of Roman politics, and things did not go well for him. A bunch of Roman senators were jealous about how popular and powerful Scipio had become, on account of him being the greatest hero in the history of Rome, and chief among them was none other than Cato the Censor who is, categorically, one of the biggest dicks in history. Led by Cato, the Senate trumped up charges of fraud to try and damage the reputation of Scipio. I charge that Scipio has been doing shady shit because I don't like him, and furthermore, Carthage must be destroyed. These accusations were not true, but since when has that ever mattered in politics, right? Scipio Africanus, however, he was no fan of bullshit, and he decided to just nope the fuck out of Rome entirely, just like Hannibal had. Scipio was a warrior, and a damn good one, he had no time for all of this real politique bullshit and backstabbing and lies and promises and all of the other murky shit that people like Cato thrived on. So rather than playing the Game of Thrones, as it were, Scipio just left. He quit the entire Roman Republic in a fit of rage, retiring to his villa in central Italy, never to return to Rome proper. Rome's greatest hero publicly and famously denounced Rome and never went back to the city, to the extent that his tombstone to this day, his tombstone bears the quote, Ingrata patria, ne ossa quidem habebis, which translates to, Ungrateful fatherland, you won't even get my bones. But before this, during the turmoil of his political career, that's how he found himself an envoy in the court of the Seleucid Empire. The great and beloved Scipio Africanus had been sent out of the country to get him out of the way and out of the public eye. And this is when he bumped into none other than Hannibal Barker. These two men, adversaries for the entirety of Scipio's life, who were bound by so many famous events, who seemed to be quantum entangled in history. And it needs to be said that Hannibal and Scipio were adversaries for decades, but they were never really enemies. There was a lot of mutual respect there. In fact, before the Battle of Zama, the two had actually met on a hilltop and had a long chat. And I could tell you what they spoke about, but all of the historians are putting words in their mouths and nobody knows the truth, so just insert whatever you feel like those two generals would have had a chat about on the night before one of the most important battles in history. Create your own narrative. You can dictate what they said. Go and be your own Polybius. So when Hannibal and Scipio randomly bumped into each other at a bathhouse in Ephesus, 
It wasn't a draw your swords, we shall duel to the death kind of thing, it was a respectful greeting of colleagues and contemporaries. Both who were well past their prime, both suffering health effects from the rough lives that they'd led, both tired, weary to their very bones. Both of them having been chewed up and spat out and burned by the politicians they'd spent their entire lives fighting for. Both of them being forced out of the countries that they put their lives on the line for. It was a Rambo situation for both men. So they were both totally in sync with each other from the moment their eyes met. And they got to chatting. They catch up. They trade stories. They hang out. And then, as it inevitably would, they have the Top Gun Maverick chat. They need to establish who was the better pilot. Or in this case, who was the better general. Who's it going to be? Hannibal with all of his accomplishments, starting with the crossing of the Alps all the way up to inventing snake bombs? Or Scipio, the man who beat Hannibal, with a rather prominent asterisk next to it. And it's Scipio who puts the question to Hannibal. And he does it in a roundabout way. Scipio asks Hannibal who Hannibal thinks the best generals of all time were. And Hannibal replies, and I don't want to spoil the eventual movie that I'm going to make, Hannibal replies something along the lines of, well, first, obviously, there's Alexander the Great. He conquered the world, he pushed farther than anyone else ever, and he was never beaten in combat. Number one, Alexander the Great. Second, there is Ferris of Epirus. All of my craft I learned from Ferris. By reading of his battles, I learned how to survey the land, how to set ambushes, how to marshal troops, and most importantly, he taught me how to win the hearts and the minds of the people so that they preferred the rule of a foreigner to that of their Roman overlords. Which, when you think about it, that is everything that Hannibal would become famous for, and he did apparently learn it all from Ferris. And Hannibal continues. Then, third, I would have to place myself because of all the shit that Damo is going to spend hours and hours talking about in the year 2023 after the birth of a prophet who hasn't been born yet but will spawn a religion. So number three, me. Hannibal. And at this point, Scipio is incredulous. The whole line of questioning from Scipio was because he was trying to tease out some praise from the great Hannibal Barker, and maybe a bit of humility too, considering that he's the guy who would end up beating him, and now Scipio isn't even on Hannibal's top ten list? What's up with that? And Scipio starts laughing at this blatant display of onanism from Hannibal, and he interrupts because Hannibal isn't going to stop praising himself anytime soon, so Scipio has to interrupt, and Scipio says to Hannibal, Well then, mighty general, where would you have placed yourself among the great captains of all time if you had not been beaten by me? And then Hannibal replies, Well then, obviously, I would have been number one. And at that, the two of them laugh, and they share a wine, and they look out over a setting sun with a nostalgic glint in their eyes, because Hannibal had just given Scipio exactly what he'd been looking for, while still providing a reasonably cool and calculated assessment of the way that things actually were. What Hannibal had just said was essentially, Scipio, you're good. You are very good. But you got lucky once. I had to keep it up for 16 years. Right now, the greatest generals ever are, in order, Alexander, Ferris, and myself. But the only thing that kept me from being the clear and obvious number one was you, Scipio. And Scipio was hard-pressed to disagree. But I disagree. 
because as much as I love this story, and like I've said, it's my favorite story in all of history, but in my estimation, Scipio was good. He was very good, but he got that good by studying and emulating Hannibal. Everything Scipio knew, he learned firsthand from being on the receiving end of Hannibal. Ferris is an enigmatic one. If you'll recall, way back in the first show, Ferris won every battle against Rome but ended up losing the war. So while his command may have been peerless at the time, it is hard to put him in top spot. Alexander the Great, now there was a great commander. But Alexander had a coterie of the best generals in the world as his council, the Diodaci. And he was handed the greatest army in the world at the time. His father assembled it. Alexander never lost a battle, and he pushed all the way to Pakistan, but would he have beaten Hannibal in a straight-up fight? It's hard to say, but I don't think he would have. But Hannibal Barker. Hannibal Barker did an impossible march to gain an advantage. He came out of that death march and blew the Romans away. Even with his army cold and starving and frostbitten and half-dead, he still blew the Romans off the park. Then, he pulled off one of the greatest ambushes in history at the Battle of the Trebia, a battle that could have been remembered for all time as the greatest ambush ever, except for the fact that he immediately afterwards followed it up with the Battle of Trisemony, which is categorically and objectively the best ambush in history. It completely shades Trebia. And then, he pulled out Cannae, a battle which is universally regarded as the best bit of military command that any human being has ever achieved to this day. Scipio can't lay claim to that. Ferris can't lay claim to that. Even Alexander cannot lay claim to that. Only one person can. The greatest commander in the history of warfare. Hannibal Barker. Holy shit, that was something, wasn't it? Just call me Damo Carlin. I'm starting to figure out why he only does two shows a year. But I also guess that Uncle Dan doesn't have autism and ADD, so people like me only know two speeds, stop and write for 10 hours before you realize that you haven't eaten today, so that's my creative process. Every year I plan to do NaNoWriMo. That's the National Novel Writing Month. It's something that a lot of writers do. And the idea behind it is that every day in November you write a thousand words a day and then at the end of the month you have a book's worth of stuff that you can edit and turn into an actual book. In my whole life I've only ever completed it once, which was my debut book, Why You're Wrong, available at linktree.com slash thedamiansmith. A lot of things are available there. Anyway, every year I plan to do NaNoWriMo and I never actually get around to it. This year I decided not to. I didn't want the pressure of actually doing it. And, as a consequence, I ended up accidentally going way over the word count on this show, so technically I've completed NaNoWriMo. Hooray for me, I guess. It's not actually a book, but who cares? In case you were wondering, this show that you just listened to clocked in at over 46,000 words, which is the same size as parts 1, 2, and 3 put together. What can I say? Brevity has never been my thing. Most of you know that by now. If this is your first foray into HGT, then you probably should have checked out the other shows first, but you're probably already piecing together that brevity really is not my thing. It's why I will never have a TikTok. Alright, now to do the obligatory icky stuff that we have to do because we lost the Cold War. This show is free. It will always be free. Do not fret about that. 
But that being said, if you feel like tossing a coin to your caster, O Valley of Plenty, you can do that over on my Linktree as well. So linktree.com slash historygotime or linktree.com slash Smith. but they're pretty much the same thing. I'm not saying you have to, feel no obligation, but if you've got a lazy buck, I would love to have it. This show, like a lot of things on the internet that you may or may not be aware of, this show, as in HGT, cannot be monetized. I cannot make ad revenue off it. And one of the reasons is that I said that Hannibal committed suicide. Yeah, which is a fact. That's a, a fact. That's a real thing that actually happened. And yet, because I used the word suicide and mentioned someone ending their own life, even though they were being pursued by Roman assassins at the age of 66, if I say that again, bye-bye advertising money, bye-bye you can't say the naughty word, no more advertising money for you. In this increasingly sanitized, bowdlerized word, you cannot even mention the fact that a historical figure ended his own life because advertisers might get upset. If I had my pick of cyberpunk dystopias to live in, then I would definitely choose the one with, with the giant hologram of a naked Anna de Armas, but this is the cyberpunk dystopia we got. Death by censorship. Which is a debate we can have for another time, but the upshot is that I depend on the generosity of Medici's to keep this show rolling. You can always depend on the kindness of strangers. If you want to go the extra mile, you can join the Patreon. I recommend you do that. For about the cost of a cup of coffee each month, you can help me keep my head above water and provide the validation that a sad clown always needs. Plus, if you do, you get a bonus show every month. Last month, we did a 90-minute show about the Blood Countess Elizabeth Bathory. It was meant to be a 15-minute show, but I was just in the zone, so it ended up an hour and a half. So that's the kind of thing that you can get for, and I cannot stress this enough, less than the cost of a schooner of beer once a month. And for everyone who has been bugging me about doing a show about Elizabeth Bathory, the Blood Countess, well, there you go. It's paywalled. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Don't blame me for the downfall of civilization. That's why this show is dedicated to Caleb. You're a goddamn boss, Caleb. Everyone say hi to Caleb. He's cool. I don't know if I ever thanked you, Caleb, or if I did one of those autistic things that I do in lieu of actually saying thanks. But anyway, now your generosity is immortalized for the ages. When our bodies have returned to the loam and the cities are but dust, the new romancers walking the plains will know eternally that Caleb is a boss. But if money is tight, and it is everywhere, I get it. If you like what you've heard in this show, in this series, in this podcast as a whole, then any of the buttons that you can hit will really help me out. Seriously, hitting like or subscribe or even better, the share button, that is super, super helpful to me. Again, no pressure, but if you're still here at whatever hour we're in in this show, then I can only assume that you are also on board enough to hit the share button, so please do that. Very helpful. Love it. And for all of the people who are already doing that, you're all great. Keep it up. You have been assured of your place in heaven. Alright, I think I've talked enough for 10 lifetimes now. Thank you for coming with me on this way longer than first anticipated ride through the life of Hannibal Barker. As much as I've truly loved doing this series, I mean, this has been on my list since day one, it's been an awesome ride, I'm more than ready to move on to something else now, so who knows, I may even get around to doing the Miyamoto Musashi show. No promises, but potentially. Alright, later taters, go stretch your legs. And remember, stay hydrated. So that was 5 hours, 59 minutes, and 53 seconds. So let's just pump that over 6, huh? Alright, done.